Hello, and welcome to the History of the Atlantic World podcast, a proud member of the Big Heads Podcast Network. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for tuning in. Folks, it's been far too long. I should say I got laid off last spring, and for a while I really didn't have the time to work on the show very much, Um, and in addition, I've actually been also dealing with some health issues the last few months. I just had surgery, uh, and I'm actually feeling really good, and I've got some great news, uh, which is benign. Uh, Anyway, I'm glad to be back in this chair. I'm also grateful for the lessons I've learned researching and writing this episode. Uh, because while this is not the story of Jesse Wiest, this is a story about failure. Uh, with that said, before we really get going, I want to tell you about another great show in the Big Heads Podcast Network. It's called Retro Late Fee. Retro Late Fee is a show that's done by a couple, Mark and Carol, who've been going to the movie theater once a week since 1995. Later, they record their thoughts and have begun publishing those thoughts as the Retro Late Fee podcast. Now, by my count, I I think that means they have roughly somewhere between 13 or 1400 movie reviews, seriously. Uh, Anyway, this show is amazing. Check out the website in the show notes. uh, And the next time you're looking for a movie review, uh, check out Retro Late Fee. I can assure you folks uh, that without the support of the Big Heads Network, my show would not have survived uh, the the failings of the past year. Um, So please uh, support the people who support this show. Okay, now with that uh, bit of business taken care of, I want to begin with a question. When did the conquest of North America occur? Now, if you took the opinion that the conquest of North America occurred thousands and thousands of years ago, and it was undertaken by the ancestors of today's Native American populations, I would not disagree with you. Now, if you took an alternative answer and said conquest came after the arrival of Europeans, I really can't disagree uh, with you there either, because contact with Europe came alongside an influx of deadly disease outbreaks, slave raids, and and, uh, ultimately European settlement. This is an apocalyptic scenario for the people living in the Americas at the time. But with that said, in North America, that apocalypse took centuries. So if you're thinking there's going to be some nice, simple date for the conquest of North America, well, you are mistaken. Spain, in fact, did not conquer North America. But with that said, For about a hundred years, Spanish entradas 
into the continent were so numerous and transformative uh, that uh, really, ultimately, although Spain failed to conquer North America, it was those numerous entradas that caused other conquests to occur. So while Spanish colonists failed at conquering the continent, they did manage to transform much of the American Southwest and Florida. The French came next. They were down the Mississippi and entered the lucrative role of post-apocalyptic trader. Afterwards, numerous settlers flocked to the English flag, and that might have uh, be said to uh, be the last and final conquest of North America, but that in itself is something that takes hundreds of years. So, but with with that said, all that said, between the first arrival of the Spanish and the ultimate manifest destiny of the United States that I guess you could say takes place in the second half of the 19th century, there were many other successful conquests that took place. The truth about this story is that those conquests took place despite the best efforts of the Spanish. Now, in the United States, uh, the, we, we kind of pretend sometimes that the only conquest of North America was that manifest destiny of the United States, the successful taming of a virgin wilderness by white man. Now, John Francis Bacon, who is the author of The Spanish Borderlands Frontier, would disagree. Quote, the farther the Anglo-American frontier edged toward the heart of the continent, and the closer it came to the Mississippi River, the less true it became that the frontier was moving into a so-called virgin wilderness. Of course, even in its first stages of advance, the frontier was never really confronting a virgin wilderness, but too often in the thinking of the frontiersmen, the Indians did not really count. They, so to speak, went with the land. But the farther the Anglo-Americans pushed westward, the more they found themselves latecomers, unquote. Now, this is something of a surprise to a lot of people in the United States. Because, uh, but, but long before uh, the ancestors of, of the Americans uh, here who saw America as a limitless western frontier, colonists in the Spanish Americas saw North America as a limitless northern frontier. And this began right in 1521 in Mexico. After the conquest of Tenochtitlan, Conquistadors that included Cortes immediately set their sights to the north. Many men in New Spain believed their very own Tenochtitlan, or Peru, might be found in the north, just a little farther on, Poco Masaya. Well, that's where the treasure would be found. And this frontier spirit would lead ultimately to Spanish settlements and attempts at settlements all across the American Southwest. Now, with that said, two Spanish frontiers existed in North America, and Mexico was one of them, of course, but the Caribbean was the other. And it was from the Caribbean where the first attempted Spanish conquest of North America began. In 1513, Ponce de Leon, the conqueror of Puerto Rico, set out to Florida and quote-unquote discovered North America. In large part, this uh, occurred because Diego Columbus won a lawsuit in court and he got governorship of, uh, 
of Hispaniola, and, and Ponce de Leon was replaced as governor of Puerto Rico. That's uh, really neither here nor there. But the point is, is Ponce had nothing better to do, really, than gather three ships, 200 men, and go north, seeking to conquer uh, new lands and hence his, quote-unquote, discovery of Florida in 1513. Now, if you ask me, you'd have to be an idiot uh, to believe that anyone would pay for three ships and it pay to equip 200 men to go north just on the off chance they sailed uh, in, into some discovered land. And you'd have to be even more of an idiot to believe that anyone would sign up for the opportunity to get in a boat of hopes of finding land. So in all likelihood, the real quote-unquote discovery, uh, by Europeans anyway, of Florida took place uh, on a slave voyage. Uh, at some time before Ponce de Leon officially attempted to take possession in 1513. Now, slaves, though, were only part of Ponce de Leon's motivation for going to Florida. Famously, he was also searching for the Fountain of Youth. Legends uh, of, of waters with mythical properties actually existed all throughout the world in those days, both in Europe and the Americas. Now, with that said, I should point out and people in the 1500s did not believe there was a water fountain somewhere that literally made you live forever. What uh, Ponce de Leon and, and other men wanted was virility throughout their entire lives. They believed there existed water in the world which, pardon the expression, would help an old man catch wood. Ponce de Leon was in search of a 16th century equivalent of boner pills. So, why did he choose Florida? Well, there's a lot of hot springs in Florida. I myself have visited a place called Jenny Springs, Florida, and went snorkeling there. It was amazing. The water in Jenny Springs, in fact, is, if I remember correctly, 74 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, that is, year-round. Uh, Florida has a number of such locations as Jenny Springs, where heated water escapes the depths of the earth and Create some really nice uh, locations to rest, especially uh, for, for old people. I'm quite certain that in centuries past, older uh, Indians would go bathe in the hot springs to rejuvenate themselves, and, and that's probably where the legend started, on the American side of things anyway. So Ponce de Leon thought that if he could locate uh, the fountain of youth, he could bottle the waters there and make a fortune selling dick pills. And if you look at the profits made uh, from selling Viagra, you know, I don't think his idea was maybe uh, as crazy as it sounds. Uh, or maybe we, or maybe he was. Uh, we don't actually really know much about Ponce de Leon's early life, other than he shipped off to the New World at the age of 19 on the second fleet of Columbus as a gentleman volunteer. Las Casas called uh, Leon so brutal that he was uh, called to be literally one of the most ruthless of all the conquistadors. And if that's true, well, maybe the conqueror of Puerto Rico finally got what he deserved in La Florida. And it's because Juan Ponce landed somewhere on Florida's west coast. He and his men were basically greeted with, quote, furious hostility, unquote, by the local Calusa people and immediately upon their arrival, which is, I think, also additional evidence that slave raids were taking place on uh, Florida's shores preceding this voyage. At any rate, Juan Ponce and his men were forced back to their ships and returned to Puerto Rico. 
Uh, Ponce de Leon, however, was undeterred. He sailed to Spain, requested official permission to conquer the island. Florida was put on a map. It was designated as Miami at this time, which was a native town, quote-unquote, discovered on uh, Juan Ponce's first voyage. And uh, Ponce de Leon was granted the title of Adelantado of La Florida. By 1521, he had a new um, army of conquistadors. Um, with that said, this second collection of soldiers, cavalry, priests, and colonists, colonists was insufficient to counter the quote-unquote intense onslaught of Calusa warriors, unquote. Uh, when Juan Ponce de Leon returned to Florida, the deaths were so numerous on both sides of the conflict that followed uh, that in the end, Juan Ponce de Leon was forced once again back onto his ships. This time, however, he was mortally wounded by a poisoned arrow. Now, if you think his fate was bad, Juan Ponce's widow was later banished back to Spain, quite likely as a means of taking her property, then her departing ship was shipwrecked on the way, along with 1,000 other people. Senora Ponce de Leon died of starvation after being stranded by a hurricane on the east coast of Florida. Well, at any rate, Juan Ponce de Leon was able to credibly inform his monarchs that he had quote-unquote discovered the island of Florida, even though he was clearly preceded by slavers, probably for years. And this is part of a process that very much helped the conquistadors uh, exploit the Americas. Queen Isabella outlawed slaving in the Americas, making it illegal except under very specific circumstances. And slaves from Africa were very expensive. So slavers uh, in the Americas often went, or went on secret voyages to lands not officially discovered, as, at least as far as the Spanish government was concerned. And this was a way to supply both the burgeoning sugar industry in the Caribbean, as well as the numerous mining operations popping up all over uh, uh, Spanish America with labor. Now, North America, practically limitless, both in geography and population, served as a place where a lot of Spanish labor came from uh, during this period. Now, incidentally, the year Juan Ponce met his end in 1521 was the same year in which Cortes completed his dramatic conquest of the Mexica. Now, you'd think that most of the Spanish conquistadors would be preoccupied in Mexico for a while, and that's definitely true. But not all Spanish conquistadors were in Mexico during this time. The Spanish slavers Francisco Gordillo and Pedro de Quejo sailed to Bermuda and the Bahamas in that same year. Instead of going to Mexico in 1521, they failed to find slaves in the Bahamas and Bermuda. These islands were, by that time, already depopulated by previous uh, slaving activities. Now, the two men had actually originally sailed separately, but after failing to find any slaves, they met up and decided to jointly attack some villages they'd heard about to the west from another uh, slaver whose name is unknown to me. Gordillo and Quejo agreed to divide all the slaves jointly captured, and a few days later, they landed on the coast of the Santee River in South Carolina. Quejo and Gordillo met friendly natives there who exchanged gifts with the Spaniards. 
Of course, once Gordillo and Cajo managed to tempt about a hundred of the locals on board, the Spaniards proceeded to lock the Indians into the hold of the ship and set sail for Santo Domingo. Those unfortunate captives would serve the rest of their lives on the plantations of Cajo and Gordillo's employers. Now, that chief sponsor of Cajo's village was Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. He was a wealthy landowner on Hispaniola, and he used this expedition as a reason to travel to Spain in order to seek royal license for the exploration and settlement of La Florida. Of La Florida. Now, Ayon, freshly after, uh, after uh, Ponce de Leon's defeat, received a one-year contract. This enabled him to build forts and transport clergy to North America, and included in the royal agreement was a decree, though, that no repartimiento was to be made amongst the landowners. Now, the repartimiento was very popular amongst the conquistadors. It was literally one of the chief reasons they engaged in conquest. But by the 1520s, the Spanish crown had decided that it wanted to rein in the power of the numerous quasi-fiefdoms which were now populating the Americas. And it was beginning to realize that the brutal treatment of natives on the encomiendas were beginning to destroy as much of the wealth of the Americas as had been gained by the initial conquest. No, at any rate, uh, with his one-year contract in hand, Ayon ordered Cajo to sail again in 1525. This time, Cajo sailed all the way to the outer banks of present-day North Carolina before moving on to Chesapeake Bay and then returning back along the coast. Upon his arrival in Cuba, where by that time Ayon was the governor, um, he reported uh, that the best place for settlement would be at the St. John's River in, in modern-day South Carolina. Uh, so in the next year, 1526, Ion outfitted six ships with 500 colonists, which included, and I said South Carolina, I meant Florida, including women, children, and African slaves. They founded the colony of San Miguel de Guadalupe. This is the first European colony in North America. Uh, it technically landed a bit south of the St. John's River, uh, probably on the, on the Georgia coast of Sapelo Sound. It didn't do so well. Uh, Vasquez de Ayon was in charge of the expedition. Uh, the colony arrived on the semi-tropical coastline in late summer. And mosquitoes basically brought death to a lot of the colonists until winter arrived, along with food shortages and starvation. And it's likely that the local population fled when the Spaniards first arrived, probably as a result of uh, Spanish demands for tribute. And so no help came that first year for the colony from the indigenous population. Now, Governor Ayon became ill and died of some disease, uh, quite possibly malaria or yellow fever uh, from the mosquitoes. This leads to mutiny and executions, and the colony began to collapse in upon itself. Just six months after arriving, fewer than 150 of the original 500 colonists returned to Santo Domingo. Now, this is an abject failure, and the abject failure to colonize North America was not helped by the fact that Spain was kind of rushing things. In fact, by the 1520s, Spain was actually feeling increasing pressure from France in the colonization of North America. Now, we'll be 
talking a lot more about the French Atlantic uh, in another episode. Really, that's though a story for another day. We, for now, will move on from the failure of Ion to the failures of Penfilo de Narvaez. Now, you probably remember the name Penfilo de Narvaez, if you're a fan of this podcast, from our last couple of episodes. Narvaez's main claim to fame up to this point was that he has lost his eye trying to stop Cortez during the conquest of Mexico. But depth perception be damned, Narvaez was not done trying to make a name for himself. By 1526, he was finalizing preparations to lead a fleet of five vessels and 600 soldiers to La Florida. Now, Narvaez went to Cuba in order to bolster his forces, uh, but he faced disaster. He was delayed for months due to a hurricane and... Uh, after landing in Cuba, and when he finally left for La Florida, uh, because of that hurricane, he now only had four ships and 300 soldiers. Um, regardless of the uh, desertions and everything, Narvaez's army landed on Florida's west coast, somewhere north of Tampa Bay, in April of 1528. This proved to be an undesirable landing spot. It was in Calusa territory, and they had plenty of bad memories from their encounters with Juan Ponce de Leon. As such, the Narvaez expedition had a lot of trouble getting food from the locals. This was a serious problem, which could not be remedied, even by the 42 horses that Narvaez had fought, uh, had brought to Florida. Those 42 horses were considered, quote-unquote, worthless, unquote, uh, by the Spaniards. I don't know if they were sick or old, but... It's more likely, in fact, that Florida's swampy terrain rendered the horses worthless as far as conquest was concerned. At any rate, Narvaez ultimately decided to disembark from the swamps uh, of Florida. He divided his army. He sent 100 men in ships north. Uh, They soon became dissatisfied and sailed to Veracruz. Narvaez led the remainder of his force inland. They set up camp in a deserted village in a massive house. And afterwards, Narvaez crossed the Suwanee River. He was received in peace in a, another town of Timucua Indians. But those natives quickly deserted that town in the night. Now, with that said, maybe 200,000 Timacuas occupied northern Florida from the Gulf Coast to the Atlantic. And, and they lived in more than 30 small agrarian Mississippian chiefdoms. They were never united by what archaeologists today would call a paramount chief, like uh, other Mississippian peoples. Um, But similarly to other Mississippian peoples, they lived in uh, matrilineal clans, and the highest-ranking clan of the Timaqua was the White Deer Clan. Uh, The White Deer Clan provided hereditary chiefs, both male and female, who ruled these chiefdoms. Um, Narvaez and his family stayed in Timaqua for several weeks. Um... But eventually, his army managed to capture four Apalachee Indians who lived in the Florida Panhandle and were well-known throughout the Southeast as a prosperous and fearless trading people. The Apalachee economic networks stretched throughout the Southeast, as far north as the Great Lakes. However, similar to the Timaqua, the Apalachee did not also seem to have a paramount chief. What they did have, however, was, quote, the rich city of Ayut, unquote, which Narvaez learned about from his four captives. He promptly set about to loot and burn 
the town down to the ground. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca was one of the conquistadors in Norvaez's army, and he wrote about what happened when the Spaniards approached the Appalachian. Quote, We reached a lake very difficult to cross, the water reaching to the chest. Once in the middle of it, a number of Appalachia assailed us from behind trees that concealed them, and they began to shower arrows upon us so that many men and horses were wounded. Most horsemen began to leave in secret, hoping to save themselves, forsaking the governor and the sick. Fifty, sold, unquote. Fifty soldiers were killed. Many more were wounded. Narvaez was forced to order a retreat to the coast, where the army encamped and began construction of five barges, which were covered with horsehide and complete with sail and oars, and thought about escape back to uh, Cuba. With the help of a makeshift forge consisting of uh, log and hide bellows that was used to melt armor and other metals into nails and tools, the work on the barges began. And on each third day, uh, a horse was killed that provided food for the men. Now, much has been made of indigenous people using all parts of the buffalo, which was often true. But in this case, it was the Spaniards who were using all parts of the horse. Horse hides were used in the construction of the boats. Ropes were made from horse hair. Well, in September 1528, the army set sail. But Narvaez encountered misfortune once again. Winds took uh, his ships west, not south, and they landed along the coast where they were greeted by hostile, enraged Appalachians. On the water... Terrible storms, sickness, and starvation took the lives of many, including that of the governor, Penfilo de Narvaez. Ultimately, 80 men washed ashore along the coast of present-day Texas near Galveston Island, and during the next year, only a dozen of those men survived the death and starvation that followed. Those dozen were captured and taken inland, and they included a certain Alvar Nunez, Cabeza de Vaca. Now, Narvaez's expedition, like many others in North America, was an utter failure. But with that said, a few men, including Alvar Nunez, Cabeza de Vaca, did survive. And, and the story of Cabeza de Vaca is incredible. Over the next five years, Alvar Nunez was tr captured, traded, and ultimately befriended as a respected medicine man by various tribes of Karankawas, Tonkawas, and Kuahuiltecans, apologies if I've pronounced that incorrectly, who lived along the modern-day Gulf Coast of Texas. Now, with that said, going back a bit, the remaining dozen survivors of the Narvaez expedition were soon further reduced by starvation to only four men. Cabeza de Vaca, Andres Durantes, Alonso de Castillo Maldonado, and Esteban, who was not given a last name in Spanish texts because he was a Moroccan enslaved by the Spaniards before he was enslaved on the coast of Texas. Anyway, Held as they were by the impoverished Han-speaking peoples on a barrier island off the coast of Texas, things really weren't going so well for Cabeza de Vaca and his companions. It was a place where three months out of the year, 
the people who lived on the island ate nothing but oysters and, quote, drink very bad water, unquote. Not to mention there was a lack of firewood, quote, but a great abundance of mosquitoes, unquote. It really does sound dreadful. Anyway, it was about that time when Cabeza de Vaca was informed by his captors that, quote, they wanted to make us medicine men without any examination or asking for our diplomas, unquote. Alvar Nunez laughed this off. He claimed that they did not know how to heal people. Well, the Isle of Misfortune, uh, which is what Cabeza called the, called the barrier island on which he was, he was being held uh, by the Han peoples. Well, anyway, those people stopped feeding Cabeza de Vaca and the other three men until they started acting like a doctor then. Cabeza de Vaca's captors reassured him as well that everyone knew simple cures. And since Cabeza de Vaca was so much wiser than the average person, well, certainly he must have powerful cures and medicine inside of him. Well, eventually, Cabeza de Vaca and his friends became hungry enough that they found healing powers inside of them, and they began treating the sick with the following process. Quote, they would, quote, make the sign of the cross over the sick while breathing on them, recite a Pater Noster and Ave Maria, and pray to God, our Lord, as well as we could to give them good health and inspire them to treat us well. Unquote. Well, whether they worked through prayer or placebo, Cabeza was a successful enough doctor and uh, that he and his companions were treated well, af- well, pretty much uh, afterwards. Still, life on the Isle of Misfortune uh, off the coast of Texas was difficult. Days passed sometimes without food. And after a time, Alvar Nunez and his companions, quote, could no longer bear the life they were forced to lead, unquote. Uh, And this is quoting Cabeza, of course. Among many other miseries, I had to pull the edible roots out of the water from among the canes where they were buried in the ground, which made my fingers so tender that the mere touch of a straw caused them to bleed. The reeds would cut me all over because many of them were broken. I had to walk through them. This is why I made an effort to join the other Indians, unquote. Cabeza de Vaca and his companions thus made their way about 40 or 50 leagues inland. They made their way by trade. Uh, now that the four men had made a place for themselves in this uh, new society, quote, this trade suited me because it gave me the freedom to go as I pleased. I was not bound to do anything. I was no longer a slave. Wherever I went, they treated me well and fed me for the sake of my merchandise, unquote. The four men worked as medicine men and merchants in the region of what is now San Antonio and Austin before heading northwards on the Colorado River and then on to present-day Midland, Pecos, Carlsbad, and El Paso before they finally made their way south to Culiacan, Guadalajara, and ultimately, in January of 1536, the four companions walked into Mexico City eight years after being first stranded on the coast. Along the way, besides meeting the Han-speaking tribes of uh, what Cabeza de Vaca called the, the Isle of Misfortune, they met Cavoque-speaking peoples who also lived on the coast. In Texas, there were also Cherucos, Dengues, Mendicons, 
and Quivinis. Quote, all of them have houses and villages and speak different languages, unquote. When the men finally returned, they were sat down and interviewed. This report, however, has been lost to history. With that said, Cabeza de Vaca dreamed of becoming a great adelantado after that of La Florida. He did not receive that contract, but believe it or not, his tale is not finished. Cabeza de Vaca did become the adelantado of the Rio de la Plata region in what is now modern Argentina and Paraguay. We're going to be talking about him more two episodes from now when we conclude this series and talk about his return to the new world as a governor. As for us, we're going to be moving on to the guy who did get the next contract to conquer Florida, one of the most fearsome villains of all time. His name is Hernando de Soto. And as a fortunate consequence of my educational background, I know an awful lot about him thanks to the fact that Dr. Charles Hudson was a University of Georgia professor, and I took a class on the rise and fall of Mississippian chiefdoms that was taught by uh, one of his disciples, basically. For the life of me, I cannot remember his name. He was such an excellent teacher. I think he was a graduate student at any rate, Uh, so he's not with the department anymore. Uh, I'm sure he graduated years ago. Anyway, uh, Charles Hudson devoted 20 years of his life researching the DeSoto expedition. Uh, Thanks to him, we know an awful lot about it, especially in comparison to the expeditions of Narvaez and Ponce de Leon, notably more murky uh, is what we have about them. But with that said, despite those failures of Narvaez and Ponce de Leon and everybody else, La Florida was a very interesting place to would-be Spanish conquistadors. Tales of Mexican treasure in 1521 were joined by those of Inca treasure stolen by Pizarro in 1532. We'll be getting to that next episode. But suffice to say for now, the conquest of the Incas reignited the passions of Spaniards eager to seek gold and silver in the Americas. The wealth generated by the conquests of Mexico and Peru were so extreme, in fact, that thousands of more prospective conquistadors left Spain for the Americas after both of these conquests to try and replicate their success. Now, with that said, Hernando de Soto was not one of those men. De Soto was not an inexperienced would-be conquistador before his attempt at La Florida. He was already wealthy in 1536 when he returned to Spain after the successful conquest of Peru. In fact, he will play a large role in our next episode, since he was one of Pizarro's chief captains. But despite his role in that conquest, he remained unsatisfied. De Soto had a very different idea of what his role and power should be after the conquest than the Pizarro brothers had, and so he attempted to join in on the subsequent conquest of Chile as an investor. He was rejected by the leader of that expedition. More on that in two episodes from now. But for now, suffice to say... De Soto was very power-hungry, very successful as a conquistador, and very wealthy. De Soto's career, in fact, didn't even begin in Peru. Before participating in the conquest there, De Soto participated in the conquest of Nicaragua and was one of the wealthiest men in Central America before uh, the conquest of Peru. In small part, he got this wealth by mining uh, precious metals, in a much more large part, 
he got that wealth by the brutal enslavement of local indigenous peoples. If you remember, in fact, part three of the conquest of the Americas, way back when that son of a bitch Pedrarius took over Panama, well, de Soto was married to Pedrarius's daughter, and at any rate, when Hernan de Soto signed on with Ponce de Leon as, uh, as con in the conquest of Peru, uh, excuse, Ponce de Leon, excuse me, um, he, he signed up for the conquest uh, of Peru with, uh, with Pizarro. Anyway, uh, I apologize for my, uh, I can't read today, guys. Um, despite, uh, anyway, uh, I'm, we're just gonna go ahead. I, I tell you all of that, uh, to show you that Hernan de Soto was well regarded in Spain by the 1530s. He was a twice successful conquistador. He had not achieved the title of Adelantado, though, and so, uh, like I said, he went uh, to Spain in 1536 to petition the king. His real dream wasn't even La Florida. He wanted Panama and permission to explore the South Sea. Philip instead, though, gave him governorship of Cuba and permission to colonize La Florida for the next four years. De Soto promptly went about gathering a fleet of seven ships, around 620 Spanish and Portuguese volunteers, so that included mixed-raced Africans, uh, he also had 237 horses, around the same number of pigs, and all other necessary supplies for an extended expedition into North America. And all of this was basically paid for by de Soto's successful looting of Peru. And subsequently, he stopped in Cuba and looted that same treasure again, this time from his partner, uh, who is uh, Hernan Ponce de Leon, excuse me. Uh, I say that because I want you to know how much of a son of a bitch Hernando de Soto was. Okay, I should say, he joined on with Hernan Ponce de Leon onto Pizarro's expedition. And also, Hernando de Soto is the sort of son of a bitch who is the sort of person who steals from his friends and business partners. Uh, in addition to the in addition to being the sort of person who burns his enemies alive or feeds them dogs, I should say. Anyway, more about this next episode. But Hernan Ponce de Leon and Hernando de Soto were business partners through Nicaragua and Peru. After the conquest of the Inca, Ponce de Leon liquidated half of the treasure and basically retired to Cuba. Well, when de Soto showed up, he literally used his power as governor to threaten and bully Ponce de Leon into giving that treasure back to de Soto. Uh, de Soto, uh, or excuse me, Ponce de Leon then sailed back to Spain to plead his case to the emperor personally, and de Soto, meanwhile, used this stolen wealth to finance his planned expedition to La Florida. Now, as a brief aside, you might be wondering if the emperor is concerned about this sort of thing. Well, he was actually more concerned at the time that a war might erupt between de Soto and the Mexican viceroy Menendez, who also wanted to go north. More on that soon. But suffice to say, there was a lot of action going on uh, in North America by various conquistadors in the Caribbean and Mexico. And everywhere else is enough of a clusterfuck that in the Spanish government in 1539, basically actually send out letters to de Soto and Viceroy Menendez, minding them, don't go to war with each other like Cortez and Narvaez had done. Now, so with that said, uh, de Soto's expedition began in 1539 when de Soto arrived in Cuba and firmly within Spain's 
what, what is known as Spain's golden century. Now, despite the anarchy within the, the Spanish Empire, despite the failures in La Florida previous to De Soto, nobody doubted that uh, another Tenochtitlan or another Cuzco would be found, uh, or either in or beyond the Appalachian Mountains. By this time, Spanish incursions into North America were happening at multiple places at once, in fact. In the West, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado began to explore North America at the same time as De Soto. And in fact, at one point, these two expeditions were within 300 miles of one another. At the same time, uh, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo became the first European to sail along uh, Florida's coast, or California's coast. He sailed from Mexico into the Pacific and plotted the bays of San Diego and San Francisco. I say that because in 1539, everyone expected De Soto to succeed. His expedition, in fact, remains well-known today. Uh, the, one of the most well-known, perhaps, of all the conquistadors, and certainly the most well-known in North America. The nature of conquest, though, is a tricky thing. The reason we know so much about the De Soto Entrada is not because uh, it was successful or anything. It's because of a brilliant combination of history and archaeology. In fact, if I may uh, once again bring up my alma mater to uh, brag just for a moment, uh, Charles Hudson, a revered archaeologist, and some of his colleagues from the University of Georgia spent about 20 years looking for clues. They matched archaeological finds with historical records in order to retrace the steps of Hernando de Soto and his army. Hudson matched fragments of olive jars, Mexican redware, iron-wrought nails, glass beads, lead shot, and other tiny artifacts to primary source documents from the expedition, like Soto scribe Rodrigo Rangel, the royal notary Luis Fernandez de Biedma, and other documents from the expeditions, uh, accountant and notes left from another conquistador, uh, a Portuguese officer who signed his notes, the gentleman from Elvis. Uh, anyway, the result of Hudson's lifelong labor is that we have both a really, really good idea of where the expedition went, and in addition, an eye-opening look into the Mississippian world. Well, anyway, how about them bulldogs? Well, the full expedition included hundreds of farm animals, which included 200 hogs whose uh, descendants have become endemic to the southeast. And, and, and there was 227 horses, uh, 620 soldiers, eight priests, and these were all uh, who were intent on converting the pagans to Christianity. Uh, at any rate, De Soto entered a bay on the west coast of Florida on May 25th. 1539, and his men quickly encountered a group of Indians. Now, the Adelantado promptly claimed this quote-unquote vacant land, quote-unquote, uh, of La Florida for Spain on June the 3rd. Of course, since we've already mentioned that he encountered a group of Indians, the land was not vacant far from it. Uh, around the same time De Soto's ships entered the harbor, in fact, the natives spotted the ships, and by the time De Soto was unloading his army of men and animals onto Florida's beaches, a number of fires were lit up along the uh, Florida coast. This was a smoke uh, warning, a smoke signal that served as a warning to all local people. And in fact, this was the reason why one Juan Ortiz, more on him later, 
will be able to make his way to the coast. Now, at any rate, the army landed near a small village of eight houses called Ozita. Ozita was one of many such small villages near modern Tampa Bay, uh, which archaeologists call the safety harbor culture. These people lived on the periphery of Mississippian society. In some ways, they were like Mississippian peoples, and in some ways, they were not. They built mounds. They buried the remains of their dead in those mounds, like Mississippian people. They made pottery with the same artistic motifs as Mississippian people, albeit not as well made. But the Safety Harbor culture did not farm maize, and nor did it practice warfare in the Mississippian way, with triangular stone arrowheads in organized raiding parties, by the way. In fact, in many ways, the people of Safety Harbor and other groups in Florida, they lived in fear, not just of the Spaniards, but specifically of the Appalachian. This was that powerful Mississippian group who lived in northwest Florida and who basically ended the Narvaez expedition. Their raids, in addition, sometimes went deep into the southern reaches of the Florida Peninsula. Now, in early skirmishes against Mississippian peoples, DeSoto and his men learned to be very wary. Mississippian warriors were nimble. They knew the land well, and they could fire three to four arrows in the time it would take a Spanish crossbowman to load, aim, and fire his weapon once. They fought also in motion. They ran from side to side. Yet, despite firing arrows in while running, their aim was often true. When DeSoto ordered one of his captains, Juan Rodriguez Lobilla, to take 50 footmen to find a village and capture some people, the Spaniards quickly learned the lesson that without horses, they had little advantage over the natives. Six of Lobillo's men were wounded by arrows, and one subsequently died as they were harassed. Now, at any rate, in the days before sending out Lobillo's expedition, De Soto also sent an indigenous interpreter to establish contact with the local Indians, but that man never returned. Imagine that. Uh, De Soto had two other native interpreters, and those two men escaped during the night of June the 3rd. So from a perspective inter of interpreters, things were not going so well. The day after De Soto ordered Lobillo's expedition, however, he also sent off Baltazar de, Galle de, de Gallegos in another direction, with uh, 40 horsemen, 80 footmen, and the last remaining Indian guide to also go find some villages and capture people. Well, that guide led Gallegos in circles until eventually the Spaniards got suspicious, threatened to kill that guide, and finally got back on track. They were headed to what they thought was gold. Orotiz. Orotiz. The natives all knew that word. Gallegos and his men went ahead with hearts full of hope that oro, oro, the Spanish word for gold, was what the Indians were talking about. Instead, Gallegos and his party met a group of 20 Indians or so, and immediately one of his horsemen charged and lanced one of those 20 men through. The others dispersed, except for one man. He cried out, Sevilla, Sevilla. His Spanish was rusty, so he didn't remember many words other than the name of his hometown. His name, though, was Juan Ortiz. Ortiz was the survivor from the Narvaez expedition who had been since living amongst the Florida natives for 10 years. Ortiz was indistinguishable from the other Indians. He was deeply tanned by the sun, 
He was dressed as the Indians were dressed, and he carried a bow and arrow. His arms were tattooed, and he had not spoken Spanish for twelve years. Now he spoke it haltingly, and it was more than four days before he ceased mixing Indian words into his Spanish and gradually regained his fluency. It was then his story began to unfold. Not only was Ortiz a citizen of Seville, he was the son of a noble house who had come to La Florida with Narvaez before he was captured by the chief of Ozita. During his captivity, Ortiz performed the most menial tasks. He carried water and firewood. When the chief became particularly irritable, he would sometimes make Ortiz run back and forth across the plaza of the town, of the town for long periods of time. And if Ortiz ever tried to stop running during that time, the chief's men would shoot arrows at him. Ortiz said his suffering was so great that he often envied his companions who had been killed on the beach, whereas he'd been captured. Finally, one day the chief decided to put Ortiz to death by torture. The chief ordered a great fire to be built in the plaza, and when it was reduced to coals, he ordered Ortiz to be suspended on a grill and literally barbecued three feet over the coals. Ortiz began to scream as his hands and feet were tied to the grill. And when that happened, the wife and daughters of the chief begged that his life be spared. They argued that Ortiz had not been with those who had perpetrated the crimes against Chief Ozita, and how could a single man pose a threat anyway? Chief Ozita was persuaded and let Ortiz down, by which point he'd already been burned by the coal so badly that he had huge blisters on his body. And in fact, his body became raw and bloody. Later, he was infected with maggots. One entire side of his body, I should say, was a solid scar. Uh, as the chief's, uh, and it was the chief's wife and daughters who nursed him back to health using herbal remedies. When Ortiz recovered his health, he was given a job of guarding the temple at night. Now, cadavers were stored in the temple. And so wolves and other scavengers sometimes came at night to eat those remains. The chief warned Ortiz when he was given the job that if even a part of a body was devoured by an animal, he would be roasted alive. So the chief gave Ortiz some javelins so he could use against scavengers and put him at the task. One night, Ortiz dozed off while on watch and woke to the sound of some boards being toppled. He thought at that moment he was as good as dead, because a wolf had entered the temple and was dragging out the body of the son of one of the principal men in the town. Ortiz followed the trail for a distance until he heard the sound of an animal gnawing on bones, and he threw a javelin in the darkness. It was too dark to see if he had hit his mark, but he was somewhat encouraged because he did not hear the wolf flee, and also because his throwing hand was quote-unquote salty, this apparently being a good sign when one had to make a throw in the dark, apparently. Ortiz returned to the temple to pray and waited for the sun to rise in the first light. And he became depressed when he saw the boy's body was missing. But later, the wolf was found dead from Ortiz's lucky throw, or salty throw, if you please. And the chief and the people of uh, the town uh, put Ortiz... Uh, in a hot, they, they thought better of him. Years passed after this incident, and by that point, Ortiz had given up hope of ever seeing Spaniards again. 
by then, he was not living uh, in the uh, village of uh, Ozita. He was in the village of Mokozo, which was an enemy of Ozita. And when Ortiz received word from Mokozo, the chief, that Spanish ships had been sighted in Tampa Bay, well, Ortiz said goodbye to his friends and went to see those ships. And Anyway, needless to say, De Soto and his men were delighted to have found Ortiz. In him, they found a trusty translator and guide. And in fact, Ortiz spoke both the languages of Zuzita and the town of Mocozo, and that let De Soto make real progress in his colonization attempts. Further, those languages were Muscogean. And since Muscogean-speaking peoples populated vast stretches of the southeast, Ortiz could actually translate a, in a fairly, in a large number of places, I should say. Not all Muscogean languages were mutually intelligible, but regardless, a, a lot of them were. Now, De Soto gave Ortiz European clothing, but in fact, Ortiz was so used to native clothing, it took him another 20 days before he was comfortable being fully dressed with a suit of fine black cloth, which De Soto gave Ortiz to wear in the hot Florida sun. Anyway, on June 7th, De Soto met Chief Mikozo, who complained about his own political problems with Ozita, and not long after that, De Soto ordered Vasco Porcayo to lead a contingent to the town of Ozita because they had learned through Ortiz that many Indians were gathering there. Were gathering there. When Porcayo's contingent arrived, they found the Indians of Ozita had fled. Regardless, Porcayo torched the empty village and threw the Indian guide they were following to the dogs for not having led them there quickly enough. And this is the first instance of a practice, which is feeding living human beings to dogs that uh, apparently occurred routinely on the DeSoto Entrada. The Spaniards mention it explicitly only occasionally, but... Uh, Anyway, this was apparently a, a regular occurrence. Anyway, while Porcayo and his men were away, De Soto sent an Indian messenger out to another chief. This messenger did not return, and so De Soto ordered a woman he had captured to be thrown to the dogs. The woman's crime was that she had encouraged the messenger not to return, apparently. Besides, uh, as a cruel and unusual punishment, um, uh, in addition, I should say, uh, Indians were sometimes fed to the dogs of the DeSoto uh, expedition just because the army was short on food. Now, at any rate, DeSoto learned one thing very, for certain very quickly, and that's this. Tampa Bay was far too barren uh, for, for, uh, for exploitation. And essentially, uh, this meant there were no food-producing native societies for him to exploit, like I said, Nobody was growing corn here. The sandy soils around Tampa Bay, and in fact much of South Florida, were poorly drained, very acidic, and low in fertility. And hoping to find uh, a, a, uh, a farming society, essentially, DeSoto sent a captain with 80 horsemen and 100 footmen farther inland to seek out the chief Urakaxi, where uh, the latest native interpreter had gone but had not returned. Now, in the meantime, with uh, this contingent gone, De Soto and the remaining Spaniards were by now at war with Ozita and his people. Ozita's warriors set up a camp on an island uh, nearby, and the, nearby the Spaniards' camp, I should say. And when Juan Juan de Anasco 
and some foot soldiers went in the ship's uh, boats along the shore to disperse the warriors, a, a battle ensued. Añasco used a swivel gun to kill ten Indians. A, but although he did this, a similar number of casualties were inflicted on the Spaniards when they attempted to land, and ultimately the conquistadors were unable to dislodge the warriors from the island. Ultimately, uh, de Soto spent another detachment of horsemen to disperse the Indians. Only they found out that by the time they arrived, the Indians were already gone. Now, Another Spaniard, one Vasco Porcayo, who was one of the principal men on the expedition, went about on himself with his men on a slave hunting expedition, and he experienced similar failure. At one point, Porcayo's horse slipped and fell in the mud. This left Porcayo trapped in a swamp and nearly drowned since his leg was under his horse and he was in full metal armor and his men were afraid they would end up in the same predicament. Ultimately, that uh, little sortie captured a few women, and Vasco Porcayo was in a dark mood when he returned. He returned to camp, babbling the names of Indian chiefs, apparently, which he interspersed swear words between them, and repeated many obscenities on his way back to camp before exchanging angry words with DeSoto, venting out his frustration about the uncertain nature of the land, his inability to capture slaves, and his decision, which was that he was going back to Cuba with his slaves and his servants. He did leave the food he brought for the expedition and a herd of war dogs. And he also promised to give assistance to DeSoto in the future, should it be necessary. But with that said, uh, Vasco Porcayo was then back off to Cuba. Uh, his son, with that said, Gomez Suarez de Figueroa, whose mother was indigenous, remained with the expedition. At, at any rate. The expedition uh, De Soto sent out to find the town of Uraparacaxi found that that town was abandoned. It was later, however, that they managed to meet the 30, me 30 men with whom the chief sent to uh, meet with the Spaniards and basically ask, uh, you know, what the fuck do you guys want? Uh, the captain uh, who met with those men, named uh, whose name was Galactic, Galagos, replied that the Spanish wanted to find a rich land, because of course that's what he said. Well, upon hearing this, the Indians of Uraparacaxi informed Galagos about Ocale, a land of fabulous wealth, a land so fabulously wealthy. In fact, Galagos ordered the 30 men captured and put in chains, just in case they were lying, is the reason he gave. Okay. Well, Galagos then sent letters to De Soto with eight horsemen. One letter to be read in private, that included his honest opinions, and one to be read in public, wherein every single wonderful thing the now 30 captives told Galagos about Ocale was included. Uh, this included uh, stories about herds of deer and turkeys. There were towns that were filled with traders with gold, silver, and pearls. In fact, the people of Florida did have some gold and silver. Unfortunately for the dreams of the conquistadors, the gold and silver in Florida in 1541 had been gotten by Indians from dead Spaniards. Like, say, for example, from members of the Narvaez expedition, for instance, or from the various shipwrecks that had occurred over the six decades since 1492. The Spaniards were so lusty for this metal, though, they had no idea that the gold they were looking for was sort of already their own. Well, we don't know much about 
chief or a paracoxy, except, uh, uh, and, and that's because uh, Urapaxi, we're not really sure if that's a name or a title. Eri is the Timakwan word for is the Timakwan for word for war, and Paracusi is the Timakwan uh, 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 title. Uh, excuse me, word for chief. So Uraparakaxi may simply be uh, a, a bit of a mistranslation for a Timakwan title meaning war chief. But regardless, Uraparakaxi and his people had access to good agricultural soil, and as such, they were in a dominant position to the uh, in, in to the people of, of Tampa Bay, for example. Because the agricultural surpluses, which Uraparakaxi controlled, underwrote the organization of an army. And this is part of why Mississippian culture had spread so rapidly throughout the southeastern United States, was basically uh, the desire for chiefs to become militarily powerful. Um, anyway, DeSoto tried to make Uraparakaxi appear before him, but the, the man just refused to come out from the swamps. And well... Eventually, DeSoto and his men basically just had to give up trying to find uh, Uraparakaxi and uh, subduing his people. On July 23rd, they simply abandoned the region and went north. Uh, with that said, they were forced to uh, fight and pillage their way uh, towards Ocale, which is near modern-day Tallahassee, Florida. On July 26th, they made their way to the Swamp of Ocale. Now, why they went right into the swamp is unclear exactly. It's likely, however, that the enslaved Floridians, forced to work as guides for DeSoto, simply tricked the army into taking a bad route through the swamp, however. And I, I say this because while traveling through the swamp, DeSoto threw four guides to the dogs before a fifth guide led him onto a path he liked, with only chest-deep water on the way uh, through the swamp uh, uh, on their way to the Withlacoochee River. Which is on the was on the other side on the other side of that river uh, uh, was where the principal towns of the Ocali people were. Now, in the swamp, DeSoto and the Spaniards faced only a single minor ambush, which was two native archers that shot a few arrows at them before withdrawing. Uh, then, when they f uh, found the closest Ocali towns to the swamp, they found that they were abandoned. But at least there was ample corn available from the perspective of the conquistadors. DeSoto sent out a message to the chief of Ocale, and as the rear guard of the army caught up uh, and pity to them, they were just as eager to get to the food as DeSoto and the front part of the army, but hostile Ocales hounded the rear guard of the army as they went through the swamp. Several men ended up wounded, a crossbowman named Mendoza was killed uh, before the army reunited. Uh, but the chief of Ocale never appeared and merely reported this back to the Spaniards, which, according to the Portuguese conquistador Elvas, who recorded the words of the Ocale chief, well, at least the sentiments, uh, I'm sure the exact phrasing was somewhat different. Quote, I have long since learned who you Castilians are through others of you who came years ago to my land, and they already know what your customs and behaviors are like. To me... You are professional vagabonds who wander from place to place, gaining your livelihood by robbing, sacking, and murdering people who have given you no offense. I want no manner of friendship or peace with people such as you, but instead prefer mortal and perpetual enmity. Granted that you are as valiant as you boast of being, but I have no fear of you since neither 
I, nor my vassals, consider ourselves inferior to you in valor. And to prove our gallantry, I promise to maintain war upon you so long as you wish to remain in my province, not by fighting in the open, although I could do so, but by ambushing and waylaying you whenever you are off guard. And I thereby notify and advise you to protect yourselves and act cautiously with me and my people. For I have commanded my vassals to bring me two Christian heads weekly, this number and no more. I shall be content to behead only two of you each week, since I can thus slay all of you within a few years. For even though you may colonize and settle, you cannot perpetuate yourselves, because you have not brought women to produce children and pass your generation forward." Unquote. De Soto received no further communications from the chief of Ocale, and although his men captured a few slaves there, and managed to steal three months' worth of food for the army. The army, uh, De Soto basically failed several times at further attempts of communicating with this mysterious chief during the, uh, while they were camped there. In fact, at Ocale, the Spaniards were afraid to venture more than 100 yards from the camp out of fear of being attacked, and just as the chief promised, several Spaniards were killed, and at night... After they were buried by their comrades, Ocales would come and dig up the bodies and escape into the night so that they could cut the dead into pieces and hang up the body parts so that in the morning the Spanish would wake up to birds eating their dead comrades. Well, fuck this, said basically everyone in the expedition. The army collected all the food they could, around three months' worth, as I mentioned, and they left. De Soto sent a contingent eastward at first to the town of Aquera, but the people who lived there, near modern-day Lake Weir and Lake Griffin, killed three Spanish soldiers and a horse and wounded several others uh, in two attacks, and that was basically all the interest that De Soto had going in east. Instead, he turned north to Appalachie. Seven days' travel from Ocale, and which reportedly abounded in corn. The army departed for those greener pastures on August 11th. On the 12th, they arrived at the town of Potano, on the western side of Orange Lake, and which was large enough and, considered, uh, and possessed considerable power and influence over the region that Europeans actually used the word uh, Potano to refer to all Indians living in present-day Alchua County uh, by the late 16th century. Uh, on the on August 13th, the army reached Utanamachora, which near present-day Gainesville, and then from there they went to the village of Alachua the next day. At Alachua, De Soto finally began to see some success as far as conquering Florida goes, anyway. One conquistador, a man named Juan de Añasco, captured about 30 men and women as slaves. And at night after that occurrence, the chief of that town appeared, wishing to barter for his people, saying he would stay and make sure food and guides were given to the Spaniards. Later, some warriors of Alachua surrounded the camp and attacked the men guarding the chief, who used the attack to escape, but only temporarily. At De Soto's command, one of the best war dogs, Bruto, sprang forward, he ran past several other Indians, grabbed the chief, bit his arm, and as he tackled the man, held him in place until the Spaniards came to get him. Now, 
Despite this victory, however, DeSoto continued on. He went along the Itatakitni River to the town of Agua Calacan. The inhabitants there fled, but some of the conquistadors managed to find a man and a woman who led them to a hidden supply of food, and that's where they found 17 more Indians who were also captured. And one of these people was the daughter of the chief of Agua, Agua Cal... <laughs> Aguacalican. I apologize, that is a tough one for me to say. Aguacalican. Sorry, I should have done that before we uh, started. The Apalaches called the people of Aguacalican the Ustega. And the Timaquan-speaking Indians of the east coast of Florida called them the Hustaqua. We don't really know much about them today, but Aguacalican appears to have been allied with four other towns. Uriutina, Napatuka and Uzachile. But these four towns, rather than being fully Mississippian, I should say, that is with one chief ruling as paramount over all four cities, the chiefs of these towns were equals, it appears. Or if they were not, then whatever differences escaped Spanish notice. De Soto, regardless, was able to capture the chief of Aguacalacan after he came to barter for his people's release. And after that, and despite many threats, De Soto and the Spaniards received a mainly peaceful reception at the other towns of the Ustega people. But neither was the leadership structure of the Ustega gone. On September 15th, the army encamped at the house of the chief of Napatuca in the general vicinity of present-day Live Oak, Florida. That chief was secretly planning an ambush and intended to execute the Spaniards from DeSoto on down. His plan might even have worked, but when he told the native interpreters who worked for the Spaniards, offering them wives and guides to return them safely back home if they would help in the surprise attack, which was planned for when DeSoto was going to meet with the other chiefs of the Ustega towns, well, the chief of Napatuka assured those Ah, native inter those native interpreters working with the Spaniards, that all of this, this attack, would be very easily accomplished because the Spanish would be unprepared. Well, the natives working for De Soto's army weren't so sure about this. They said that Spaniards generally seem pretty prepared. And uh, they were, in fact, so in fear of what might happen they told Juan Ortiz of the plan. Juan Ortiz told De Soto, and De Soto ordered his captains to appear careless, but in reality be very, very ready for an attack. On the day of that attack, it was the Spaniards who ended up attacking before the Indians ever gave a signal. Just as around 400 warriors, armed with bows and arrows, some wearing regalia, took up positions within sight of the Spanish camp, Louis de Moscoso shouted a battle cry, and the horsemen rode out, lancing Indians as they went. The warriors, uh, be, you know, returned uh, and, and joined the combat. They targeted De Soto. His horse was struck dead with arrows. But in the end, the flat land around the battle allowed the horsemen free reign, and the Spaniards won the day. Thirty or forty natives were lanced. The others fled into the nearby forest. Many unfortunates fled into two lakes. They dove and swam from the shore where they remained out of reach from the Spaniards. One of those lakes was large enough to be surrounded completely by Spaniards. Some of the Ustega warriors who swam into the larger lake escaped, but those in the smaller lake 
remained until after midnight in the cold water, exhausted and treading water for 14 hours, until one by one they began to surrender. By daybreak, all but 12 of the men in the lake had surrendered. De Soto then sent enslaved men from Uraparacoxi to swim into the lake and bring back the remaining natives, who pulled the remaining half-drowned Ustega warriors to shore by their hair. When the battle was finally over, the Spaniards had, more, had 300 more captives from amongst uh, the, the natives, and amongst those captives were five or six Ustega chiefs. The Ustega, however, seemed unwilling to live a life of slavery. As soon as the opportunity presented itself, they revolted immediately. As soon as De Soto released the half-dozen chiefs from their chains, separating them from the commoners to try and persuade them to join him, one man sprang into action. He grabbed De Soto's collar and with a loud shout struck him with a powerful blow that knocked the captain backward, chair and all. Knocked the fuck out. That man then fell atop the unconscious De Soto to kill him with his bare hands, but was slain by De Soto's guards. De Soto's life was saved, but that shout had been a signal. All around the Spanish camp, prisoners grabbed swords, burning firebrands, pots of hot food, and tried to kill the nearest Spaniard. One Indian, quote, felled his master with a club and then commenced to beat him with his fists until his face were swollen. When the fallen men comrades came to his aid, the Indian seized a lance that was propped against a wall and climbed into a corn crib, shouting so loudly and defending the door of the corn crib in a way that none could enter, unquote. Finally, that man faced against the governor's nephew, Diego de Soto, armed with a crossbow. De Soto fired, the younger fired as the native threw his lance. The lance knocked De Soto to his knees, but glanced off his armored shoulder and it stood quivering in the ground, while the bolt lay in the chest of the now-dead Eustega. After the failed revolt, the army sought vengeance on both survivors and the nearby population of Napatuka. Some men began killing every Indian they could lay their hands on, mostly older men, cutting them down with halberds and pikes as if they were enemy warriors. Other conquistadors tied surrendering Eustegas to posts, and ordered them shot with arrows by Indians enslaved back in Tampa Bay. According to Spanish sources, only a few of De Soto's soldiers had no appetite for this sort of unrestricted slaughter, which, incidentally, indigenous people were often accused of perpetrating against Europeans. At the end of it all, besides practically every captured Indian person at Napatuca having been killed, several Spaniards were dead, many also were wounded, and De Soto lay unconscious for half an hour, bleeding from the face and mouth with two teeth missing. He looked as if he'd been struck with a club, not a fist. That's how hard he'd been punched in the face. For many days afterwards, he could eat nothing that needed to be chewed, perhaps with a bit more patience if most of the Indians had not been in chains. That revolt might very well have succeeded in finishing off the De Soto expedition. However, as things went, on September 23rd, the army departed Napatuca and traveled to the Suwanee River, where they encountered warriors from Uzachile, who warned the Spaniards not to cross the river. Well, the prized war dog Bruto did not heed that warning. That dog who could sort out individual enemies by scent alone, well, 
He escaped his handler, leapt into the water, and to, to go get Indians, and was promptly shot full of arrows in his head and chest until he was dead on the opposite bank. Uh, this was apparently a big tragedy to the Spaniards, but with that aside, DeSoto crossed the river on the 25th with the aid of a constructed bridge of pine timbers, by which time the warriors of Uzachile were gone, and the town was likewise abandoned. DeSoto's men promptly pilfered the corn, beans, and pumpkins stored there, and for three days, until the people in the countryside began uh, organizing uh, small raiding parties in defense uh, and attacking the Spaniards in guerrilla fashion. Uh, ultimately, DeSoto organized two slaving parties in different directions and captured about 100 men and women, and then continued to travel on in all, on September 29th. On the next day, the 30th, DeSoto's army reached Appalachie Territory and the border town of Isle, which was taken by surprise, uh, completely by surprise, I should say. This is a sure sign that the Appalachie and their neighbors were not friendly. Uh, taken by surprise, the people of Isle fled into the surrounding woods the instant the Spaniards were sighted. Um, the army captured a group of women, and uh, with that said, shortly afterwards, the Spaniards began to realize Immediately, they were suddenly fighting against a much more organized military force than anything they'd seen so far in La Florida. On October 1st, the army departed Isle and faced resistance almost immediately as they proceeded through the territory of the Appalachie. A particularly swampy section of Florida, uh, which years before had stopped the Narvaez expedition in its tracks, I should say, uh, this is where horsemen were useless in the swamp, and the Appalachians were experts at fighting in their own terrain. They often surprised the army, and in the time it took a crossbowman or an arquebusier the time uh, to, to reload his weapon, an Appalachian warrior might have fired six or seven times. Appalachians were known to be able to fire their bow and then knock another arrow back uh, into their bowstring around the same time it took the first arrow to hit its target. And when the forest opened up, DeSoto and the Spaniards discovered that the Appalachians had built barriers against horses. They tied poles horizontally to trees, and only after these barriers were surpassed were the Spaniards finally able to take the offensive, riding down and lancing uh, Appalachian warriors that they encountered. Uh, for DeSoto and his men, the going was difficult, but when they reached the town of Ivatachuco on the nightfall of October 3rd, the only casualty uh, the, the, uh, since leaving Isle was the death of a horse. Still, capturing Ivatachuco, which was located on the banks of Lake Ayamonia, was hardly a success. In advance of the Spaniards, the Appalachians had burned the town down and retreated. So, the Spaniards took up residence in the ruins, and at night, the Appalachians shouted and fired arrows into the Spanish camp. And so the next day, the army traveled in a northwesterly direction, passing by Lake Catherine and Lake Joaquina, before coming to a small stream, which was probably a Burnt Mill Creek. There, the Appalachians made a stand. In the dense vegetation surrounding the flood plain of the stream, the Appalachians constructed fences and moored barricades against horses. The Spanish fought their way through these on foot, as Appalachian warriors fought with desperation. This was their last hope of stopping DeSoto and his army from reaching the larger towns of the Appalachian Paramount Chiefdom.
The Appalachians failed, were forced to retreat, and on the end of October 5th, De Soto and his army reached Calahoochee on the St. Mark's River. They captured two men and a woman there and found a large quantity of deer jerky. The army's guide escaped, however, and the new guide, who was an old man, led them about quite randomly on October 6th before being fed to the dogs. And afterwards, the Spaniards went about looking for slaves and food. The Appalachians, however, had fled their towns and took refuge in the swamps. De Soto was headed to the principal town of the chiefdom of the Appalachian called Anhayaka, near modern-day Tallahassee, Florida. And one conquistador, uh, Louis Hernandez de Biedma, estimated the distance the army had traveled from the original landing point at Tampa Bay to Anhayaka to have been 110 leagues, which, uh, if you're like me and you don't know what that means, that's about 330 miles. And this left Biedma's estimate off, actually, by only about 10 miles. Uh, De Soto's army, by the time it reached Anhayaka, had, re- had uh, traveled about 320 miles. The army spent the winter of 1539-1540 encamped at Anhayaka. And they spent their time building fortifications inside this principal town of the Appalachians. And uh, Anhayaka was far wealthier in food than other towns. I should say the surrounding homesteads and the towns under the paramount chief at Anhayaka gave surpluses in corn, pumpkins, beans, and, and, and wild foods. Even deer meat and fish were more abundant in Anhayaka. Not only was it the political capital of Appalachia, but it was the national granary as well, if you please. In the Mississippian world, food was stored in the Paramount Chief's village and was distributed as needed during the winter and for safekeeping. The chief's power, in fact, over individual villages relied as much on his ability to distribute food to a village in need as it did on his military power. Now, DeSoto sent three parters of, from Anhayaka to explore the country. Two went north and reported seeing uh, many villages and forested uh, land free of swamps. This was probably somewhere in South Georgia. The third party went east to the town of Oshette and to look for a trail to the south, to the coast. <clears throat> Excuse me. That scouting party followed a guide who absolutely refused to do a good job of being a slave. Um at least after the conquistadors reached Oshet and stole all the food there. Uh, after reaching that town, the guide took the scouting party in a circular pattern, which ran into thorns and brambles near the coast, near the, near the shore, but the Spaniards never actually saw the water because they kept going in circles instead. But this group of conquistadors was lost, and they didn't have any other guides, so they didn't feed the man to the dogs. But realizing perhaps that he was under suspicion, that guide proceeded to smack one Spaniard right in the mouth with a burning log from a fire. The other Spanish soldiers nearly killed him, but they remembered again, he's our only guide. They didn't kill him, and later that same night, the guide again attacked a conquistador. The guide got a good beating for his second attack. Just before dawn, the man attacked a conquistador for a third time, and in response he was beaten, shackled, and put under guard. When they resumed traveling the next day, the guide once again made a desperate attack against his captors. Uh, this time, the Spaniards attacked him with swords, lances, and a dog. The guide fought furiously, chained as he was, and even as he was held off the dog with his thumbs, keeping the animal's jaws forced open uh, until he was finally 
killed. I, I mean, and personally, I think it's worthy of some kind of remembrance. Now, I don't know that dude's name, of course, or even why exactly he would do what he did. Maybe he was from Ochette and saw the Spaniards steal food, and he knew that that meant people he knew would starve. Maybe when he took the Spaniards to Ochette, it wasn't abandoned. Maybe he saw assaults or rapes or murders, and he realized he couldn't help those conquistadors anymore, even if they were forcing him to. Hell, maybe he was just a little crazy and got mad at him. I, I, I don't know that it matters. I certainly couldn't guess from my perspective any more than I could guess at whatever that dude's name was. What I can tell you is that sometimes the ends justify the means, and what that dude did meant that DeSoto's army was slowed down just a little bit. And maybe some other people got to safety because of that delay. So there's a lot I don't know about this incident, but I do know one thing. That guide from Appalachia was a great dude of history. Well, anyway, after killing the great dude of history, the party of Spaniards were now worried that they might starve or be killed, since they were basically hopelessly lost somewhere on the coastal plains south of Florida and fresh out of guides. They weren't, with that said, fresh out of slaves. One man, who had been enslaved by the Spaniards, had been pretending to be mute. And after witnessing the treatment given to the previous guide, well, he let the Spaniards know that not only could he speak, but he could do a better job as a guide than the last guy, and he took the Spaniards to the mouth of the St. Mark's River, which was the place where the Narvaez expedition years before had built, built boats to escape Florida. All that remained now were some crosses, burnt charcoal, and the remains of a forge which was the spot where Narvaez's men scraped all the iron to turn into nails for the ship and a hollowed-out log used for a trough for the horses. There was also a pile of horse bones, you know, proof that the evidence and proof that the uh, horses were butchered. Now, all of this was very interesting to DeSoto, I suppose, anyway, but he was far more interested in what he was able to learn from two indigenous boys than what any of his scouting parties told him about. We found where Narvaez's expedition ended. Now, those, those two boys were named by the Spaniards, Marcos and Perico. Before their enslavement, they traveled with other Indian traders and knew of another province that was supposedly wealthy not just in corn, but in pearls, gold, and silver. Now, of course, whatever gold and silver was in that province originally came from the Spaniards by way of shipwreck or gold retrieved from dead conquistadors. But anyway, that distant province on another ocean, as described by one of the youths, was called Yupaha by the Appalachian, and was ruled by a female chief who collected tribute from a great many subjects. Now, this certainly whetted the Spaniards' appetites. But before they could simply march out from Appalachia, DeSoto needed to coordinate the logistics of his army's traveling. I should probably make it clear that if I haven't already. Part of the army remained at Tampa Bay with the ships, and DeSoto sent messengers, messengers there, and he ordered the Spaniards to, in Tampa Bay to get in a ship, travel around the peninsula, and meet him at what is now the modern-day Pensacola Bay. 
Now, besides rumors of wealth, uh, the Appalachians, uh, of course, you know, besides dealing with these rumors of wealth, um, DeSoto was also dealing with the Appalachians, who were engaging with the Spaniards militarily on a regular basis. So this, in fact, actually gave DeSoto additional reason to move on, in fact, because Appalachian warriors regularly engaged in ambushes. They killed several Spaniards and no fewer than seven, seven horses by December of 1539. One particularly devastating attack occurred on November 29th. Appalachian warriors on that day set fire to Anhayaca, which was aided by strong winds, and as a result, two-thirds of the Spanish camp was destroyed. The Spaniards also discovered that no torture or punishment seemed to be enough to dissuade Appalachian resistance. Several Appalachians were captured and burnt to death. Captured warriors were regularly subjected to having their noses or hands cut off, and the Spaniards would report that these maimed Appalachian warriors would simply take the punishment and the pain and act as if nothing had happened. Whenever they were captured, in fact, no Appalachian warrior bothered concealing their identity from the Spaniards. In fact, they were insulted if a Spaniard thought they were from a different society and not Appalachian. They also fought with exceptional skill. One man, in defense of his wife, fought eight Spanish horsemen successfully with just his bow, and despite being trampled by a horse, twice, he also killed one of the horses before finally he was slain. In another incident, when De Soto's nephew, Diego De Soto, attempted to charge upon and enslave an Appalachian warrior, that warrior shot Diego's horse in the thigh so hard that the horse stumbled 15 or 20 feet, then fell down dead without moving another step. Another skilled horseman, and another Diego, I should say, one Diego de Velasquez, promptly rode up uh, after Diego de Soto's failure and attempted the same maneuver, only to have that same Appalachian warrior loose another arrow, which struck his horse in the knee. That horse fell down, further injured himself, and promptly died as well. The Appalachian warrior then proceeded to run off in the woods, jeering at the Spaniards as he escaped. All winter, Appalachian aggression kept the Spaniards confined to their camp. Whenever they cut firewood, they were attacked. Whenever Spanish slaves were found, they were released. And seldom were Appalachians long, around long enough after these lightning raids for the Spanish to inflict punishment in return. Appalachians were led by a war chief named Capafi, who was one wily son of a Florida man. Like many other chiefs in Florida, Capafi absolutely refused to present himself before DeSoto, which in fairness, I mean, DeSoto was just planning on kidnapping him, so I don't really see why he or anybody else would do anything other than refuse DeSoto's requests for a quote-unquote peaceful meeting, but regardless. DeSoto did eventually find out where Capafi was hiding. It was in a place in the forest which could only be found via a narrow pass through dense woods. At intervals on the path, the Appalachians built thick wooden barricades, and so when the Spaniards went to capture Capafi, they were met by a hail of arrows as they cut down barrier after barrier down. When DeSoto and his men finally made their way to the refuge, it became clear that they would succeed in killing or capturing Capafi. He commanded his warriors to stop fighting. They did, and knelt before the Spaniards. They asked to be killed themselves instead of capturing Capafi. De Soto did not take this offer. He took Capafi, who was carried on a litter by his own subjects back to Anhayaka, 
in the style of Mississippian chiefs. His capture, however, did not end hostilities, and Spaniards who strayed from camp continued to be attacked after this incident. The continued attacks on the Spanish camp meant that De Soto made a lot of threats toward Capafi. He was going to be killed, his lands would be ruined, all his people would be killed, etc., etc., etc. In turn, Capafi turned the Sp- told the Spaniards that the only way the Appalachians would stop fighting would be if he personally told them to stop fighting. Eventually, he persuaded De Soto to let him go south to meet some important Appalachian warriors. De Soto sent a detachment of horsemen and footmen along, and during the course of the night, it seems that special detachment must have dozed off, because Capafi escaped during that night, carried on a litter far away from the Spaniards. The guards assigned to guarding Capafi claimed Appalachian sorcery was how he escaped, rather than the night watch having fallen asleep, but whatever the case, De Soto never saw the Appalachian chief again. The army did not depart on Hayaka. Not, that didn't happen until March 1st, 1540. When it did, De Soto divided his army into companies, which by this point consisted of several hundred native slaves acting as porters, and continued his march through Appalachian territory and then into Georgia, before finally arriving into the lands of another paramount chieftain of Kofita Cheki. Kofita Cheki extended from the Atlantic coast into the mountains of the Carolinas. On March 6th or 7th, De Soto's army reached the Flint River which is wide enough, 250 feet or so, that a ferry was constructed to help get the horses across. But they didn't really have time to waste in looking for an easier crossing. The part of Georgia and uh, North Florida where they traveled through were called the Pine Barrens, are called the Pine Barrens today. And in the 16th century, the route DeSoto took through the Pine Barrens had very little food. Even deer, bear, and turkeys try to avoid the sandy soils of the nutrient-poor coastal plains. And so it took several days for the entire army to be ferried across the river, so it wasn't until March 11th that they came to the first village of the chiefdom of Capacheki. A small chiefdom, which was probably centered at a mound site that exists on the current Magnolia Plantation mound site. It was a similar culture to that which existed in Appalachia. It, it isn't clear, though, if Capacheki and Appalachia were politically united or just culturally affiliated, but the Spaniards didn't really stick around long enough to learn much about the Capacheki people. They just robbed them of their food and other food stores, and in response, for their part, the Capacheki treated the Spaniards similarly as the Appalachians uh, by making lightning raids against stray Spanish soldiers. When five wooden soldiers went out looking for wooden mortars to pulverize corn on March 12th, they were ambushed and attacked. One Spaniard was left dead and three more grievously wounded. The attackers fled into the densely wooded swamp, however, before any Spanish horsemen could arrive to assist. De Soto was on the march again on March 17th, and the army headed northeast until the 23rd, when they arrived at the principal town of a chieftain called Toa. Toa was larger than the towns the army had visited to the south, Florida was full of many dispersed settlements. The interior parts of the Mississippian southeast, however, consisted of compact and walled towns. DeSoto's expedition doesn't teach us much about Toa, however, because he didn't stay there long. Regardless, 
He could have gone west and visited the Mississippian chieftain there, who in the 17th century were known by Spaniards as the Appa Appalachicola, but he did not. He went east, and by March 25th, they reached the chiefdom of Ichisi, whose chief sent a delegation of principal men with deerskins and woven shawls. This was the first time that De Soto and his men were met with gifts of peace. From the perspective of uh, Ichisi, at least the, the, the chief, this was actually also normal protocol for important visitors. On the insides of the Mississippian world, unlike, say, the Floridian borderlands, Paramount chiefs often traveled with retinues to survey their lands, give gifts to allied towns, and all the other sorts of prestigious things that very important people get up to. At any rate, on March 29th, DeSoto and his army departed Ichisi. They, Despite that warm welcome, they were marching northwards along the western bank of the Okmulgee River. On April 2nd, they turned northeast on a trail that in the 18th century would be called the Lower Creek Trading Path. The army then intersected the Oconee River and reached the lands of the Altamaha. De Soto met the chief of the Altamaha, a man named Zamuno, and the two hit it off when De Soto gave Zamuno a large feather adorned with silver. Zamuno replied, quote, You are from heaven, and this plume of yours which you have given me, I can eat with it. I shall go to war with it. I shall sleep with my wife with it, unquote. De Soto replied, Yes, I suppose you could do those things. For his part, Zumuno was quite eager to give tribute to De Soto, specifically the tribute he was supposed to send to his paramount chief, the chief of Okute. Well, De Soto thought it was best not to mess with the political tax structure of the region, at least not for the moment. Well, instead he sent messengers to the paramount chief of Okute, and on April 8th, they met, exchanged gifts, and DeSoto traveled with the chief for three days. While DeSoto impressed upon the people of Okute via blowing up trees with cannons and showing his anger at the chief at one point that the army really needed a lot of help. And with threats and cajoling, 2,000 Indians from Okute were given to the army to serve as porters, bringing food as well. On October 12th, the army departed. 400 of those porters were still in tow, onwards to their ultimate goal of Kofita Cheki. What was the extent of the power of Okute? Well, that is one question which Charles Hudson wondered, but De Soto and his army stayed for a short enough time that, like Ichisi, we have few answers today. De Soto was intent on going to Kofita Cheki, not an easy place to get to, and they were still relying on a kid to guide them, a native boy named Perico something that raises a bunch of other questions. Perico was dependent upon De Soto and the Spaniards. If you're wondering why a young boy would be leading a Spanish army through Florida, well, what choice does he have? Captured by Spaniards, dependent upon them for food. Since leaving Florida, Perico would have witnessed numerous other Indians being beaten, burnt at the stake, thrown to the dogs to be eaten alive, sometimes probably for no reason at all, Definitely sometimes for the punishment of not doing a good enough job as guide, which was the same job that he now held. The stress and pressure must have just been astronomical. At Kofaki, Perico experienced what the Spaniards described as a sort of seizure. He trembled, foamed at the mouth, 
and had a story that demons or imps had come to him and forbid him to guide the Spaniards on to Cofita Chequi. Subsequently, he was beaten. Perhaps the truth was that some Indians from Kofaki, not really interested in being forced to serve as enslaved porters all the way to Kofita Chequi, came in the night to give Perico a beating and to help convince him not to lead the Spaniards. Or perhaps Perico struggled with the sorts of thoughts that made the guide from Appalachie get in four fights in a day. I will say it's a lot easier to fight a mastiff with your bare hands if you're a grown man than if you're a boy. At any rate, Fray Juan de Evangelico prayed with Perico for some time to help rid him of the devil's possession, which, according to Fray Juan, was the reason for Perico's distress. Perhaps Fray Juan and Perico prayed about how other guides were beaten, burnt at the stake, and thrown to the dogs to be eaten alive. Whatever the case was, Perico came to his senses and resumed guarding, guiding the Spaniards. With that said, not all the people of Kofaki were against the idea of going to Kofita Chequi. Warriors, as well as porters, went along with DeSoto. The leader of those warriors wore a mantle of panther skins, and as a sign of his rank, carried a hardwood-made war club in the shape of a broadsword. He promised his chief that he would get revenge on the people of Kofita Chequi for previous wrongs. And to me, it seems, he was just as easy, uh, just as eager, I should say, as DeSoto to get going. The newly reinforced army departed on April 13th and on the 17th made their way to the Savannah River at a spot that is now underwater at the Clark Hill Reservoir. Nine days later, after crossing the river, they were lost. There were no people, there was no food, and DeSoto threatened to throw Perico to the dogs. DeSoto also could not understand how none of the people from Okute knew the trail either. DeSoto interrogated the principal man with the panther skins and the wooden broadsword. He admitted that, well, to be honest, neither him nor any of his warriors had actually ever been to Kofita Chequi, and all of the uh, battles that he had ever occurred between the two had actually happened in the hunting grounds uh, that separated the two chiefdoms. The fact of the matter is that the broad Saluda and the Savannah rivers, all crossed by the army at this time, were not inhabited like other parts of the southeast. Despite what appeared to be good land to the Spaniards in southeast Georgia, and this was a mystery to DeSoto, but around 1450, a century before DeSoto's army arrived, large parts of southeast Georgia were promptly abandoned around the same time that some other chiefdoms began building walls around their towns. Very likely it was warfare that drove people away from the rivers of, from the many of the rivers of Georgia. By late April, the army was literally on the verge of starvation. So on April 25th, when scouts returned with news of a town called Hamahi, which had food, well, the army literally began to race to Haimahi, along a trail flanked with roses. And in the town, the Spaniards found corn, the fruits of mulberry trees and strawberries. On the 27th, they captured five captains. DeSoto interrogated them, but none would reveal the location of the town of their, of their chief. He burnt one alive. The other four still refused to speak. 
so DeSoto burnt them all alive. DeSoto's scouts found a trail on the 30th, and the army set out. The next day, they reached the Watery River, on the opposite banks of which was a large town. It was part of Kofitacheki, the easternmost of the Mississippian chiefdoms who spoke the Muscogean language, the most widespread language family spoken in the southeast. Like I said earlier, not all Muscogean languages were intelligible, but Perico and the people of Kofitacheki could understand each other well enough. And thus it was that a delegation from Kofitacheki came to meet DeSoto. That delegation consisted of some of the principal men of Kofitacheki and a woman who the Spaniards called La Senora de Kofitacheki, the ruler of all of Kofitacheki. Or perhaps she was a niece of the ruler. Regardless, the lady of Kofitacheki greeted DeSoto and his army. They slowly ferried themselves afterwards across the Watery River by May 4th. Then the first and most pressing order of business, as far as the conquistadors were concerned, was to ask about the gold, silver, and pearls which Perico had told them about. De Soto demanded the delivery of gold and silver, but was brought copper. Indigenous Americans did not distinguish between copper and gold, and a shiny mineral was brought called mica instead of silver. As far as the pearls went, DeSoto was told about a nearby temple or a house of worship, which the Spaniards called a mosque, but in reality was a mortuary, containing the remains of the dead in wooden boxes stacked on wall benches. The Spaniards opened several boxes and found thousands of pearls and other fine gifts to the deceased, including two Spanish metal axes, a rosary, and trade necklaces items likely acquired from the earlier failed colony of Lucas Vasquez Ayon, briefly situated on the South Carolina coast. And another large town called Talameco was the holy site of the people of Kofitacheki. De Soto's army repeated this process there, looting the town and temple and disturbing the dead in search of pearls. The conquistadors were very impressed with the wealth of Confitacheki, despite the lack of gold and silver, and they were also additionally much amazed by the lady of Confitacheki. Specifically, they were amazed that a woman could hold such political power. Many of them wished to remain at Confitacheki, about 30 leagues from the coast, where many of the conquistadors with De Soto believed they could become rich by means of the pearls and the good land. Another reason some wanted to settle is that there were abandoned villages near Kofitacheki. A mystery today why, but... The people of Kofitacheki spoke to De Soto of a disease that laid their people low. And so in the past, historians and archaeologists have assumed European disease was responsible, but modern researchers have questioned if this is accurate. If, for example, the Ayon village carried smallpox or some other pathogen that devastated Kofitacheki, there is no evidence of it spreading. Some researchers believe that instead of disease from Europe, a, a local drought left the people of Kofitacheki immunocompromised, and as a result they fell victim to an already existing pathogen in the Americas. Or perhaps those villages were abandoned for the same reason that the Savannah River was abandoned. People left and moved to more compact walled settlements as a result of warfare. Apparently, in addition, some villages were supposed to be part of the Paramount Chiefdom were refusing to pay tribute to the Lady of Kofitacheki. 
Perhaps this refusal sparked a food shortage. I, I don't know the answer. Neither does anybody else. DeSoto was destroying the world he was exploring. Regardless of these mysteries, the Spanish quickly turned from their desire for gold and other wealth to a renewed and increasingly desperate search for food. By early May, when new corn is not yet ripe, and the old corn, corn stores of Cofita Chequi were already running low, basically before the Spaniards and the horses arrived, and they quickly consumed everything that wasn't hidden. So De Soto asked the lady of Cofita Chequi where other rich provinces lay. She spoke to him of the town of Chiaja, which paid tribute to Cusa, which was a place De Soto and the Spaniards had heard of already when they were in Ocute. And so the fact that it was mentioned again as a place of wealth started to really grab De Soto's attention a bit. Like I said, many of the men, however, wished to remain in Cofita Chequi. They wished to pursue the creation of a colony, to get rich. De Soto, however, was a man who had already tasted the wealth that gold and silver could bring. Like I said, before coming to Florida, he'd been to Peru. We'll be talking about uh, next episode. And if I may, quote, again, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, quote, he will never be satisfied, unquote. To sum things up, no matter what argument any of the conquistadors used to attempt or sway De Soto, he was firm. He let his decision be known, and all debate ended. The army was marching onwards. They enslaved people from Cofita Chequi as porters, and De Soto took the lady of Cofita Chequi hostage, and they departed on May 12th. They marched along a public highway, which followed the Watery River into the Piedmont region of North Carolina. De Soto found poor villages near modern-day Charlotte, inhabited by people, quote, of a different language, unquote. These were Suan speakers, who he referred to. They were relatively late arrivals to the region, called Chilokita, or people of a different language, by the Muscogean speakers of Kofita Chequi. Chilokita was Hispanicized to Shalake, and Shalake was later anglicized to Cherokee. At any rate, the Suan-speaking relatives, uh, late, uh, relatively late arrivals to the southeast, were called by the army as the poorest people living in the poorest region of their travels. Of course, one might note that it was also still May, the worst month for corn, but regardless. The army proceeded to meander about from Shalake village to Shalake village, until on May 15th they left the ancestors of the Cherokee people behind and made their way to a little-known-about Catawban-speaking people of the Carolina Piedmont who lived in the chiefdom of Juara, a very strategically located chiefdom at an intersection of important trails going north, south, east, and west, a fact that would almost certainly have held significant religious connotations for Mississippian peoples of the region. The people of Juara were making a good living by actively trading in salt, copper, and other substances. Now, as a brief aside, don't be fooled into thinking that Cherokee or Catawba refer to the same sort of social entities in the 16th century that they did later. Linguistically, this probably was the case, but Mississippian paramount chiefdoms subsumed peoples of different cultures and languages at different times. And in 1540, Juara was the most northernmost tributary chiefdom of Cofita Chequi. Twenty years later, the expedition of Juan Pardo would visit Juara and would find that it had become the center of its own paramount chiefdom. 
More on that later this episode. Okay, so on May 21st, 1540, the 57th day of the expedition, DeSoto arrived in a Zwaran town named Zuala, which was located in the fertile valleys near the Blue Mountains in present-day Burke County. The Spaniards remained in Zuala for almost a week before the Queen of Cofe de Chequi then next guided them into the Appalachian Mountains, where she promptly escaped. This angered DeSoto so much, he nearly hanged the men tasked for guarding her. And in fact, the path wasn't only kind of dangerous uh, enough that allowed for the queen to escape, it was difficult terrain. And, and, and it was dangerous enough, in fact, that some of the men began to desert. The first was Rodriguez de Penfael. He was followed by a Berber more than an African slave than an Indian slave boy from Cuba, each of whom, quote, spoke Spanish well, unquote. Well, for some reason, I guess those slaves just didn't want to hang around. I don't, no wonder what that's about. But as far as men like Rodriguez de Penfile, who left, well, the Spanish sources claimed that those deserted, quote, were infatuated with native women, unquote. Most of the deserters from the army were eventually found, but DeSoto was forced to spend considerable time and energy sending scouts backwards to look for deserters and essentially capture them back into the army so that DeSoto could threaten them with hanging if they left again. The lady of Kofita Cechi, however, was never seen by DeSoto again. Regardless, the expedition made its way to the town of Wazali, near modern-day Embryville, Tennessee. For much of their travels and through the spring of 1540, the Spanish were received relatively peacefully, once they'd left Appalachia, that is. And the army came to Wizali because the Europeans had heard about gold-colored metals being mined nearby to the north. DeSoto's scouts explored the region, but found only copper and quote-unquote cowskins as soft as the finest Spanish leather, obviously, probably buffalo hides, of course. And on May 31st, the army left Uzali, sending messengers ahead to the chiefdom of Chiaha near Dandridge, Tennessee, a large fortified town on the Tennessee River. This is the first time the Spaniards reported seeing a fortified town in the Mississippian world. Initially, things went well. But after about two weeks of peacefulest interactions between Chiaha and the Spaniards, DeSoto asked the paramount chief for 30 women. And as a result, all the natives of the town ran away. Ultimately, the chief summoned his people back, and to help speed along DeSoto's departure, agreed to stay with the conquistadors and provide an army, uh, provide the army with 500 for- porters and food, as long as DeSoto agreed not to, u- not to use collars and chains on his people. These terms were met, and ultimately DeSoto's army spent 24 days at Chiaha. They rested, fed themselves well, and on June 28th, DeSoto and the chief exchanged gifts, and the army went south towards the chiefdom of Coste. On July 1st, some Spaniards raided the barbacoas of one of the villages of of Coste, taking stores of corn as they had elsewhere. But by now, the Spaniards had worn their welcome very thin in this previously accommodating part of the Mississippian world. The Spaniards had not asked for the chief's consent in taking corn, and he took offense. Subsequently, he told his people to arm themselves on the 2nd of July. DeSoto realized afterwards that Coste was, well, it was on an island in the middle of a river. It would be very difficult, very, very difficult, almost impossible for his army to invade. 
So DeSoto used deception to trick the principal chiefs in the town to join him in camp, explaining his good intentions to interpreters. Though, of course, when the chiefs arrived, DeSoto ordered them captured, holding them in collars and chains with the threat he would burn their towns down, with the captured chiefs being burned alive inside them if they attempted to escape or trick the Spaniards. With that said, while DeSoto's strategy was successful in that he got some of the principals from Coste to come out and get captured, it was not successful in that he was subsequently able to subdue the town. A situation of detent existed between Coste on the island and the Spanish camp after that initial capture. Subsequently, DeSoto ordered the army to march again on July 9th, after exploratory parties of cavalry learned about the path to Cusa, the capital of another powerful Mississippian chiefdom to the west, which extended from Middle Tennessee into Georgia and Alabama, and which consisted of many of the historic ancestors of the Muscogee Creek. In 1540, Cusa was a very powerful and controlled several smaller chiefdoms with an estimated total population of around 50,000. DeSoto, unable to attack without uh, many more boats than he had, essentially, left Costa with his captured chiefs in tow uh, and worked his way from one native town to another. He demanded and often received food and supplies from the locals as his army headed to Cusa. They approached the principal towns on July 15th, and on the next day, the chief of Cusa came out to meet them, carried with a litter of cushions like, like the Lady of Cofita Cechis covered in a white shawl. Cusa was a town of 500 houses, surrounding a central plaza, which was itself encircled on three sides by earthen mounds, all of which contained structures. The chief came with 60 or 70 principal men, including musicians and lesser chiefs and warriors, dressed in fine animal furs and wearing tall plumes of feathers. The army was well received at Cusa. Charles Hudson theorizes that the chief was attempting to ally with DeSoto. He ordered his people to move out of their houses to make room for the Spaniards. DeSoto occupied one of the three buildings that were on the tops of the mound of the town, and despite this cooperation, he took the chief of Cusa and some of his principal men hostage, keeping them in irons and chains. Shortly afterwards, the people of Cusa revolted and fled into the woods. DeSoto sent out four captains in four detachments in all four directions. They succeeded in capturing many men and women, put them in collars and chains, and this forced many other people to also return to Cusa. The chief convinced DeSoto to release some of the principal men and some slaves were able to file off their chains at night and escaped, or just run off in their chains to escape when guards were inattentive. But all in all, DeSoto's army took hundreds of slaves in Cusa. Regardless, they found no gold and silver. And so, on August 20th, the army departed, taking the paramount chief, his sister, and some other paramount men, and the slaves and porters. A day later, they reached the large but abandoned town of Itaba, located at the present-day Carterville, Georgia, uh, at the Etowah archaeological site. Itaba was a dominant chiefdom from, the, from 1200 to 1350 AD. But in 1540, the town was a backwater of the Kusa Paramount chiefdom. Nine days later, the army crossed the Etowah River. On August 31st, the Spaniards met with a dozen principal men from the town of Ulabalahali, who brought greetings from their chief and were armed with bows and arrows. DeSoto himself rode ahead with his scouts, which consisted of 12 horsemen and a few footmen from his guard. 
they found one of the principal towns of the chiefdom. The town was palisaded, and beyond that, DeSoto was suspicious of the behavior of the citizens. They all seemed well armed. The walls of the palisade were thick and at the height of a lance, set close together and with many long poles tied crosswise against them for support. The whole structure was plastered with clay, and at intervals there were archer loopholes in the walls. No battle came, however. Ulabalahali was under the control of Kusa, and the chief of Kusa told the warriors of Ulabalahali to put down their arms. The chief of Ulabalahali was not there, however. He was at another town across the river. Ultimately, he showed up and gave DeSoto porters and twenty slaves and twenty women as slaves. The army departed on September 2nd to steal from some of the small villages which were subject to Ulubalahali, and after they were done stealing, on September 5th, they headed farther south into what is now northern Alabama. The army came to the town of Tuasi, at the junction of Terrapin Creek and Nances Creek, where they remained for six days and were given more porters and 32 women. On the 13th, the army departed and marched south, camping in the open until, made the, until they made their way into Talisi, the farthest of the chiefdoms which paid tribute to Kusa. Just how loyal the chief of Talisi to Kusa was is unclear, however, to us today. Talisi was located near another powerful chiefdom, Tascaloosa, a lord who the Spaniards would come to know very well in the near future. Charles Hudson, at any rate, suspects that Talisi was forced into playing a delicate balancing act, attempting to ally itself with two powerful native lords, Kusa and Tuscaloosa. On September 25th, the chief of Talisi met with De Soto and subsequently gave him all he requested. Deerskins, supplies, porters, 26 women. Afterwards, De Soto finally released the chief of Kusa, who had guided them around his empire, but still ended up leaving in tears, because De Soto refused to release his sister, who in the matrilineal descent system which Mississippian peoples followed was the mother-to-be of the next chief. Whether or not De Soto knew and understood this is unknown to me. Maybe he did it and kept the chief's sister as continued insurance. Or perhaps Hernando De Soto had no idea and just kept the woman because that's the sort of guy he did, was. Regardless, across the Kusa River, an up-and-coming chief governed many large towns, and his influence was spreading. He was a giant of a man named Tuscaloosa, or Black Warrior, if we are to translate his name from Choctaw to English. He was not at war with Kusa, but he does appear to have made overtures to Talisi previously to DeSoto having arrived. Tuscaloosa... Tascaluca, excuse me, I'm, it was a full head and shoulders taller than any man in DeSoto's army. He was also perhaps head and shoulders above the average conquistador as far as intellect. DeSoto's army rested in the central town of Talisi for 18 days. On October 5th, they departed south and passed through the boundary of Tascaluca's territory on October 7th. The army proceeded to a number of small villages and then camped on October 9th, a league short of Atahachi, the town where Tascaluca lived. The great warrior informed De Soto that he might visit his court whenever he wished, and the two met shortly after. While Tascaluca sat in his official chair, 
a warrior to his right holding a pole with a colorful flag. To his left was an attendant with a large feather fan which moved silently above Tascaluca's head. Behind him were dozens of leather chiefs, dressed in capes made of feathers. Soto dismounted and approached with translators and cavalrymen who displayed their animals before the Indians. The captain explained his plans to annex the world, as Tascaluca knew it, into the Spanish Empire. He explained that he expected Tascaluca and the Choctaw Indians he ruled to ally themselves with the Spaniards. And finally, that Soto's army needed food and supplies for their trip to the Gulf Coast. Further, he expected women in addition to the porters. Tascaluca, however, was an ascending paramount chief. He was feared by his subjects and ruled many tributary chiefdoms. The great chief laughed at this and told De Soto he did not serve anyone. Rather, it was his expectation that De Soto should serve him. De Soto promptly ordered Tascaluca captured. And although Tascaluca was a great giant of a man, there has existed no human who is stronger than iron. Once the chief was in chains, De Soto was free to keep him under guard as captive, which left Tascaluca in a position where he could do little but acquiesce to De Soto's demands, or at least appear to. Tascaluca informed De Soto that the porters and women and supplies which the conquistadors demanded could be given, but that they would need to travel to the town of Mabila first. The army departed on October 12th, Tascaluca along with them. They crossed the Tallapoosa River and exited the Piedmont Hills, and on the 13th entered the town of Piachi and began seeing signs of resistance. When DeSoto demanded canoes from the chief of Piachi, the chief told DeSoto there were no canoes. He would have to build rafts. As a result, DeSoto's army could not fully cross the river until the 15th, by which time one of the scouts was missing. So, too, was a man who'd left to look for an Indian woman, who'd run away from him. Both were probably killed. The army encamped somewhere near modern Selma, Alabama on the 16th, and on the 17th they spent the night at an unnamed town before finally reaching their destination on October 18th. Mabilla was a small town on a flat plain, devoid of trees and brush, but it was also enclosed within a massive wooden palisade which was thickly plastered to prevent burning. Guard towers were placed at equally spaced intervals. Two gates at the east and west were the only entrances. The Spaniards were fearful of a trap, but this was the place where Tascaluca stated that the army would get food, supplies, and slaves. In addition, two large houses located at the center plaza of the town were reserved for De Soto and his servants. De Soto arrived at the outskirts of the town with a host of 40 horsemen and his guard of crossbowmen and halberdiers, several footmen, a friar, a priest, a cook, and several slaves and porters in advance of the main army. The commander paused for some time outside Mabila while he waited for the man he sent inside to scout to return. The scout informed De Soto that it seemed to him that the natives were preparing for battle. He saw no old men. No servants, only young warriors and men of status. He saw women, young women in fact, but no children. De Soto was determined to show he was not intimidated. He entered the town with a few of his horsemen who were on foot, as well as seven or eight of his guard and a few others. 
Immediately, three or four hundred Indians began dancing and singing for the conquistadors, while fifteen or women, fifteen or twenty women danced. The chief of Mabilla greeted De Soto as well, accompanied by Indians singing and playing flutes. The chief presented De Soto with three mantles, which Spanish sources call Martin skills, but were probably beaver, if you ask my opinion. Quite a welcoming committee. While all of this was going on, Tascaluca told De Soto he was tired of marching and asked to rest and speak with some chiefs, and got up from where he was seated with De Soto and went to join them in one of the large houses on the edge of the plaza. When later he didn't come out of the house when De Soto sent word for him, and so De Soto ordered one Baltazar de Galagos to find Tascaluca. Galagos forced himself inside of the house and immediately saw that it was filled to the rafters with armed men ready for battle. Galagos shouted the alarm, as one does, since De Soto was standing just outside the house. And then, when another principal Indian entered the house and walked past Galagos, Galagos tried to grab the man's martin-skin robe. The man slipped out of the robe, and Galagos, as in consequence, cut off the arm with his sword. All hell broke loose after that. The natives in the house rose and began to fight Galagos, and De Soto put on his helmet and began shouting orders. But De Soto's voice was stifled by a greater sound. A great roar began to come from many of the houses of Mabella. Perhaps five thousand warriors were hidden inside the town. They began pouring out of the other houses, firing arrows and shooting from behind loopholes in houses and blocking the gates of the palisade. Trapped inside were perhaps a dozen men, including De Soto, who began making a desperate fighting retreat. They ab abandoned their Indian porters and their baggage, as De Soto could plainly see that even if he did order his cavalry to charge in to support him, the people of Mebilla had a superior position and would probably simply kill the horses with arrows. De Soto and his comrades barely escaped. Several horses were slain with arrows, and one man was killed outside the gates when he and another conquistador came forward to help create a distraction to help save De Soto. Other warriors in the fortified town went to work at rescuing chained Indian porters, removing those chains, and put, putting bows and arrows in the hands of those previously enslaved by De Soto. Once it was over, the victorious Mabila warriors began parading about the clothing, in the clothing, religious ornaments, and the food that they had captured from the Spaniards, not to mention De Soto's precious collection of pearls. However, unlike, say, the Apalachee, who in 1540 were used to fighting the Spanish and knew not to fight them in the open. The people of Mabila had not learned that lesson. When the fighting continued outside of the fortress, De Soto and the horsemen fled, and the natives of Mabila followed, thinking they had won a rout. Instead, the horsemen eventually turned, and the now tired from running warriors were forced to run back towards the fortress. Many men were lanced to death at the exchange rate of only a single conquistador being shot in the neck with an arrow in this phase of the fighting. Ultimately, De Soto then surrounded the town and had four squadrons attack the walls simultaneously, using arrows, no, excuse me, using axes to cut through the plaster of the walls and to help themselves climb over the walls. One of the Spaniards fought their way in, once the Spaniards fought their way inside, the, the battle afterwards raged for hours. Desperate natives fought from rooftops, and the conquistadors began to burn home after home before ultimately the Spaniards obtained the advantage and burned the entire town along with anyone left alive. An unknown number of Indians escaped at the end of a nine-hour battle. De Soto's men searched for the corpse of Tascaluca in the ashes, but his body was not found. 
Theoretically, the battle was then a great victory for the army. Tactically, they escaped the ambush and won the day against thousands of opponents. However, the reality of the situation was that the battle was the beginning of the end for the thus far successful-ish Entrada. The Spaniards spent nearly a month burying their dead and tending their wounded at Mabila. The survivors were beginning to lose hope that riches would be found, and so DeSoto was forced to change plans. DeSoto had been going south so he could finally found his planned colony on the Florida coast. But after Mabila, DeSoto now feared that his men would mutiny, overtake the supply ships, and leave him and go back to Cuba. So instead, he decided to escape this quote-unquote bad country for New Spain, which he figured would probably prevent desertions and in secret allow him to continue looking for the ever, ever more ethereal treasures which he sought. DeSoto's men were very much grumbly, but none of them really understood how far west New Spain was from their position, so they agreed to DeSoto's plan. However, beyond the rapidly diminishing morale of the army, subsequent to the Battle of Mobila as part of the aftermath, well, this Mobila completely ended the semi-peaceful relations between DeSoto's army and the Mississippian peoples of the southeast. The army was henceforth constantly attacked by peoples who were far more wiry of DeSoto's intentions. Of course, with that said, obviously neither was the battle a win for the people of Mabila or Tascaluca. Mabila was destroyed, and the people suffered a terrible loss of life. Many of the warriors involved came from other chiefdoms under the command of Tascaluca, if he survived the battle, and that is by no means certain, Tascaluca's political power might very well have been shattered afterwards. Tascaluca and his generals made two severe miscalculations. First, as, as good of an ambush as they laid, they obviously laid that ambush at a fortress on flat land, where the advantage of horses and armor meant the Spaniards were nearly invulnerable to the fighting outside of the fortress. That mistake was compounded by the miscalculation in thinking that Mabila was impenetrable, because once the Spaniards did get inside, a massacre took place. The second mistake was that there were far too many native warriors involved in the ambush in the first place. 5,000 or so, which basically took away the two advantages that Mississippian warriors had over the conquistadors, speed and maneuverability. During the battle, at any specific time, many warriors would have been simply unable to fire their bows because there were too many of their allies in front of them. Of the 5,000, perhaps 3,000 were killed. An unknown number escaped, and the only survivors otherwise were the women of Edmabila, who were divided up as slaves afterwards by the Spaniards. Those women told the Spaniards that not all of them even came from Mabila, which is why I say that this warriors, you know, likewise probably came from a number of Tascaluca's chieftains. The archaeological evidence suggests that multiple chieftains existed on the Alabama River during this time, and later Spanish records indicate that the people of the region, even people who lived in Cusa, may have participated in this battle. Their surviving women told the Spaniards that the reason that Mabila had become a great gathering place for resistance is that there was a great offering to the sun at Mabila after De Soto was defeated. A great festival was promised that, of course, everyone near and far wanted to be a part of. But of course, that great victory of this over the Spaniards did not occur. With that said, Hernando de Soto's dreams of an American empire were quickly turning to sand. So I don't suppose he felt like having a party either. 
Earlier in the Entrada, De Soto spent considerable time planning his would-be colony at the port of Ochuce, near modern-day Pensacola Bay, which he originally believed would provide a Floridian haven for Spanish shipping and a place where Indians could be missionized. Of course, those motivations were secondary to finding gold, but there was no gold in La Florida. And now, after Mabila, since there was still no gold, morale was low. So low that De Soto was forced to keep secret from his army the fact that his ships, under the command of Maldonado, were at the harbor of Ochuce. De Soto realized if he told them the ships were at Ochuce, A, his men would probably revolt and quite possibly strand him in Florida alone while they sailed away, and B, his initial re- reason for meeting back up with the ships was to show evidence of his newfound wealth back at Spain and to recruit additional colonists and funding. Well, nearly all of the pearls De Soto had got at Cofita Checky were now destroyed by the fire at Mabila. In order to stay in control, De Soto ordered the army to march west, presumably to Mexico, but in reality, De Soto was just trying to trick them into keep going so he could continue looking for gold and silver. They went north, and by November 18th, they found the first town of what archaeologists call the Moundville Chiefdom, focused on what is now the Black Warrior River. Moundville was an old chiefdom, one of the first to Mississippianize sometime around 1050 or 1250 AD. But by the start of the 16th century, Moundville was clearly in decline, a long period of decline that probably had a lot, an awful lot to do with the ascendancy of Cusa and later that of Tascaluca. But with that said, the chief, Apafalaya, commanded an economic town center which the Spaniards, of course, also called Apafalaya. But on first, on November the 18th, they found a small village, Taliapacana, which they looted of all food, and the, all of the people fled. The army camped at Taliapacana for several days, while several parties of horsemen scouted the country. On November 21st, they moved to another abandoned town, Mozolixa, on what is now called the Black Warrior River. The people of Mozolixa were on the other side of the river as the Spanish camp. They had their corn with them, covered in mats, and shouted threats at the Spaniards that if they crossed the river, they would be killed. The river was too deep for De Soto's army to cross, but the natives of Mozalixa put up very little defense on November 29th when De Soto ordered the landing of 30 men across the river on a raft they constructed. Those 30 conquistadors managed to drive the river defenders away into cane breaks where they could not be pursued, and the Spanish crossed the river. Charles Hudson theorized that the warriors of Mozalixa put up light resistance because some had participated in the Battle of Mabila and feared Spanish capabilities. Through early December, the army raided a number of villages for food on their way to Apafalaya. When De Soto arrived there, he took the chief of Apafalaya captive to serve as guide, interpreter, and hostage, and afterwards the army rested for a week in the town. On December 9th, they set out, and on the 14th, they reached what is now called the Tom Bigbee River, near Columbus, Mississippi, where the chief of Apalaya was, knew the, uh, where the river was constructed into a narrow channel, and that would allow DeSoto's army to pass. On the other side of that river were large numbers of warriors, who threatened the Spanish as they arrived. They promptly killed the ambassador that DeSoto sent across the river in fuvel of the army, that ambassador was quite possibly the chief of Apophalaya, by the way. De Soto was furious at the rejection of what he considered a peaceful overture and ordered the construction of a boat, while he sent a contingent of good swimmers immediately to find a place to cross. The warriors melted away, however, 
and on December 16th, the army crossed the river uneventfully and made its way to Chikaza, a large town that was already abandoned by its people in advance of the army's arrival. There was enough food to steal at Chikaza that the Spaniards encamped for the winter, which probably really pissed off the Chikazas, who managed nevertheless to mostly avoid the Spanish for some time, only occasionally making night raids, which kept the army off balance. On January 3rd, the chief of Chikaza finally came to visit DeSoto, only after the army managed to capture some Chikazas, including a relative of the chief, mind you. And the chief came borne upon a litter carried by his subjects in the Mississippian style, and accompanied by two tributary chiefs, Alabamo and Micalasa. They give the Spaniards 150 rabbits, some shawls, deerskins, and little dogs. But, of course, tensions increased through the river, excuse me, through the winter, as the army remained. This began when two Chikazas were killed for stealing hogs from the Spaniards, and a third had his hands cut off and sent back as a warning to his chief. To add insult to injury, shortly after this incident, four Spanish horsemen rode out to the town of Chikazila in secret and forcibly stole skins and shawls from the people living there who promptly fled the town. After all of that, the Chikazas were supposed to provide 200 porters to DeSoto, but on March 3rd, 1541, the day before the porters were supposed to arrive, DeSoto was certain that the natives were instead planning a trap. Now, by this time, I should explain that a lot of the men in the army hated DeSoto almost as badly as many of the indigenous Americans did. When DeSoto ordered the army to stay ready through the night of March the 3rd, few of his soldiers heeded what he said. They had simply stopped paying much attention to him. They were so disaffected from the land of the gold and the silver and their meanderings across the southeast. At some time before the dawn, however, of March 4th, four companies of Chikazas approached the Spanish camp in silence and entered undetected. They carried little jars, which concealed fire, and with these they lit arrows ringed with a slow-burning grass designed to hold fire, just like an arquebusier's fuse. By the time the Spanish sentinels detected anything, half of the houses in the camp were on fire. Once detected, Chikaza companies began shouting and beating drums. As the Spanish began tumbling out of the burning houses, half-clothed, they encountered warriors at the doors. Perhaps 300 Chikazas were in the town on that early morning of March 5th, March 4th. A cold wind blew that night, and it spread the fires quickly. The horses who could not break their reins burned to death in the stables. The horses that could break their reins ran off to safety in the darkness. The lightning quick raid that nearly ended, ended nearly as quickly as it began after that. When the natives heard the sounds of the horses escaping, they thought that horsebacked riders were coming to get them, and so the Chikaza warriors melted back away into the darkness. If not for the escaping horses, the entire army might have been slain right then and there. As it was, twelve Spaniards were killed of wounds or burned to death. Two others were burned so badly they were carried on litters by Spanish slaves for several days afterwards. 57 horses were killed. 400 pigs were burned to death in the pigsty. Only, in fact, 100 piglets or so had squeezed through the cracks and escaped. Many of the survivors lost their clothing, and according to the Spaniards, they killed only a single Chikaza warrior in return, lanced by DeSoto. Many of their weapons, saddles, and shields were burned in the fire as well. For the Chikaza, this was a legendary victory. Afterwards, many warriors apparently wore three cords on their bodies, one for a horse, one for a pig, and one for a Spaniard. 
DeSoto's army was beyond demoralized. A few days later, they moved their camp to Chikazila, covering their nakedness with deerskin clothing. They began to build some of their weapons, building a forge and making a bellows from bearskins. They reforged weapons lost in the fire. They made new shields and frames for their saddles. They made new lances out of ash trees growing nearby. Chikazilla was located on an open plain, and so when the Chikazazas came on March 15th to finish the Spaniards off, the remaining horsemen fought much more effectively. The Chikazas were routed. And in addition, the Spaniards were more prepared under the new Night Watch commander. The previous Night Watch commander, obviously, of course, was fired after March 4th. DeSoto's army disembarked from Chickazilla on April 26, 1541. After having recovered from the wounds they'd sustained and having fully repaired the weapons as best as possible, they took a northwestern path and found a small village, Alabamo. But the Alabamo had already hidden their food. The next day, DeSoto sent out three captains with horse and foot, as he was wont to do, in order to search for provisions. One company found a strongly built palisade defended by about 300 Alabamos. The palisade wall that faced the Spaniards had three doors, one in the center, one near each corner, all of them built too low for horses to enter. The Alabamos inside appeared ferocious. They wore headdresses with horns and had their faces painted black, with their eyes ringed with red. They shouted and beat on drums when the Spaniards neared. The scouting party pulled back and sent news to DeSoto, who decided to attack. On April 28th, the army assembled on the open field near the palisade. You might wonder why. They could have surpassed this palisade on the way to Mexico, but DeSoto's personality just seems like it was damn near impossible for him to not meet threats head on. He was kind of like Cortez in that way. Beyond that, the army required food. Whatever food could be find, found inside that palisade, they needed. At the sound of a trumpet, the conquistadors formed into three companies and attacked. The horsemen dismounted and accompanied on foot and began chopping their way through the fortifications using the same tactics used at Mabila. However, like the Apalachee, by now the Chikaza had learned to shoot for weak points in Spanish armor not for traditional kill shots in the chest and on the head. As the Spanish companies attacked the walls, a number of men were seriously wounded. Three conquistadors, Diego de Castro, Luis Brava de Zeres, and Francisco de Figueroa, took arrows in the thighs. Another, Pedro de Torres, was struck with an arrow that passed between the bones of his forearm. The elbows and thighs were weak points in the Spanish armor. The fort's defenders fought bravely, but the conquistadors succeeded in gaining entry and so the Alabamos retreated. DeSoto's army began to pour into the fort, and thus they fell into the trap of the Alabamos. Behind the fortified wall was another fortified wall, with another three doors, one in the center, one at each corner. The Alabamos resumed their defensive positions, and the Spaniards began attacking the second wall. They took casualties and succeeded in breaching the second wall, Behind that wall was a third. When the Spaniards finally cut their way through all three walls, the Alabamos continued to retreat, this time across a creek upon which they had built bridges that were so narrow that a few of the Alabama warriors slipped and fell off, let alone the bridges not being large enough for horses. Once they were in this defensive position, one Alabama archer got into a duel with the Spanish crossbowman. 
The archer fired and struck the crossbowman, Juan de Salinas, in the neck. He survived his wounds. The archer was struck in the chest with a crossbow bolt and almost certainly died. That man was one of three Alabama warriors that the conquistadors reported killing in that battle. In contrast, more than 30 conquistadors were wounded in storming the fort, and 15 of them died within a few days of the battle. Inside the fort, besides additional fortifications, there were no houses. There were no stores of food. The fortress was nothing but a quickly constructed military ruse. The army was too low on food to camp to try and get revenge on the Alabamos, and on April 30th they continued their march to the northwest. They traveled through nine days of wilderness before reaching the Mississippi Valley. The, Missis the mighty Mississippi, as you might imagine, was chock full of Mississippian chieftains. The first one that DeSoto and his army encountered was called Quizquiz. The distance between Quizquiz and Chicaza was significant, likely indicating the two chieftains was not, were not on friendly terms. This would certainly explain how the army was able to surprise the first village of Quizquiz when they, when they arrived. And when they did arrive, the men in the village were away in the cornfields, and, un and the undefended village was pillaged. 300 women and children were kidnapped and enslaved, including the chief's mother. But they found very little corn, so they moved on to a second town, probably at Lake Cormorant, where they did find and steal corn and pecans, and then on to a third village where they found and stole more corn. Between the dates of May 9th and May 21st, the army first saw the Mississippi River. And on the 21st, they encamped not far from the banks, somewhere near modern-day Memphis, Tennessee. DeSoto named it the Rio Grande, and the army began construction of barges that would enable them to cross the river into present-day Arkansas, something that would take them the next three weeks. With that said, a massive navy approached very shortly after the Spaniards encamped. It consisted of thousands of warriors and canoes that filled the Great River. The chief of the navy introduced himself to DeSoto, and after some skirmishes along the waterfront while the Spanish constructed their ships, hostilities ceased and the Spanish were received graciously in the town of Kaski. The chief of Kaski was powerful, but he also had powerful enemies. And he saw De Soto and his army as a path to getting revenge on those enemies, which primarily included the chiefdom of Pacaja. Once the chief of Kaski explained to De Soto how wealthy Pacaja was, the Spaniards were more than happy to help attack, as you might imagine. So off the two armies marched together, the Kaski chief himself in the lead with his own vanguard of 2,000 warriors and many hundreds of porters. Upon reaching Pacaja, Kaski quickly attacked, which forced the defenders and their chief to flee to a nearby island fortress. The Kaskis and Pacajas were enemies for a very long time, and Kaski warriors became enraged as they pillaged the fields and towns of Pacaja, only to come across friends and relatives who'd been enslaved by the Kahajas and discovered that the Pacajas kept their slaves with one hamstring sliced so they could walk but not run. De Soto's army was impressed by the level of civilization in the Mississippi, where people lived in large towns with strongly fortified palisades, and in addition controlled subsidiary forts scattered about the countryside. The dominant town of the Pacaja was either somewhere on Wapanoka Lake, where a cl cluster of towns sat, or perhaps somewhere farther north along the Little River Pemisco Bayou, 
in northern Arkansas and southern Missouri. The area, at any rate, has been so heavily impacted by modern intensive farming and amateur archaeologists going uh, pot hunting that there's very little known about Pacaha or its culture, or, or even the relationship between those two clusters of sites that I just mentioned. But anyway, the battle was hardly a battle. Most of the people of the Pacaha, most of the Pacaha people, including the chief, escaped in advance of the approach of the conquistadors. The warriors of Kaski went straight for the temple and began looting and desecrating the town before the Spaniards ever arrived. Meanwhile, perhaps five or six thousand Pacajas hid on a small island in the river until they were discovered and attacked by Kaski warriors and Spanish soldiers. The Pacaja people fled again. This time, many were so terrified they swam into the river to escape, and many people drowned as a result, especially women and children. The warriors of Kaski took a great quantity of clothing and goods which the people of Pacaja had stored on rafts but had not been able to escape with. For either Kaski or Spaniard, the whole point of the conquest was that it to accrue wealth and cloth and goods, and, and so with the treasure in hand, the Kaski simply loaded their goods up on their canoes and started heading downriver back home, right in plain sight of DeSoto, who was furious. My fucking treasure, he probably said. DeSoto was angry from this at, at least perceived betrayal. He went a little crazy at the theft of the Isle of Cloth. I say this because he promptly ended his alliance with the Kaskis, met with the chiefs of Bakaha, and offered him the opportunity for revenge. This new alliance was forged while the chief was literally busy listing the bones and bodies of his ancestors off the floor of the desecrated temple and replacing them in their coffins at the temple when he spoke to DeSoto. He was very eager for revenge against the Kaskis. The chief of Kaski was no fool, however. He had long foreseen the possibility of DeSoto's treachery. He came the next day with 40 warriors and performed a masterful job of diplomacy. He simultaneously apologized for the theft and also shamed the army. Before the attack, the Spanish convinced the people of Kaski to erect a great cross and pray to it, at Spanish insistence that praying to the cross would help much-needed rains come. How could the Spanish now treat their Christian brothers as enemies? Beyond this, before the battle, Kaski warriors had sewn crosses into their headbands before marching off to war with the Spanish as a sole solidarity. Now, the chief of Kaski reminded the Spanish captain, Brother de Soto, are we not brothers and friends? This feigned friendship worked. And afterwards, both chiefs acted as allies to DeSoto. In fact, the chroniclers of the expedition, who were themselves from a culture also obsessed with rank and honor, wrote about how impressed they were that the two chiefs spent quite a long time arguing about which one of them would get to stand and sit at DeSoto's right-hand side, the more prestigious position in the Mississippian world. And I mean, they argued about it for such a long time that eventually DeSoto had to intervene and simply decided for them. And that may be seem very, very, very silly to all of us, but just how you know, the response of the 16th century Spanish conquistador to such a ridiculous thing to argue about for an extended period of time was basically like, well, yeah, obviously you'd fight about something so important as to whether you sit at the right hand or left hand side of the Sapoto. I'm frankly surprised they didn't duel over it. At any rate. DeSoto was unsure of where to go next. He attempted to go north and sent a number of parties in that direction to seek more civilization and wealth. His scouts made their way to a less populated region of grasslands and a small settlement, Calusa, 
a village of six or seven huts made of rushes and stretched over a framework of poles that enabled the village to move frequently. The other nearby villages were the same. Once, the vast and powerful chiefdom of Cahokia lay on the American bottom, with the Missouri and Illinois rivers empty into the Mississippi, just east of modern St. Louis. But the city of Cahokia was long abandoned in 1541. What was once the greatest concentration of urban development was a collection of backwater villages when DeSoto scouts saw the region. DeSoto really wanted to go east and visit the powerful chiefdom of Chixa, but the army was determined to go to Mexico. Frankly, the only reason they consented to the scouting parties to the north was that it was assumed at the time that they would maybe reach the South Sea by going north, and the scouts seemed to demonstrate that the army could not steal enough food to find out. So they went west instead. On August 3rd, the army burned a town, a tactic that seems to have been a... Uh, uh, no, excuse me. On August 3rd, the army encountered a burned town, attacked it that uh, may have been a stock response to an invading army in the southeast. Since it, these abandoned uh, towns, sometimes burned towns, happen so frequently uh, in, in response to uh, the, the arrival of DeSoto's army. They traveled afterwards of, uh, to, after that to a new chiefdom. On the 5th, they arrived at the main town of Quigate, which at one point was two towns, but had grown, in, uh, but both had grown so large into one another that it had become a single large town. DeSoto and his army basically took up residence in half of the town, and they burnt the other half down to the ground so that no Indians could use it as a fortification in case of an attack. They spent three weeks at Quigate, and then on August 26th departed to the northwest. On the 30th, they came to what is now the White River, and on September 1st to Caligua, a village situated along the river, which they took by surprise. And they captured many people, including the chief. The army stayed there a few days and then took food and slaves from Caligua and crossed the White River. On September 8th, they reached the town of Palisima on the Little, river, on the little Red River. Palisima had little corn, and so the army marched on to Cayas, a community of salt makers and traders. The army camped at Cayas for nearly three weeks since there was plentiful corn. But beyond Cayas, they encountered far greater difficulties. They departed and traveled along the Arkansas River and came to Tulla, a small town near present-day Fort Smith. DeSoto's army surprised the Tullas initially when they arrived in late September, but quickly it was the Europeans who became surprised at the bravery and skill of Tulla warriors. At the end of the attack, the Spanish took the village and 15 Tullas were dead. Another 40, mainly women and children, taken captive, but in return, eight Spaniards were wounded, one horse was dead, and another ten horses were wounded. DeSoto's army attempted similar tactics against the Tulla people as they had against the Mississippian chieftains. But the Tulla lived in small villages, had less to steal from, and worse from than that, as far as DeSoto and the army were concerned, they weren't afraid of the horses. Unlike Mississippians, these were buffalo-hunting people, who routinely hunted 2,000-pound buffalo, American bison. One of the primary weapons of the Tulla was the giant pikes, which they used to stand their ground against stampeding buffalo and impale their food. They dealt with Spanish cavalry with the exact same strategy to great success. Mississippian society was largely bifurcated 
between man and woman, with men largely performing warrior roles. In contrast, DeSoto and the army found that the women of Tulla fought as bravely as the men. The sources along the expedition compared fighting the Tulla village to fighting a pack of wolves. Beyond the very capable defense they put up, the Tullas were physically fearsome. They tattooed their faces and deformed their heads, giving themselves a on-purpose, very fearful, fearsome visage. Like the Spanish conquistadors who shouted, Santiago y España, Tullas opened the battle with the shout of Tulla. Beyond that, they regularly attacked DeSoto's army at night. Warriors shouted Tulla occasionally so that their fellow warriors could distinguish friend from foe. The chroniclers along DeSoto's expedition wrote that sometimes as the army traveled through Tulla lands, a single Tulla man would approach the army and walk beside it. Just literally mean-mugging various conquistadors, looking for someone willing to duel him. Needless to say, the Tulla made a very vivid impression on DeSoto's army, what was left of it anyway. Against such foes, the battered remnants of the army realized that going farther west and reaching Mexico was impossible for such a large force. There simply was not enough food, and there was too much resistance. Cabeza de Vaca had once made a journey by first negotiating friendship into these societies amongst the people of the plains of South Texas. DeSoto's army had no time for that and required far too much food to take such a path by theft. When DeSoto finally did manage to speak through interpreters with the chief amongst the Tulla people, that chief informed him there was no great province to the west for DeSoto's army to find, only scattered populations, and to, southwest, and to the southwest, even less. He instead informed DeSoto that if he wanted corn, he needed to go southeast to Utiangue. And so, on October 19th, the army changed direction and departed Tulla. On October 22nd, the army approached what is now called Nimrod Lake, Arkansas, and found the, the town of Kipana. They spent five days resting there and continued, and finally, on November 2nd, reached Utangue on the Arkansas River, a few miles downstream from modern-day Little Rock. The army could not spend the winter at Tulla. There was not enough food, so instead, they had returned to Mississippian peoples at Utangue. Utiangue, the army, faced minor skirmishes that it approached, but afterwards, the relationship was semi-peaceful. The winter, at least a start, the winter of 1541-1542 was bitterly cold. Many Spaniards feared they would freeze to death amongst the people of Utiangue or be killed in a revolt. No revolt came, however. Bad news still came for the army when the trusted translator Juan Ortiz did not survive the winter. Afterwards, the army excuse me, could only use an Indian boy as translator since he knew a little Spanish. But after the death of Juan Ortiz, DeSoto found communicating with chieftains much more difficult. They left and traveled down the Arkansas River for 10 days in early March before crossing the river and continuing onwards from town to town and ultimately made their way on March 28th to Tianto where they captured 30 Indians and learned that Tianto served the chiefdom of Anilco. Anilco was thickly populated. On the 29th, DeSoto's army reached a cluster of large towns that surrounded the chief's town of Anilco. 
Anoka was situated where the Arkansas and Mississippi rivers meet. And shortly after arriving in the region, DeSoto learned that Anilco had an enemy who lived near the Mississippi River, the Guachoya. The Guachoya warriors waged war on Anilco by traveling in canoes up the Arkansas. And so DeSoto, a practitioner of divide and conquer, promptly went to Goyocha to learn more about them. And so the army departed Anilco to go to Goyocha. The Goyocha promptly abandoned their towns and made peaceful offerings to the Spanish, and told DeSoto that the greatest chief in the region was actually someone who lived on the eastern side of the river, Quigaltam. Now, with that said, the army was mostly interested in learning about what existed to the south. The chief of Goyocha told them that to the south, which nowadays is called the Felsenthal region of southeastern Arkansas and northern Louisiana, was a place where Indians practiced very little agriculture at all. There were no great towns farther south for the army to visit. Snooze must have been very depressing. The army was nearly finished and needed to be resupplied. Further, by this point, they had nearly crisscrossed the entire southeast. All of the conquistadors, DeSoto included, must have known by now that their chances of finding a great society like that of Mexico or Peru was very slim. Perhaps with diminished faculties as a result of all these facts, and not to mention that he had been hit in the head very hard several times during the expedition, DeSoto decided to send a messenger to the chief of Quigaltam. He informed the chief that DeSoto was none other than the son of the sun, and that people obeyed and served him everywhere. The chief of Quigaltam thought this was pretty funny. He informed DeSoto that if he were the son of the sun, as he claimed, then he should dry up the Mississippi River. Otherwise, DeSoto should come visit and equiggle Tom and pay tribute, like everybody else did. Now, of course, that made DeSoto more furious at any point in the expedition, except perhaps a short time before when he'd watched his so-called allies of Anilco carry his loot from Goyocha. But DeSoto fell very ill, so ill that he could not leave his bed. He ordered an attack from bedside on the town of Anilco. Why Anilco and not Quigaltam? Well, I don't know. Perhaps a combination of madness and revenge. The chief of Goyocha, Guachoya, excuse me, also interested in revenge, sent many of his own warriors in canoes as well. The result was a massacre. DeSoto ordered his men to spare none of the lives of the males, and the town was taken by force, so it offered very little resistance. The conquistadors committed atrocities during the massacre, including killing elderly men and very young boys, in addition to the usual levels of violence and taking of slaves and everything else. The warriors of Guachoya were not any kinder. They stole the most prized positions of Anilco from the temple and set some of the town on fire. DeSoto next planned on moving across the river to Quigaltam's principal town to construct two boats to sail to Mexico and Cuba, resupply, and return. But instead, his illness worsened, and he died on May 21st, 1542. DeSoto knew the end was near, and the day before his death wrote a will. He appointed one of his captains, Luis Alvarado de Moscoso, as governor. Most of the army was quite happy about this. Many conquistadors did not come to visit his body. Some soldiers had bad things to say about him. A few openly rejoiced. The Mississippian natives, on the other hand, 
were very interested in looking at DeSoto's deceased body. Before long, and despite the Spaniards' insistence that DeSoto was very much not dead, the Indians began winking and looking at the direction of DeSoto's grave whenever a Spaniard told them that DeSoto had flown away to the sky for a few days. Well, the new governor, Moscoso, wasn't going to let anyone do what he had been done to previous bodies, which is dig up dead conquistadors, cut them up, and leave them hanging in the trees for birds to eat. So Moscoso ordered DeSoto be dug up and plopped down into his final resting place, the mighty Mississippi River. Which leads me with the impression that the final fate of Hernando de Soto's corpse was that he was catfished, a term which in this situation has a very literal meaning. Newly appointed Governor Moscoso wasn't so sure that building boats and going down the Mississippi was a good idea. The army had no pilots, they had no idea how long the river was, etc. He ordered the expedition westward again. In doing so, they departed from the cultural areas of the Mississippian peoples and began visiting the Cadoan cultures of southwestern Louisiana, eastern Oklahoma, and northeastern Texas. Cadoan cultures were similar to Mississippian cultures in a number of ways. They were agricultural peoples, and Moscoso's army raided a number of villages on their way to Texas. Chaguate on June 20th, Naguatex on July 20th, which they burned, and A's around August 22nd. Beyond that, they found fewer and fewer natives, though, who had smaller and smaller stores of food to eat. Like the last attempt west, this was doomed to failure, even though technically they were still pretty close to both Mexico and to the Puebloan peoples farther west. In fact, Cadoan peoples had a lot of turquoise, which they got from trading with Puebloan peoples farther west. But the food requirements for the army meant that it could not cross West Texas and survive, like, say, Cabeza de Vaca and his companions. Their only option was to return to the Mississippi again, and they did so following the same general trail by which they departed the Mississippi. Now, the Cadoan people were not really having it on this return trip. They habitually began to engage in, the small, in small acts uh, of violence and resistance. Cadoan warriors would hide and ambush the army on the return voyage, shoot a few arrows at passing soldiers, and run off. Still, the army did return, and once there, constructed boats to drift the 300 survivors uh, down the river into the Gulf of Mexico and from there to New Spain. They left in 1543, literally hounded by angry warriors in canoes on the riverbanks, and attacked almost the entire length of the Mississippi River. Three months later, 221 survivors arrived on the coast of northern New Spain. The best summation of the entire Entrada was perhaps given by one Francisco Sebastian de Villanueva. He wrote a letter about his participation in the expedition, before eventually being drowned during the Battle of Pacaja, by the way. Anyway, quote, would that God had sent me into a good country, such as Italy, where in war, if I happen to kill an enemy, Turk, Moor, or Frenchman, there were spoils of war to be had in the form of arms, clothing, or horses, which always brought me something. But here, I have to fight with a naked man who leaps along ten or twelve paces ahead of me shooting arrows at me, 
as if at a wild beast, without my being able to overtake him. And if good luck comes to my aid and I overtake and kill him, I find nothing to take from him except a bow and a plume, as if they were any use to me, unquote. Yeah, it's too bad that chief who was going to use the, the golden arrow, the silver arrow with his wife, you know, that he could, but anyway. Well, that was the end for the DeSoto expedition. But it is not the end of this episode. In fact, before news of the Soto expedition, survivors, uh, news of the survivors even made its way to Spain, a small clique of undeterred, stout-hearted men were able to convince the Spanish crown that a, the highly respected Dominican priest, Louis Cancer de Babastro, currently in Mexico City, should be sent to La Florida on a non-military mission in order to Christianize the pagans. With that said, Louis Cancer de Babastro's single ship did not actually leave Veracruz for La Florida until 1549. The Padre was intent on avoiding the dangers at Tampa Bay, Instead, he made his way to the coast of modern-day Georgia. Balbastro made land, along with two other priests, a sailor, and a native female interpreter. Balbastro then met with some warriors, and following this brief meeting, found he could not find any of his companions. Quote, they had disappeared, unquote, he wrote in his journal. In reality, of course, they were almost certainly either enslaved or killed, and just several days later, despite this vanishing mystery, Balbastro decided to return to the shore to once again pray with the natives. As others watched from the ship, the Padre knelt to pray among some warriors. The warriors promptly crowded around him as the father prayed, and then one warrior took away his hat, while another dispatched the priest from his mortal coil with a single strike from his war club. As such, by mid-century, La Florida, or North America, or what have you, was a bit of a sore spot as far as the Spanish psyche was concerned. In contrast, elsewhere in the Americas, Spain achieved many successes. And if it weren't for two other factors, they might have simply left La Florida alone after roughly 40 years of failure. By the 1550s, however, Spain's most dangerous rival, France, was becoming more and more of a player in the New World. French colonies existed in Brazil, Jean Cartier managed to explore quite a bit of North America, and the French king was beginning to make his own claims regarding the quote-unquote empty lands of the Americas. Spain's second problem, incidentally, was somewhat related to the first, and that was the Caribbean was starting to transform into a dangerous haven by pirates for pirates by the mid-16th century. This was of particular concern to the Viceroy of Mexico at the time, Luis de Velasco. To solve these problems, Viceroy Velasco envisioned a great Camino Real, or Royal Highway, that would be similar to the royal construction at the time, uh, to, to, to what was under construction at the time in Panama, a Camino Real there, which went from Panama City on the Pacific to Nombre de Dios on the Caribbean. And that enabled a safe land route for Spanish treasure arriving from the Pacific. Velasco envisioned a safe route that would take the gold, silver, and gems from the New World beyond the dangerous Caribbean to a new, powerful colony on the Atlantic, which would likewise prevent French expansion. 
Velasco selected Don Tristan de Luna and Arellano, pardon if I'm getting his name wrong, as captain general of the expedition. Don Tristan de Luna sailed from Veracruz in June 1559. Tristan de Luna brought a massive colonial effort to La Florida. More than a thousand colonists were brought together under his command, along with hundreds of sailors and soldiers, a contingent of cavalry, several Dominican priests, 13 ships, and enough provisions to sustain a settlement for at least a year. In addition, Luna chose experienced soldiers who had served with Hernando de Soto two decades prior. In July, Luna's massive fleet reached somewhere near present-day Pensacola, Florida, and sent one ship back to Veracruz to report the good news that a suitable location for settlement had been found. But the region had been abandoned. Cavalry patrols found only one abandoned town in the region. This wasn't necessarily a good thing, mind you. The Spanish depended upon the locals for assistance feeding themselves. But Luna stuck with the location and named the settlement Santa Maria de Filipino. Construction on a fort and housing progressed until September. Then, disaster struck. A massive hurricane struck the Gulf Coast, at which time many of the colonists were still living aboard the ships. When the storm was over, one ship was beached so far inland that it was, quote, more than a cannon shot from the sea, unquote. The other ships were damaged, some were sank or destroyed, and in addition, the storm had destroyed nearly all of the colony's food stores. The death toll was no, not high, but the location was no longer suitable for settlement after the hurricane struck. Tristan de Luna ordered everyone there for to march inland. Several hundred survivors quickly consumed the beans and corn they found in native gardens, and after that, we're down to eating acorns. When Viceroy Velasco learned of the horrible news, he quickly sent supplies. But the two ships he sent did not carry enough food for the large colony. In desperation, Luna sent a contingent of 200 soldiers north looking for Cusa. But in the nearly 20 years since the DeSoto expedition, time had not been kind to the paramount chiefdom of Cusa. Veterans of that expedition remembered finding food and succor in the past, they now found those same regions to be long stretches of uninhabited areas and deserted towns. Things got bad enough that the expedition was reduced to eating leather straps and bags before they finally found an occupied town and food. It took them, the 200 men I should say, three months to find Kusa, only to learn that the chief of Kusa was either unable or unwilling to offer food for the entire colony. The chief explained to the conquistadors that his people were at war with the Napuches, who until recently had customarily paid tribute to Cusa. Shortly afterwards, the expedition joined Cusa in an attack on the Napuches. 300 Cusa warriors marched in eight squadrons of warriors, assembled in a formation of their own fashion, according to Spanish sources. The Spanish joined with roughly a quarter or perhaps a third of their force. Two captains, 50 infantry, and several cavalry marched with the Cusa along with a horse and an African slave as a gifts for the chief. As the fearsome army neared, the Napuches fled and the Cusa sacked the town. Afterwards, the Napuches agreed to pay tribute to Cusa three times a year in chestnuts, walnuts, and other fruits. By the time all of this happened, the year was now 1561, and Tristan de Luna believed that patrol was lost. He was also ill from a serious fever. 
and decided to move the settlement back to the coast. He expected to find supply ships in the spring, but was unable to find those ships, and ultimately he sent a few priests back on a boat to Havana to beg for help and move the colony back inland. Order within the colony began to de degenerate as a result of all of this. Luna wanted to find Cusa. Most of his men wanted to waste on, wait on the coast. And in fact, Tristan de Luna might very well have been killed by his own colonists had not a supply ship fortuitously arrived, just as it seemed a mutiny might end the colony. After this, the 200 soldiers returned from Cusa, and this once again brought the situation back near uh, to open mutiny. The men returning from Cusa hadn't secured any food or wealth, and that did not help the situation in the colony of Santa Maria. Viceroy Velasco knew about how horrible things were going, and so he sent Angel de Villafaña to replace Tristan de Luna and try and salvage the, company, the colony. When Villafaña arrived, he offered the colonists the opportunity to leave and resettle on the Atlantic coast. With grateful acclaim, the colonists agreed. Sixty soldiers were ordered to remain for six months in case additional colonists arrived or other supply ships appeared. But no colonists or supply ships did. And just so you know, it would be decades before Spain returned to West Florida. Villafania took the beleaguered colonists to Cuba, where most of them promptly deserted, and this delayed his expedition to the Atlantic for months, and Villafania was finally able to set sail only in late summer of 1561, taking the colonial expedition somewhere off the coast of South Carolina in an effort to restart the colony of Santa Maria. But nothing seemed to be going right. A night's time storm sank both of Villafania's supply ships shortly after they arrived on the coast, this put the final nail in the coffin of the colony of Santa Maria and left Villafania and the would-be colonists with only one option, returning to Mexico in defeat, where Villafania gave Viceroy Velasco the advice that La Florida was simply not suitable for colonization. Now with that said, back in Spain, the Council of the Indies was still undeterred. The king and other powerful men in Spain still saw La Florida as pivotally important to the empire. The council next gave the fearsome captain, Pedro Menendez de Avila, the task of making La Florida part of the Spanish empire. Ultimately, Menendez would found the colony of St. Augustine, which, if I may add, I suppose would never have been founded at all if not for that hurricane which destroyed Santa Maria de Filipino. Anyway... Pedro Menendez was a popular choice in Spain to lead the conquest of La Florida, because Spain was no longer alone in North America by the mid-century. France was starting up its own American empire by the 1550s, which included efforts in La Florida. A big part of what made Pedro Menendez a popular choice in Spain was that Menendez was an experienced sea captain who had already had experience defeating French warships off the coast of the Netherlands. Now, with that said, we're going to wait just a little while to get back to all of that until later this episode. Because first, we're going to head west. And to do that, we need to go back in time just a little bit too. Because La Florida is merely half of our tale. Excuse me, I needed a glass of water. <clears throat> Coronado dreamt of continuing past Kansas after he returned to the Pueblos, even though many of his men preferred the Tierra Nueva 
or New Land, which they called New Mexico. But in December, Coronado was involved in a riding injury, from which he never fully recovered, and which also seemed to shake him from his dreams of empire. Coronado and the Spaniards left afterwards and returned to Mexico in the spring of 1542. They left behind some Indian allies, two Franciscans, and, Africans, and some African slaves. All of them were martyred shortly afterwards by very angry Puebloans. Coronado faced charges upon his return, which he was exonerated from, but was left without much reputation. The judge wrote, quote, he is more fit to be governed than to govern, unquote. Coronado died 12 years later in Mexico City in 1554. <clears throat> Garcia Lopez de Cardenas, his most ruthless captain, was less fortunate with his legal predicament. He was tried in Spain for crimes committed against the Indians and died in prison. Despite these, this monumental failure, or perhaps in part of it, in less than a generation, Coronado was forgotten about by Spaniards. Or rather, Coronado was not forgotten. It was simply, it was forgotten that he'd ever visited the Puebloan people. It's hard to understand this unless you remember, however, that Coronado's expedition contained just about every able-bodied man in northern New Spain, and their absence immediately led to the Mixed-On War, uh, which we spoke about at length in last episode. But to remind you, the Mixed-On War was a rebellion which grew to such great size that it threatened Spanish control of all of New Spain. So afterwards, the Pueblos were simply forgotten about by almost everyone in New Spain. This happened, in fact, despite the fact that by the 1560s, the Spanish mining frontier was pushing north of Zacatecas in what is into today the state of Chihuahua. And in Chihuahua, a number of silver strikes created boom towns, the most important of which was Santa Barbara. Vecinos, or citizens of Santa Barbara, and several other nearby towns began to hear the rumors of rich lands and important peoples just beyond the northern horizons. But as time progressed in the 16th century, conquistadors no longer had unlimited freedom to steal from and subjugate native peoples, as the, uh, as, as the example of Coronado shows. That's because the Spanish government was forced into taking legal action against the most ruthless of conquistadors as a result of the famous Las Casas Sepulveda debates, which our old friend Bartolome de Las Casas, great dude in history, won, and which basically decided that Native Americans were legally people, not demons. I shit you not. This was followed up in 1573 when the Spanish crown issued the Comprehensive Orders for New Discoveries. This prohibited unlicensed parties from going to the north. Only missionaries were to quote-unquote pacify the natives. So permission was not granted to the silver barons of Santa Barbara to go north, but instead in 1581 to a party of three Franciscans headed by Fray Agustin Rodriguez. They received permission to explore and pacify the new lands of the north. When they found the Pueblo peoples previously visited by Coronado's army, the three Franciscans decided that they were the first Spaniards to visit the Pueblos and wrote back to Mexico, quote, Before this time, numerous Spaniards, with ample commissions from the viceroys of New Spain, had entered this land in an attempt to discover this settlement, and they had not found it. Thus we concluded that our project was directed by the hand of God, unquote. 
It sure did seem like there's a whole lot of lion priests in Mexico at this time. Anyway, the Rodriguez expedition named the area San Felipe de Nuevo, Mexico. Well, unfortunately for Rodriguez and his two compatriot holy men, so-called holy men, the Pueblo people apparently had not forgotten Coronado and the previous Spanish incursions. And so, those three Franciscans received the great holy gift of martyrdom shortly after their arrival. In 1582, Antonio de Espejo, a former member of the powerful Inquisition police, received permission to lead a party to New Mexico to rescue Augustin Rodriguez, who, like I said, had already been martyred, but this was unknown. And this was a-okay with Espejo anyway, because he wasn't really going north to look for friars or salvation. He wanted the fucking gold. Where's the money, Lebowski? Espejo did not spend long uh, in Tierra del Mexico after realizing, though, the Pueblos had no gold. Espejo searched east on the Buffalo Plains, he searched west in Arizona, and of course he did not find gold. But perhaps to prove his time was not wasted or to prevent damage to his pride, Espejo returned to Mexico and made up a bunch of stuff. He exaggerated in his report, such that the Archbishop of Mexico wrote back to Spain, quote, if what they tell me is true, they have indeed discovered another new world, unquote. The king, various Spanish bureaucrats, and church officials all looked for a suitable person to lead an official expedition to New Mexico. But a columnist beat them to it. His name was Castaño de Sosa. He was the lieutenant governor of Nuevo León, the most northeast province of New Spain. Sosa was Portuguese by birth. Probably also he was a converso, and which means, in case you don't know, he secretly practiced Judaism, uh, or uh, he was hiding the fact that his ancestors were Jewish. In 1589, however, while Sosa was lieutenant governor of uh, Nuevo León, the governor of Nuevo León was arrested for being a converso as well. Sosa pretty much saw the writing on the wall after that, fearing his own arrest and possibly taking others with him to flee the Inquisition. Sosa and 170 men, women, and children left the failed mining town of Almedin and headed northwards towards Pueblo country in the year 1590. This was completely illegal, of course, but Sosa assumed that any laws he violated would be forgiven a la Hernán Cortés upon uh, the successful conquest he presumed he would take uh, charge of in New Mexico. Sosa went along the Rio Grande, and then up the Pecos River to the great Pueblo of Pecos. The Spaniards fought their way inside, and from there into the heartland of the Pueblo country. They erected crosses in each Indian town they encountered. But in contrast to Sosa's belief that he would be pardoned like Cortez, the next spring, a certain Juan Morlet, Morlet uh, the holder in New Spain of the office of Protector of the Indians, arrived in Pueblo country with 40 armed men and orders from the viceroy to arrest Sosa. Sosa's colonists were astonished as they witnessed the governor arrested, quote, laden with a stout pair of leg irons and a chain that is very thick and heavy, unquote. The colonists returned, and once there, the Audiencia in, New in Mexico City found Castaño de Sosa guilty, quote, of invading lands of peaceable Indians. He was sentenced to six years of exile in the Philippines. Now, time seemed to have been changing on the Spanish frontier, but those changes weren't purely a change in morality, just, just so you know. 
By the latter decades of the 16th century, the Spanish crown was really convinced of two truths as far as its colonial possessions went. First, that it, they didn't really want any more Hernan Cortezes. The crown was legitimately worried about the power which Cortez had accrued and didn't intend on letting that happen, happen again. The second truth was that the failure on top of failure in North America had convinced the crown that no further royal expenditures needed to be made in North America. The crown began searching for a man who could colonize New Mexico without needing help from the royal coffers. But before that search was completed, another illegal entrada rode off into the great unknown, led north by two men, Antonio Gutierrez de Humana and Francisco Leva de Bonilla. They left in either 1594 or 1595. But, and because this was an illegal entrada, we don't know a lot about it, but everything we do know, basically, is that it was planned in 1593, and that information comes from a single survivor. Giuseppe Gutierrez, a Mexican Indian who was recruited for the Entrada, more on him a little later. Humana and Leva recruited Spanish and Indian men at Culiacan and at Santa Barbara, and then headed out, and while we don't know the exact route they may have gone through, you know, basically Texas, Oklahoma, and into Kansas, and I say that because I do know that the Humana and Leva expedition was headed straight for Quivira. Once they made their way there, they discovered that while the region was fully populated, of course there was, like everyone else had discovered so far, no gold and silver, and it appears that the leadership of the expedition quickly began fighting after that. They went north of Quivira, home of the Wichita people, and found little more than buffalo herds, no more settlements, and there, on the plains, Humana murdered Leva with a butcher knife, stabbing him twice while Leva was in just his shirt and breeches at night. Leva was quickly buried. Humana waved around, quote, some papers at the soldiers to try and show why he did was why what he did was necessary, unquote. And shortly afterwards, the entire expedition was killed in battle, attempting to fight the ancestors of the Apaches on, in a battle on the Great Plains, except for a few Indians like Giuseppe Gutierrez, who escaped. More on him later. Because this is going to bring us to a man called by some as the last conquistador. Juan de Oñate. Oñate is not a household name, though, like Coronado or Hernando de Soto. Yet, at 1598, at great personal cost, he led an expedition of colonists north from Mexico with a great party of wagons, settlers, and livestock, and settled in Nueva Mexico. At that time, New Mexico was much larger uh, than the state by that name today, Mark Simmons, author of The Last Conquistador, Juan de Oñate, and the Settling of the Far Southwest, wrote, quote, In every real sense, Oñate represented the end of a tradition. He was the last conquistador, the final knight in burnished armor who sallied under authority of cross and crown to find wealth, glory, and fame. In that sense, he was a medieval figure, confirming the old observation that the Middle Ages drew its last breath in the New World. On the other hand, some of his behavior and attitudes show him to have been, at the same time, a man of the new era, one grappling with changes that were rapidly overtaking his society." Unquote. Now, for people like me, that is, people born in and living in the United States 
It is a crime that Juan de Oñate is not a household name. I should preface this by saying I went to school in Georgia, on the East Coast, uh, Georgia, Virginia, and, and New Jersey, I should say, not in New Mexico. So they probably learn about him there. But regardless, Juan de Oñate is not learned about in the same way as other conquistadors, at least in the eastern parts of the United States, and that really is a shame. Because if you're going to take the perspective that history, education, in the United States um, should be fostering some sort of national story, uh, regardless of, of whether you have issues with the way that national story is told today, uh, regardless of that, that if it should be fostering some kind of national story, uh, well, then Juan de Oñate is as American as apple pie. Because what he accomplished in New Mexico really is absolutely no different than what British colonists did in Massachusetts or Virginia, other than he spoke Spanish. Oñate's early life, his career before New Mexico, is almost entirely unknown to me. But we do know that Juan de Oñate was born in Panuco in 1550. He lived a comfortable life as a youth, and despite Juan's conquest of New Mexico, it's really his father, Cristobal de Oñate, who was an even more prominent figure in Spanish America. Because Cristobal served as a frontier governor, he campaigned against Indians, uh, and he became a very powerful member of the burgeoning silver aristocracy in North, Amer uh, North Mexico. And so... This actually, you know, maybe actually that even helps explain uh, a little bit why Juan de Añate is not a household name, uh, despite the fact that he founded a state, is that he in some ways was uh, still overshadowed by his father. But Añate's background as heir to a silver fortune enabled him to pay the bills for provisioning his colonial enterprise. This is very important because the Spanish king was increasingly tight-pursed regarding North America. La Florida was a complete and utter disaster from a financial perspective and, and really any perspective as far as Spain was concerned as we've gone through. And what little appetite had the crown had for further expenditures uh, north of the Viceroyalty of Mexico was basically quickly consumed, instead attempting to keep French and English interlopers away from the Americas. And especially in attempting to protect the gold and silver which Spain was extracting and transporting back to Europe. So, at any rate, that left Oñate specifically responsible for equipping and arming 200 men, who would serve in the dual role of colonist and soldier. Many of those men had families, and Oñate also agreed to purchase the food, clothing, and other supplies they needed to travel north and during the period which the colonists would be building their homes. Further supplies included mining and blacksmithing tools, medicine, Indian trade goods, seeds, plows, and other farming implements, and the pack mules and wagon parts, carts, excuse me, to transport all of that. For spending this fortune, Añate was granted the title of Adelantado. The same rank once given to Columbus amongst other conquistadores, a much sought-after prize which enabled the recipient to become one part governor, one part military general, and one part supreme judge. These powers combined made Oñate a frontier potentate, uh, in, in, uh, because most importantly for his own ambitions, Oñate was granted independence from the Viceroy of Mexico. He served instead directly under the Council of the Indies, and in 1595, 
when Onyante received his commission. This must have seemed like the first steps into the creation of a brand new grand viceroyalty, from which Onyante would rule and of course become fabulously wealthy. From the perspective of the Spanish government, uh, this was all great news, because other than Onyate's salary of 6,000 ducats annually and the three loaned artillery pieces from the royal ars arsenal, all this came at a pittance. And Onyate found applicants easily. A great part of the allure of New Mexico was that the successful conquest under Onyate would carry with it the promotion to Hidalgo. This was the lowest rung of nobility in the Spanish word, world. Now, Mark Simmons writes that a, quote, a Hidalgo mania, unquote, uh, kind of existed in Spanish society at this time. And this made finding would-be settlers and conquistadors extremely easy, but it was also a double-edged sword. Because the same men who Oñate found were so eager to become Hidalgos were attracted to becoming Hidalgos because it meant they wouldn't have to work with their hands anymore like peasants. So Oñate began to attract a fair number of colonists who probably weren't very suited to the role of colonists, despite their enthusiasm, because many Spaniards were averse to working with the plow or the wheel. Many members of the Council of Indies were so in favor, regardless, of Oñate's proposal, in fact, though, because precisely they wanted to rid Mexico City of a lot of the idle, unlazy, and undisciplined people that uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, that the, a lot of the members of the Council of Indies uh, said, believed, plagued the capital. Now, Oñate, though, also attracted his share of detractors, principally one Don Pedro Ponce de Leon. And I, let me tell you, there were a lot of uh, wealthy Ponce de Leons. Now, Don Pedro Ponce de Leon made a lot of promises about how he was going to be able to make a much larger expedition to New Mexico than Oñate could. And despite the fact that Don Pedro de Leon was rather inexperienced in the New World, and the fact that he was very, very old, Oñate's contract was actually canceled for a short period, uh, as the king and the Council of Indies negotiated a new contract with uh, Ponce de Leon. Now, with that said, the king quickly became unhappy when he almost immediately learned that Ponce de Leon was not as wealthy as he claimed to be. Uh, Ponce de Leon was attempting to mortgage his estate in Spain to pay for all of this, and worse still, from the crown's perspective, Don Pedro Ponce de Leon had the cojones, after negotiating uh, this deal, to ask the Spanish government for a loan. Well, suddenly Oñate found himself in favor again, and his contract was promptly restored. These sorts of delays, as well as delays associated with the undisciplined colonists, meant that Oñate actually wasn't ready to leave Zacatecas until the north, to for the north until the spring of 1596. That's when the official word was given for the expedition to leave. Shouts of joy erupted from the men, and they followed up by the news not by leaving Mexico and, and marching northward, but by tournament, having tournaments and unbridled partying. It wasn't until early summer that the expedition began slowly moving northwards. It was then stomped promptly for more inspections. Now, I don't want to get caught up in all of this. This episode is long enough already. But according to one of Oñate's captains, quote, the evil influence of our enemies, unquote, continued to cause significant delays that affected the Entrada. 
Those delays caused desertions, and that took a large toll on Yanyate's financial resources by the time the final inspection was completed. The date was January 8th, 1598. By that time, Onyate's expedition was short 2,300 pesos worth of supplies, and only 129 men remained. This was 71 soldiers fewer than that which was required. The inspector, one Juan de Frias Salazar, who comes across in history as somewhat of a dickhead, required Onyate to provide additional financial securities before finally allowing the Entrada to proceed. On the condition that if Don Juan de Onyate failed to meet his obligations, his contract and authority would be stripped from him. Onyate, who claimed two years earlier to have 1,000 colonists under his command before two years of delays, finally set north at the head of a wagon train on January 26, 1598. His army, according to one of his captains, Villagre, quote, once so proud to see, now marched forth a mere shadow of its former self, unquote. The journey north was difficult, immediately so. Four days after departing, they reached the Conchos River. This river flowed so swiftly that the colonists considered it unable to be crossed, and so Juan de Oñate did so anyway on a very stout horse in an attempt to prove he could. He succeeded, albeit doing so very diagonally, carried by the current before returning back to the south side of the Mount uh, uh, and to rest uh, to the returning. Um, this was an excellent way for him, perhaps, to prove that he was a capable leader, but the diagonal nature of the crossing also made it apparent that a bridge would be required. Men on horses and ox-driven wagons were able to duplicate Onyate's feet, but that left a large flock of sheep on the other side, whose wool left them unable to swim because the wool, when wet, would have dragged the poor sheep, un the poor sheep under. So the Entrada was put to work building a bridge. They took the wheels and axles off the wagons, they built rafts and strapped the wagons in pairs to the rafts, and built a bridge across the river. The rafts were covered in earth and branches and bark until the bleeding sheep were able to cross the Conchos River, and boy, that seems like quite a day's worth of work. On the plus side, for Oñate, he woke up the next day on the other side of the river finally able to put two years of delays behind him and hoping for greener pastures ahead, or something like that. Uh, because at first, Onyate next led his expedition through 200 miles of Chihuahuan Desert to the north. Now, I want to be clear. Earlier expeditions were able to avoid this obstacle. They went east and followed the Rio Grande. Onyate could not take that easier route, however, because the Tehepe Tepehuan, excuse me, people who lived at the Rio Grande had gone to war, probably the result of Spanish slaving expeditions into their territory, and so the road to New Mexico was closed. So Oñate, Oñate and his entrada took this more difficult route, and Oñate, at the head of a wagon train, was stretched over two miles in length with and while government officials were quick to point out that Oñate did not have 200 fighting men with him, as his contract required, the reality is that the entire expedition actually comprised about two 500 individuals. There were women involved who were largely involved, ignored by the, by the reports completely. But so too were the army of hirelings, the herders, drivers, packers, 
and personal servants whose quotes whose uh, excuse me whose ranks were made up of an assorted shades of mestizos mulattoes and indians plus a few chichimeca slaves held by don juan that last bit a quote excuse me by uh oh uh, the excuse me the, by the author of the book we'll look it up in the notes i'm a uh sorry uh excuse me the route was long horrible and it uncomfortable stretches there was no water onyate sent small scouting parties ahead to seek the best paths the wagons to take though and ultimately the entrada reached the rio grande about 25 miles north of modern day el paso in april 1598 they rested there for a week afterwards onyate resumed and the settlers crossed the river on april 30th after finding a suitable spot to cross the river after crossing the rio grande in a natural grove of trees, Juan de Añate read the Requeremiento and ordered the construction of a church. And everyone cheered and celebrated. And with the signature and those magic words, albeit not read to any actual inhabitants of the region, the Kingdom of New Mexico was created. The next day, the expedition got rolling again, and they finally met some locals who greeted the Spaniards by making the sign of the cross and repeating the words Manxo, Manxo which meant peaceful was in their language, according to Añate. The Spaniards henceforth called them the Manso Indians, a name which stuck through history, and the Mansos helped Añate find a suitable trail northwards. Unfortunately for the Spaniards, they could not fo follow the river the entire journey. For another 90-mile stretch, geography forced them away from water again, where Añate wrote, quote, We all fare badly from thirst, unquote. At the same time, however, Oñate and the expedition were constantly reminded that they really were not the first Spaniards in the region. In places they traveled, the trail was deeply scored with magan marks made from the illegal venture of Gaspar Castaño de Gososa. And in fact, one of Oñate's captains, Juan de Vitoria, had been part of Castaño de Sosa's illegal expedition. And another of Oñate's captains was sent ahead to reconnoiter. Pablo de Aguilar was given orders to find the nearest Pueblo and to scout it out, but not to enter it, and frankly to try not to make his presence known. Aguilar went off and promptly entered said nearest Pueblo anyway, and when he returned eight days later, Oñate was furious and nearly had Aguilar strangled to death when Aguilar told him what he did. The army pled with the captain for leniency, however. Aguilar retained his life, and Oñate was low on supplies. He was fearful that the Indians would take their corn and flee to the mountains. He knew that his colonial venture depended upon cooperation to some extent with the natives, which is why he said he was so angry at Aguilar. The people of that, uh, of that pueblo, Kualaku, the southernmost of the Piro-speaking pueblos, were not interested in the sort of cooperation that involved them essentially bending over for the conquistadors and handing over all their food. So when Oñate decided to halt for a few days at Kualaku, the entire population abandoned their town, took the food with them, and watched the bearded strangers from a distance, which the Spaniards described as agitated and suspicious behavior. Other Piro-inhabited uh, Pueblos followed the same strategy, which that of taking and f fleeing and taking all their food with them. And so Oñate villaged several deserted Pueblos before he finally was able to uh, reach friendlier Puebloan peoples. Now this was at a large settlement on the Rio Grande River, which the Spaniards called Socorro. 
Spanish for assistance, a name which survives to this day. Afterwards, they reached another friendly pueblo and slept in the kivas of that town instead of their tents. This was likely done because the population was numerous enough that the Spaniards were afraid they might be attacked and that the best possible place to defend themselves might be within the walls of the pueblo rather than in their tents. The Spaniards named that pueblo New Seville. They continued on and on June 24th made a fortuitous discovery at another pueblo, which Oñate named San Juan Bautista. There, one native man astonished the Spaniards by speaking Spanish. Now, not a whole lot, mind you. He knew Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's all he could really say, besides two names, Tomas and Cristobal. Oñate deduced correctly that Tomas and Cristobal were the names of two Mexican Indians, servants or slaves who'd arrived on a previous expedition and who'd stayed behind. And so Oñate continued onwards, desperately now looking for Tomas and Cristobal. Thus far, Oñate was really unable to communicate effectively with the natives of New Mexico. But if he could find these two men, things would change. Unfortunately, this part of New Mexico, around modern-day Albuquerque, was practically depopulated as farmers fled in fear for their safety in advance of Oñate's army. Now, 60 years before, this was the same region that had seen devastation at the hands of Coronado and his men, and that is exactly why so few remained around this time around. Now, near modern-day Bernalillo, the Spaniards finally found a pueblo Excuse me, that was not deserted. The pueblo was called Poiret, and inside were priests who'd recently whitewashed the walls of their kiva and wherein they entertained the Spaniards. The next day, some Spaniards could see underneath, however, the dried whitewashing, was there was a mural that depicted the martyrdom of Augustin Rodriguez and Fray Lopez, two Franciscans who were stoned to death in the region in 15, 1582. Oñate, who was one of the men who saw this, decided that they all needed to keep this quiet from the rest of the expedition. Afterwards, they regardless left Pure quickly and reached another pueblo, upriver, which they renamed Santo Domingo. Oñate's intelligence suggested that Tomas and Cristobal would be found inside, and so the captain had members of his bodyguard enter the pueblo in secret at night to search for it hoping to vent the flight of Thomas and Cristobal, who were then found and brought out of bed to Oñate. The men had decided to stay in New Mexico after arriving with the expedition of Castaño de Sosa, and were at this point in their lives, up to this point in their lives, I should say, living happily ever after, married, and undoubtedly weren't particularly happy with the recent developments in their life being dragged out of bed. From Oñate's perspective, however, of course, he was delighted. Now, the governor could communicate with the natives of New Mexico. Oñate immediately sent out a call to the leaders of the region. On July 9th, he then received native leaders, leaders living in all four directions from Santo Domingo. He informed them of the requerimiento. Now, we don't really know how these elders interpreted this, but according to the Spanish, they willingly knelt, kissed the hand of Father Martinez, and pledged allegiance to Spain. Oñate spent the next six days in the valley before sending messengers to the main wagon train, which was lagging behind basically this whole time, remember it's two miles long, that they were all to meet up in the valley of San Juan. 
about 35 miles upriver from Santo Domingo, and that this would be the site of their new settlement. He picked this region for a rather simple reason. While the Tiwa people near Pure, for example, had already learned to shun Spanish contact, north of modern-day Santa Fe were the Tewa people, who had significantly less experience with the Spaniards and thus were much friendlier. On July 11th, Oñate reached his destination. Six months after starting out and three years after signing the contract granting him the opportunity to make his fortune, Oñate finally reached what the Spaniards renamed San Juan Pueblo, one of two twin villages that made up the largest of the Tewa settlements in New Mexico. Across the Rio Grande was another smaller pueblo, Unge, which controlled much excellent farmland, and this was probably also key to Oñate's decision to settle at that spot. In doing so, Oñate had finally accomplished something noteworthy. His wagon trains and the campsites which they had set up along the route extended the Camino Real north by 600 miles and would be used by travelers for the next 300 years. As the colony began to settle, Oñate took a small contingent of horsemen, one of the friars, and began to introduce himself to the other pueblos of the region. He rode west, then north, and eventually by that point had ridden basically the entire length of the Pueblo land. Oñate claimed to have found a quantity of ore on one of the nor- in one of the northern pueblos, but despite his personal enthusiasm, his discovery was not nearly enough to provide the sort of economic stability that his colony required. The economy of New Mexico was based almost entirely on corn, not metal. One priest was recorded as describing the situation. Quote, Here corn is God, unquote. Oñate began immediately preparing for winter. A big reason why corn was so important in New Mexico uh, was the winter. And Oñate thus began to steal apartments from various Pueblo families and reassigning them to individual Spanish colonists. Further, he ordered the collection of blankets and robes for redistribution amongst the Spaniards. His men literally stole clothing off the backs of people in order to do this. And then finally, Oñate introduced new taxes on Indian foodstuffs like corn, dried buffalo, and deer meats and other foods. And this was going over about as well as you imagine it would. Now, with that said, speaking of disgruntled people in New Mexico, not a lot of the Spaniards under Oñate's command were very happy either. If you can believe it, within 48 hours of the caravan setting up camp, a mutiny began. 45 soldiers and officers, fully a third of the expedition, plotted to desert and return to Mexico. They were going to take a bunch of slaves, whatever other plunder they could get from the Pueblos on their way out, and according to Añate, their chief complaint was that there was no gold or silver in New Mexico. And Añate actually had further angered his colonists by forbidding them from enslaving the Indians. Now, Mark Simmons, the author of the... uh, of Oñate's uh, biography, and he's the guy I can't remember from the quote uh, earlier. Quote, it is possible, too, that a majority of the mutineers actually never believed New Mexico would yield any silver, and it signed on fully intending to resort to slaving. Illegal slaving expeditions were not uncommon along the northern border in this period. One wonders how many of the colonists were in reality professional slavers, 
taking advantage of Oñante's colonizing Entrada to get a free ride to the populous land of the Dasal Pueblos, unquote. Oñante arrested two captains and a soldier who were identified as ringleaders and condemned them to death via strangulation. One was the, quote, troublesome Captain Aguilar, unquote, who'd already missed execution once. The men and the friars interfered again. Oñate was against his entire army in trying to execute the ringleaders of the mutiny, and so he gave them mercy. Now, you'd think this would lead to some continued simmering tensions. And they, it literally probably did. But on August 21st, the Spaniards record having undergone, quote, a sermon of tears and universal peace, unquote, wherein the colonists and Oñate seemed to have buried the hatchet. Two days later, construction began on the first church in New Mexico. The church was finished on the 8th of September and was followed by a week-long celebration of games. And as a result, games that were both Moorish and Christian in origin were played. Quote, the rousing history of the Spanish Crusades was transformed into a ritualized and stylized body of popular spectacle and entertainment, unquote. After this full week of celebrations commenced, which included bullfights, tilting matches, and a dramatic play, which was specifically written for the purpose, well, at the end of that week, the celebration ended, ended with a thunderous volley from the artillery. Wow. Now, during that week, a lot of diplomacy took place. Uh, Oñate tried to impress and intimidate the people of the Pueblos, whose chiefs he invited to the celebrations. Some villages sent spies, but unfortunately for, say, the Acoma, those spies reported back to their homeland that while Spanish artillery and harquebuses made a lot of noise, they didn't seem to cause any damage. And this would be a devastating error. Now, with that said, not all of the colonists were very happy. On September 12th, four quote-unquote evildoers, according to Villagra, stole horses and fled back to Mexico. Oñate was furious and ordered Villagra to lead a party to arrest the four men, two Spanish brothers and two Portuguese men. The four horse thieves, named Juan and Matias Rodriguez, Manuel Portuguese, and Juan Gonzalez, made it completely out of New Mexico before Villagra and his company caught up with them and, through some treachery, convinced the men to give themselves up, claiming their lives would be spared. In reality, Oñate had ordered the men's executions, Villagra promptly had Manuel Portuguese and Juan Gonzalez beheaded, and their right hands were cut off and pickled so that Villagra would have proof of the deed. The Rodriguez brothers, however, were friends of Villagra, and even though, according to the sources, it had been their idea to steal the horses in the first place, Villagra let his two friends go. Now, technically, however, all of this occurred not in New Mexico, but Mexico which meant Villagra had technically no authority to do this. And in fact, later, he and his accomplices were charged in Mexico City. But for now, uh, all of that aside, since he was very close to Santa Barbara, Villagra stopped there before returning to write a glowing letter about how amazing New Mexico was, how nobody ever wanted to leave, and that surely silver would be struck in the hills very, very soon. Of course, back at San Juan, that was not true. Oñate was struggling to stay in command. He was running out of food. Everyone was angry. But on the plus side, he did learn that the food stores for the colony might be replenished by the buffalo herds to the east. Oñate sent his nephew Vicente in charge of 60 men to go and find and hunt buffalo. 
There they met Apaches who guided the Spaniards to wild cattle herds, as the Spanish referred to uh, the American bison. But after several weeks of hunting, the party returned in early November with enough jerky to supply the company through the winter. Oñate toured his new kingdom while his hunting party was out to visit Pueblos, and uh, he visited the Pueblos who had not yet rendered submission, I should say, starting with a coma. And he also started looking for valuable minerals, which in the short term meant amounted basically to the quote-unquote discovery of uh, salt. In late October, Oñate visited six pueblos of the Zuni Indians who lived on the New Mexico and Arizona border. There, Oñate was surprised to uh, quote-unquote discover old crosses from the times of Coronado, as well as the son of an Aztec, who the Aztec was now dead, uh, had traveled with Coronado and made his home with the Zuni. At this point, despite the growing anger from the Acoma, Oñate was planning a great empire, stretching to the Pacific, and was planning on sending men there to construct a port. And as you imagine, all this quote-unquote discovering, and not to mention rendering submission, though, wasn't really making the people who lived in New Mexico very happy. In particular, the very defensible Pueblo of Acoma became a center for resistance. Relatedly, Oñate, quote-unquote, discovered his Captain Villagre, barefoot and near dead from exposure. Apparently, Velagre had been ambushed near a coma. He had fallen into a pit that killed his horse, and was and to survive had ditched most of his stuff and put his shoes on backwards to uh, uh, hide his hide his trail and to escape. By sheer luck, his life was found because he was found by his fellows instead of angry Pueblos. But at any rate, Oñate received worse news than that on December twelfth regarding a coma, who clearly did not want Spanish overlords. Bernabe de las Casas, one of Oñate's officers, uh, reported that Oñate's nephew, Captain Juan de Zaldiver, was dead. So, too, were ten soldiers and a number more wounded. The Acoma were in a state of rebellion, and the entire colony might collapse. Now, the colony of New Mexico was pretty sullen after the loss of Zaldiver, uh, who was killed with other soldiers at Acoma when they went to the to collect grain, and uh, in response, the citizens of Acoma bashed their heads in with rocks. Now, a few of those tax collectors, however, managed to escape by uh, leaping off the edge of the mesa, which Acoma was on. Now, some of them who did that died, but others landed in a sand dune, where they were discovered unconscious by one of the Spaniards who remained at the bottom of the mesa. Those who were killed on top of the mesa were tossed below, and the victorious Acoma celebrated by dancing around the edge of the mesa, brandishing Spanish swords and helmets. Now, the stories of that day terrified, uh, from the survivors, I should say, these, those stories terrified Oñate and the Spaniards in New Mexico, because they knew if the rebellion in Acoma spread, they would probably all be doomed. In October, uh, excuse me, in December 28th, at the end of 1598, Oñate began judicial proceedings against the Acoma. On January 10th, he summoned the army and delivered a proclamation that the residents would be prosecuted with a war of blood and fire. Oñate placed his surviving nephew and brother to Juan, one Vicente de Zeldiver, in command of 72 men with orders to attack to Acoma. And on January 22nd, 1599, Zeldiver attacked at about 3 p.m. The host of his force attacked at the main entrance of the Peñol, 
making as much noise as possible, which included trumpet blasts. This is a foolish strategy, if it weren't a diversion. In the meantime, Zeldiver, Villagre, and ten other men quickly rode around to the back of the mass of rock, and, quote, we climbed the high, rolls, the high walls of this immense mass of stone, for there were none to oppose us, unquote. At one point, Vicente del Zeldiver saw an Indian clad in the clothing of his dead father, Juan, and, quote, cleft his skull asunder, unquote. The battle raged all day, but Zeldiver and the Spaniards retained their foothold on top of the mesa, and the next day brought reinforcements. History tells us of the battle that Zeldiver, of the battle that Zeldiver was a youthful commander in his mid-twenties, a hero, really, quite a skilled and athletic combatant. Now, I should also note that history specifically tells us this because Zeldiver himself wrote a poem about the battle with himself as the hero. So, anyway, late into the second day of that battle, of the battle, Zeldiver ordered two artillery pieces hauled up the mesa, which was the beginning of the end for the defenders of Acoma. Those artillery pieces began to belch fire and death, and even so, the people of Acoma continued to fight, but the Spaniards pitched forward, aided by their canyons, and they set fire to houses and kivas one by one. The slaughter was tremendous. Many of the defenders died rather than surrender. Some leapt from the bridge from the ledge onto the rocks below. Others asked their family members to kill them. At the end of the third day, what remained of the population was about 500 people, almost entirely women and children. Perhaps a few escaped, the rest dead. However many that is, is unknown to history exactly, but may they rest in peace. The survivors did not get peace, eternal or otherwise. Onyate followed the battle with three days of legal proceedings against the survivors of the battle. On February 12th, he issued his sentence to the people of Acoma. Males over age 25 to have one foot cut off and condemned to 20 years of personal servitude. That number amounted to 24 individuals. Males 12 to 25 years old condemned to 20 years of personal servitude. Women over 12 years of servitude condemned to 20 years of personal servitude. Two Mokis captured in the Acoma fight to have their right hand cut off and set free to take home news of their punishment. Children under age 12 to be handed over to Father Martinez and Zeldiver for a Christian upbringing. 60 of the girls were afterwards taken to Mexico City for parceling among the convents there. I should say that none of them ever saw their homeland or their relatives again. The condemned Indians lost their hands over a period of days, both at Santo Domingo and at other Indian Peñols, in order to maximize the effect of the fear of the punishment. So fuck Juan de Añate. He might have founded New Mexico, but he's not a great dude. Now, there's no word to describe what that is except for genocide, just because it didn't exist uh, in, in the 16th century. Now, the only good news I have for you regarding this incident is that two years later, 200 or 300 enslaved Acoma people escaped the Spanish. They went back to the ruins of their pueblo, and they rebuilt their village. It remains occupied to this day. Over those next two years, Oñate struggled to attract investment and settlers to the colony. The Spanish friars 
struggled to convert Indians to Christianity. And the colonists, like Vicente del Zadiver, struggled looking for silver. To keep up the spirits of the colonists, Zaldiver passed around a really nice silver nugget to his men under his command. But one day, when one of the priests questioned if the silver had in fact actually been unearthed in New Mexico, well, Zaldiver had no reply. At any rate, Oñate quickly angered another indigenous group in New Mexico. In the year 1600, the Jumano people gave Juan de Oñate a shipment of rocks instead of a shipment of grain. Oñate was furious and demanded tribute in the form of cotton mantas. The Jumanos offered only 12, which Oñate found insulting, though I'm not sure any number of cotton mantas might have really spared them of what came next. Because Oñate marched soldiers to the Jumano Pueblo and ordered a corner of the Pueblo set on fire, and then ordered his troops to discharge a volley of harquebus fire into a crowd of people gathered on the rooftops, this ended up killing five or six Jumanos and wounded a number of others. Two men were henceforth identified as war leaders and promptly captured and hanged under Oñate's direction. Then Oñate spoke to the people through his interpreter. And when a question arose as to whether or not the interpreter was correctly interpreting or not, Oñate ordered the interpreter hanged as well. So, all righty then. Now that incident ended without further violence or handing over of food or mantas or by the Jamanos or random hangings, but tensions were still simmering until some time near Christmas of 1600. That's when five Spaniards rode through Jumano country and were attacked. Two were killed, and when news of this incident spread and of another rebellion brewing, the Franciscan priests of New Mexico urged the governor to take action. Reinforcements arrived from Mexico on Christmas Eve, which was a joyous occasion for the Spaniards, and with fresh men and supplies, a punitive expedition was planned, to be led by Vicente de Salvador, de Zaldiver, excuse me, who by this time had attained the rank of Mese de Campo, which his brother had previously held before his death. Zaldiver headed out in the spring of 1601. His soldiers were attacked with stones and arrows as soon as they got into Jumano territory before the Jumano army then quickly retreated behind the walls of their strongest pueblo. For the next six days, Zaldiver, and his men led a, Zaldiver led his men in a series of skirmishes and was himself seriously wounded before the conquistadors ultimately captured the village, burned it, and distributed one adult male to each of his soldiers as a slave. Now, later in the year, Fray Juan de Escalonia wrote that in the Jumano War, more than 800 men, women, and children were killed, and three pueblos were burned along with their supplies of corn. Now, I should say that Pueblo resistance in the pueblos uh, quieted down in the valley for a time, and that gave Juan de Oñate the time to ponder the mysteries of the world. And I assure you that the conquistadors like Juan de Añate were most interested in the mysteries of the world that involved gold and silver. And that brings us back to Quivira, which, as you'll call from the Coronado expedition, was a place in Kansas where more corn farmers lived in a large town. But, of course, as we know, but Oñate did not, there was no gold or silver there. But... Oñate and his men did not hear about Quivira from Coronado. Coronado. They heard it from one Giuseppe Gutierrez. 
the aforementioned once enslaved indigenous Mexican who was attached to the unauthorized entrada of Antonio Gutierrez de Humana and Francisco Leva de Bonilla. Now, Giuseppe escaped the final defeat of the entrada uh, against uh, uh, the ancestors of the Apache people shortly um, uh, after, uh, shortly after uh, the uh, uh, Humana stabbed Leva in Kansas. Now, he only had freedom after escaping the Spaniards, though, uh, for nine days. Because after that, he was captured uh, by the Apaches and was forced to live a year in captivity with them. But in 1586 or 1597, he escaped captivity again and made his way to New Mexico and had been living with Puebloan peoples until February of 1599 when he was interviewed by one Juan de Oñate. Now, for the record, other than, uh, other than Gutierrez telling Oñate about how the expedition he was a part of, the Humana Leva expedition, had ended in spectacular fashion, and the fact that some sort of great settlement did in fact exist, I'm not exactly sure why Oñate thought really that he might find any gold or silver there, but, you know, oh well. Oñate and the Spaniards, I think they just really wanted to believe that the gold would be, or the silver would be found. And in addition, this gave Oñate a, a chance to sign or reestablish some authority. In June of 1601, he departed New Mexico in command of an expedition and went off in search of Quivira. Now, with that said, Oñate was further driven, uh, obviously, as a way to stave off the further mutinies. Um, and, and, and it's... it's I think it's questionable that he would do this because him going off with these soldiers meant, I think, that rebellion against Spanish rule by Pueblo peoples would be more likely. Um, but anyway, despite, uh, despite that threat, quote, by 1561, uh, excuse me, 1601, goodness gracious, by 1601, quote, life in New Mexico had been reduced to a simple formula for the Spaniards, fending off cold and hunger, unquote. The crops that the Spaniards brought with them to New Mexico didn't do very well. Most of those crops had come from a warm Mediterranean climes or from Mexico, also a warm climate. Those cold winter nights in the mountains were not something that the, those crops uh, did well in. So whatever fears Oñate might have had of more rebellion for the Pueblos, I think that fear, I guess that fear must have been superseded by the fear of mutiny. Shortly before heading out on the plains, Oñate, in fact, committed a quote-unquote dastardly killing of the uh, aforementioned Captain Pablo de Aguilar, who had already escaped death sentences from Oñate twice before. Now, whatever his final offense was is unknown to history. But regardless, Oñate and his servants entered Aguilar's tent at night. They were armed with swords and butcher knives. They attacked Aguilar, who begged to be allowed to confess his sins. Apparently, Oñate ignored his pleas and delivered the final sword thrust, which dispatched his former captain of his life. Another Spaniard, Captain Alonso de Sosa, asked permission for Oñate to depart and apparently was granted this permission. But before Sosa could leave, Oñate ordered Vicente de Saldivar and some others to run him down. Oñate apparently changed his mind and Sosa was stabbed to death, and his body was hidden under a pile of stones. 
to quote uh, the Captain Louis Vasco de Velasco regarding the murder of Sosa, quote, in view of this incident, the relatives of Captain Sosa did not ask again for permission to leave, unquote. Now, Velasco wrote about that in a letter smuggled out of New Mexico because Oñate had banned mail, leaving his failing colony. Oñate, in fact, risked life and limb to write to the Viceroy and whoever else in Mexico would listen, for that matter. Quote, we are all depressed, cowed, and frightened, expecting death at any moment, unquote. Be that as it may, Oñate must have had some loyalists. He handpicked 70 well-equipped men, a few guides and slaves to handle the baggage, eight carts and the artillery, and went out into the plains in search of gold. In the Texas panhandle, they found, of course, no gold, but ate wild plums and fish, and met small bands of smiling Apaches, who offered gifts of exchange uh, with the Spaniards. Near Oklahoma, they were astonished by hordes of the monstrous cattle, and they gorged on those buffalo steaks, which Spaniards swore were tastier than beef. And finally, they made their way to the Arkansas River, the home of the cadoan speaking Indians, who in later times would be known as the Wichita. They invited Oñate's army into their large towns made of round houses, thatched with prairie grass. The largest settlement contained 1,200 houses and was called by Spaniards the Great Settlement. Good for them. The, Span the people of Quivira wore seashells on their foreheads, so Oñate mistakenly thought that the South Sea was close, but in reality, those shells came from trade with other Mississippian, with Mississippian peoples closer to the coast, uh, uh, either, either the Atlantic or the, or the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Since there was no gold, Oñate went north. He informed his army of the riches they would acquire when they reached the passage to the South Sea that was surely just a little bit over the horizon. Pocamazaya. Of course, going north did not lead to uh, a passage to the sea, and neither did it lead to north and silver. Instead, what Oñate's army found was an angry group of Indians who the Spanish called the Escanjaques. The Escanjaques massed 1,500 troops out on the plains and fought the Spaniards to a standstill until Oñate finally retreated. Shortly afterwards, the Span soldiers under him had had enough. They told Oñate it was time to go back. The official log of the expedition records, quote, it was a hard decision for the governor to accept, and he expressed strong feelings against ending the expedition, unquote. At this point from the Rio Grande, they had covered nearly 600 miles, and while they'd found prosperous corn farmers, more prosperous, in fact, than those in New Mexico, they found no other riches and no water passage. Five months after departing, the army returned, and to Oñate's surprise, though he should not have been surprised, as we just discussed. Things were going very poorly in New Mexico. F many colonists had sold off their holdings in New Spain to try their fortune in New Mexico, but no silver strikes were forthcoming. Neither was Oñate able to distribute the encomiendas as he had promised. The Pueblo Indians had relatively little to give, some corn and some cotton, but nothing like the amount of surplus goods that were produced in Mexico. In New Mexico, there was only enough surplus to steal from the Pueblos 
so that only the neediest of Spanish settlers were given food and clothing. Most irrigated land, further, was in the hands of the Pueblo Indians, so even if the Spanish had wanted to become farmers, it would have been nearly impossible for them to succeed. And of course, as we've talked about, I assure you, they did not want to become farmers. Some tried herding cattle, and in fact later, a future generation of New Mexicans discovered that wealth would be ma- could be made in New Mexico by herding sheep. But when Oñantes, a colonist attempting raising cattle, they found the short native grasses to the region providing little food for large cattle herds. That left the only benefit as the title of Hidalgo. Now, for those who went with Oñate to Mexico, that left, uh, that left those conquistadors with a question. In the words of Oñate's biographer Mark Simmons, quote, What use is a title when a man's children cried with hunger? Unquote. Now, in New Mexico, this question was first whispered, then spoken aloud, casually in conversation, and then spoken openly by the colonists in church, where even the friars thought the Spanish should leave New Mexico. They argued that the Pueblos were suffering too many injustices from the conquistadors to win converts to Christianity, while Oñate and his army were out exploring Kansas in search of Cuivara, a number of colonists in New Mexico began to steal supplies, and they just headed back to Mexico. There were loyalists, to be sure, remaining in New Mexico, but not enough of them to stop either the thefts or the departures of the disgruntled colonists. Now, with that said, there were enough Oñate loyalists that one of them brought a dozen written statements back to the Viceroy of Mexico to counter the, quote, cowardice, treachery, and disloyalty, unquote, of the deserters, who returned to Mexico and claimed that Oñate was inept and that the kingdom was devoid of wealth. In 1602, these conflicting reports made their way all the way back to Madrid and the Council of Indies. The next year, an investigation began into Oñate's fitness for office. But with that said, Oñate was not done campaigning, despite his legal troubles. In October of 1604, Oñate went west again. Or, excuse me, Oñate went west, not east. He led an expedition to look for a port to the Pacific. In late January 1605, his expedition reached an estuary of the Colorado River at the head of the Gulf of California. As thrilling of a sight as this must have been for Oñate and the men, it really didn't amount to jack or squat as far as valuable discoveries go. Of course, by 1605, the Gulf of California had already been discovered many, many times by Spaniards. Oñate resigned, ultimately, from his office in 1607 and placed his nearly illiterate 18-year-old son, Cristobal Oñate, as the teenage governor of San Gabriel and New Mexico in 1607. He did this basically to try and escape the legal case that was building against him, and around the same time, he, he or the colonists under him, uh, began to move the capital to a new site, Santa Fe. Um, this was about 20 miles away, and many of the colonists moved there. It's not entirely clear why this move occurred, but it was probably mainly related to the fact that by 1607, uh, groups indigenous to the Great Plains were raiding both the New Mexico colony and their Pueblo allies. They were burning villages, stealing livestock, and transforming life on the Great Plains forever as a result. 
Despite the trouble and the changes, the colony would live on, however. It grew slowly as New Mexico developed into a Spanish borderland. Now, as for Añante, those colonists who had been become disaffected and returned to Mexico finally succeeded in bringing charges against him in 1613. His list of crimes were lengthy. They included everything from unjustly hanging to Indians, to using excessive force in the Acoma Rebellion, to living immorally by committing adultery, to executing Spanish deserters. Oñate was condemned to perpetual exile from New Mexico and ordered to pay a fine and court costs. This was still a relatively lenient sentence, considering all of the literal murdering he was convicted of. But Oñate was a very important name in Spanish history. For generations, the Oñate name was, uh, well, in Spain, it was associated with a record of outstanding service to the crown. And so if you take that into account, his light sentence uh, makes a little more sense. Uh, at any rate, that catches us back up with the West, wherein in almost a century of conquest, all that had happened was the result of the creation of a tiny borderland. And we're going to return to the situation in New Mexico and the repercussions of Spanish livestock being stolen by Angry Plains Indians shortly. But for now, we have to return to La Florida. Now, if we may pick things back up, after the failure of DeSoto, back on the Atlantic side of the Americans, by the middle of the 16th century, French imperialism was a growing problem for Spanish shipping. The failures of the colonies of DeSoto, Luna, Villafagne, were all very expensive, and that had left a very lingering bad taste in King Philip II's mouth. He wondered, quote, whether it would be expedient to continue populating Florida or not, unquote. This changed, though, in 1562. That's when French Huguenots succeeded in establishing a colony on an island called Charlesfort. Spain launched an offensive from Cuba against Charles Fort in 1564, but found it was already abandoned, so they destroyed the buildings of the fort. But in 1565, reports came to Spain that the Huguenots had established another colony on the Atlantic called Fort Caroline. As such, France really forced a change in relationship between Spain and La Florida. In New Mexico, King Philip was content to allow wealthy citizens able to outfit their own expeditions to do so, and to reward them as such with the title of Adelantado. After many expensive failures in Florida, and just 10 days before the reports of Florida Caroline came to him, he had actually signed a similar contract with Pedro Menendez de Aviles to establish another colony in La Florida. So the king was very unhappy to learn then, just days after, just after signing this contract, that he was going to have to spend a lot of his own money after all, due to a small provision in the contract that forced the Spanish government to help protect Pedro Menendez's colony against foreign threats. The reason this made Philip II so unhappy was that he had learned the opposite lesson of his father, King Charles. 
In Charles' early reign, Cortes took Mexico, Pizarro took Peru, and Magellan circled the globe. In contrast, Philip's early reign saw, amongst other things, years that turned to decades of failure in North America, and in many ways had learned the opposite lessons of his father regarding Spanish expansion. Charles found his adelantados so successful that they were difficult to control. Philip was happy when he could find adelantados who had the wealth to support their own explorations without draining the royal treasury. Now, with European rivalries being what they were in the 16th century, this meant that Philip was willing, after all, to spend a lot more money in La Florida than New Mexico to try and keep his rivals out. And so with that said, he could not have selected a better man for the Adelantado of La Florida than Pedro Menendez de Aviles. In the words of David Weber, author of Spanish Frontier in North America. Menendez was, quote, a man of ability, knowledge, dynamism, and family connections, unquote. In addition to establishing settlements, Menendez was further tasked in his contract to find foreigners and, quote, cast them out by the best means possible, unquote. Born on the north coast of Spain in the Asturian city of Eviles in 1519, Menendez had years of experience on both sides of the Atlantic. He was a successful businessman and traded extensively in the Indies. In the 1550s, he served as captain general of the fleet which Spain sent to and from the Indies and is credited with the planning of the first transatlantic convoys which the Spanish began forming in 1555-56. He was also a smuggler albeit somewhat less successfully. Uh, I say that because Menendez was once convicted and jailed in Spain for introducing contraband from the Caribbean back to Europe. Now, what really separated Menendez from other would-be candidates for La Florida, however, was the fact that Menendez's first victory came while he was in command of just a single ship. When Menendez came across three French frigates who were attacking a group of slower Spanish freighters off the coast of Galicia, he managed to uh, separate two of the frigates, capturing them one at a time, and then drove off the third. Afterwards, the name Pedro Menendez was very well known throughout Spain and France. Now, at any rate, Menendez had huge plans for Florida. He envisioned nothing less than the full and complete economic domination of the entire continent from Florida to Newfoundland, and then west to Mexico. In the north, Menendez wanted to explore and take control of the valuable cod fisheries, and in the south, he would build a Camino Royal, a royal road that would enable valuable sh silver shipments from Mexico and to bypass the pirate-infested waters of the Caribbean, and of course, enable Menendez to dip his hands into that trade. Now, finally, he envisioned Spanish control of the inland parts of the continent, where he was certain that, if not some magical place like Quivera might still be found, a literal uh, new, new Mexico, well, at least he would surely find some valuable silver or gold deposits somewhere in the mountains, right? Well, he also believed, like others of his generation did, that a water strait existed somewhere in the north, which would enable him to control trade to Asia. 
and all of this amounted to quite a grand vision, where La Florida would control all of North America, acting as a hub for exporting hides, sugar, and other commodities. It would dominate the sea routes to Asia, and it would provide a critical land road to the silver mines of Mexico. Now, Menendez reached the coast of Florida on August 28th, 1565, in command of a massive fleet of 34 ships carrying 2,646 soldiers, sailors, and settlers. They landed somewhere south of the Bahia de Carnival, but within days of sailing, within days of re that, they uh, sailed north in an attempt to find the French Fort Caroline. Instead, Menendez sighted an excellent harbor, which he called Santo Augustine. So the colony was quickly moved and officially founded on September 8th. Unfortunately for Menendez and the unloading colonists and settlers, the French knew the Spanish had arrived. Now we're going to talk a bit more about Fort Caroline in a later episode of the early, uh, on the early French Atlantic. But for now, suffice to say, the French commander of Fort Caroline began immediately sent warships south in an attempt to destroy and dislodge the Spaniards from Santo Augustine before they could build any fortifications. Um, now, with that said, Menendez planned a land invasion. He planned on, he figured, found out where Fort Caroline was and he planned a 40 mile trek through marshlands that would enable his men to surprise the men at Fort Caroline. Now, in a world without weather, I, can only presume that the French would have the French would have succeeded in destroying Santo Augustine before it could get off the ground, but instead, a hurricane struck the coast, which forced the French warships out to sea before they ultimately sank along the coast of modern-day Daytona Beach. In contrast, the Spaniards in the marshes were able to weather the torrential winds and rains. Now, only a few soldiers remained at Fort Caroline to defend against Menendez's attack, and the fort was quickly overrun. A massacre followed, as devastating as anything the Spaniards perpetrated against their native enemies. Of the 250 or so inhabitants at Fort Caroline, all but 50 were massacred. After the battle, more than 100 Frenchmen were hanged from nearby trees, quote, hanged as heretics, not as Frenchmen, unquote, according to Martin Menendez, because French Huguenot settlers were Protestants. Menendez had no regrets about this display of brutality. He saw the hurricane as a sign of God's pleasure with his actions. On September 21st, 1565, Menendez founded his second colony, Santo Mateo on the St. John's River, on the ruins of Fort Caroline. When Menendez returned to St. Augustine, he learned from the Timaquan natives of Florida that a large number of foreigners were stranded on a beach to the south. Menendez went south and battled the Huguenots there. Well, what he found were half-drowned and starving survivors from the hurricane, but one Frenchman swam across an inlet and asked the Spaniards for help, and Menendez offered it, as long as the French unconditionally surrendered. In groups of ten, the Spanish ferried the Frenchmen to safety, fed them, tied them up, and slaughtered them. Of the 200 French survivors, only a 17 escaped with their lives, thanks to confessing that they were Catholic. The others were butchered by sword and knife at the command of the Adelantado, Pedro Martinez, Menendez. I keep wanting to call him the pitcher, Pedro Martinez. Uh, anyway, 
Bartolome Barrientos was a Latin professor at the University of Salamanca in Spain and a contemporary of Menendez. Barrientos gave the Spanish point of view, defending Menendez's actions. Quote, he acted as an excellent inquisitor, for when asked if they were Catholics or Lutherans, they dared to proclaim themselves publicly in Lutherans, without fear of God or shame before men. And thus he gave them that death which their insolence observed. And even in that, he was very merciful in granting them a noble and honorable death by cutting off their heads when he could legally have burned them alive. He killed them, I think, rather by divine inspiration, unquote. Well, anyway, like, I mean, that's just my opinion, man, but like Pedro Menendez was kind of a real piece of shit. And Bartolome Barrientos was kind of probably a douchebag, too. But anyway, just my opinion, man. Um, I still think we should probably learn the name Pedro Menendez because he did found Florida. Anyway, two weeks later, this same process was completed again. When another 150 French settlers and soldiers were discovered, all but five were butchered. Those five having first confessed to being secretly Catholic. King Philip was a lot more succinct than Professor Barrientos when he spoke his opinion on what Pedro Menendez did. Quote, he has done well, unquote. For the moment at least, that left the French issue answered in Menendez's mind. And like I mentioned, though, he also had far greater plans. Menendez started construction on a third colony. This one would be his capital, Santa Elena, off the coast of modern-day South Carolina on Paris Island. He also attempted to land a small garrison in the Chesapeake Bay. Storms, though, prevented the ship from landing three times, and ultimately the captain he sent there returned to Spain. Along, inside that vessel was a young Indian from the region who the Spaniards called Don Luis and had grown up in Spain and become Christian. He was there key to their plans in the area because he could serve as interpreter. But it took four years for Menendez to send Don Luis back to Virginia, or what the Spaniards called Aja Khan in 1570. Don Luis arrived along with a dozen missionaries on the banks of what is now the Chesapeake Bay and reunited with his people. Don Luis was raised in a Spanish household for most of his life. Meanwhile, his brother had grown up and become a powerful chief amongst the people later called Powhatans. When the small group of settlers landed at Arajacan, Don Luis engaged in a welcoming ceremony with two of his brothers, which Luis Geronimo de Oro, author of The Martyrs of Florida, described as, quote, immorally, immora, immorality so shameful that Father Juan Batista reprimanded him, unquote. Well, apparently... Don Juan didn't feel like being reprimanded by the priests about how he was reuniting with his family. He abandoned the priests at the mission and returned the next winter, leading warriors. The Jesuits were killed, quote, in the words of, Don, of uh, Louis Geronimo de Oro, like sheep among wolves and butchers, unquote. And Don Luisa, Don Luis himself killed Father Bautista with, quote, a heavy blow to the head with a cutlass, unquote. In response, Menendez personally sailed to the Chesapeake and went ashore to punish the natives in 1572. 
and received permission from locals to look for those responsible for the deaths of 10 for the deaths for 10 days. Now at the conclusion of those 10 days, his men had captured eight uh, eight men who they said were responsible for the attack. Quote, the Adelantado then gave orders that the captured Indians be put to death. He asked them if they wished to die as Christians. Willingly, they asked for baptism. A religious instructed them and exhorted them as was fitting. Then they were hung from the yardarms. Unquote. Menendez considered the matter settled and planned to continue colonization. But King Philip and the Catholic Church had taken Don Luis's actions personally. Both king and church became disillusioned with the prospect of further, of further colonization in the north. Meanwhile, Menendez and those still, if you could call them pious enough to continue to missionize in America, had more luck elsewhere than in the Chesapeake Bay anyway. Menendez oversaw, or somewhat, Menendez oversaw the construction of a string of blockhouse forts in the Florida Peninsula. Those stretched from St. Augustine to Tampa Bay. Fortified Spanish missions were built up as well in Georgia and South Carolina. And inland, Spanish missions operated, opened up west of St. Augustine among the Timaqua and the Apalanche peoples. Now, Menendez got good press back in Spain for founding those missions. In, and in, in addition, got even better press when he was able to rescue some shipwreck victims who were living with the Calusa people in southwest Florida. Five Spanish men, five Peruvian women, and one African woman were rescued by Menendez, but just so you know, at least two of those women decided to stay with the Calusa. Now, between the years of 1565 and 1571, Menendez crossed the Atlantic seven times in an attempt to gain favor and find colonists for La Florida. This was necessary because despite all the energy and resources Menendez was pouring into the colony, each step forward was met with two steps back. When Menendez sailed to southwest Florida to rescue the shipwrecked victims there, he reunited to north he no, excuse me, he returned to northeast Florida and St. Augustine, only to discover that the men of one of the fort, the Santa Lucia fort, had abandoned their post and mutinied. Now, at any rate, Menendez was forced to restore order in Florida after that mutiny before establishing another town, uh, that was being the Santa Elena, on modern-day Paris Island in 1566. Now, Santa Elena, like I said earlier, would become the capital. Now, and from that capital, Menendez sent out an army under the command of one Juan Pardo into the interior of the continent. Pardo was tasked with finding a route to New Spain and to bring a, build a string of forts along said route. Zacatecas was 1,600 miles, with that said, from Santa Elena, so I think it was basically impossible for Pardo to have accomplished that task given that Menendez gave him four months to do that job, and Pardo's men were further expected to live off the land, uh, aka stealing from Mississippian peoples. Well, anyway, Juan Pardo first went through Cofita Chequi, but he found that the once great capital of Cofita Chequi had now become a much smaller chiefdom. And so from Cofita Chequi, Juan Pardo led his men to the chiefdom of Juara on the Catawba River in the rolling hills of the Blue Mountains. He ordered one of his captains to remain there and build a fort with 30 men and to seek a western passage through the mountains. Pardo then went east 
and found the chiefdom of Guatari. Guatari probably existed in Rowan County, North Carolina, and is probably nowadays under a lake created by a modern-day uh, dam. But at any rate, Pardo stayed there for two weeks before leaving four soldiers to construct a small fort at Guatari. Pardo and the remaining soldiers next made their way back to Santa Elena, having made some progress towards New Spain, I suppose, but with many, many miles to go. Shortly afterwards, after returning to Santa Elena, however, uh, Juan Pardo received word from Sergeant Hernando Moyano de Morales, the man left in charge of the Fort Eduara, that uh, Moyano had sent word of a great battle that wounded two Spaniards. And in that battle against a local cacique, 1,000 Indians were apparently killed and 50 huts burnt. So that's about how that was going, and which seems to be a suspiciously round number, if you ask me. But anyway, Sergeant Hernando Moyano had gotten into that battle when he'd left with half his force in March of 1567 to reconnoiter the Blue Mountains, to find a pass through them, and of course, to look for gold and silver. Anyway, Moyano... Uh, and his men got into that battle where the 1,000, uh, suspiciously round number of 1,000 Indians were killed, but it, okay. Anyway, afterwards, the war chief of those Indians reportedly responded with a message to Moyano after the Spanish retreated to the fort of Joyara. Jora, excuse me. If you return to this land, quote, I will eat not only your dog, but eat you as well, unquote. Now, Moyano decided to march back out to test that threat. He led 20 men back to the territory of his enemy, found battle at a large fortified Indian town with high walls, towers, and only one gate. Ultimately, the Spaniards gained the upper hand when they managed to set fire to the houses. Moyano reported to have, is reported to have killed half of the 3,000 inhabitants of the town, which supposedly uh, posting another great victory in his second letter back to Juan Pardo at Santa Elena, but, and 3,000, mind you, another suspiciously rounded figure, but in addition, he urged his commander to hurry with reinforcements as well. Now, the reality of the situation, despite Moyano's bragging, was that of the 20 Spaniards still un under him, half of them were wounded, including Moyano himself, and they were basically stuck at, an, uh, at a town where, uh, a friendly, I should say, island town called Chiaja populated by Creek peoples, and they were unable to return to the Fort of Jora. So Moyano and his wounded company built temporary fortifications at Chiaja after sending the letter back to Santa Elena. And basically, those fortifications amount to guarding the front door of the house as they were uh, with a covering of shields. And I don't know, by the way, much about the people who Moyano went to war with, but they were probably the ancestors of Chickasaw people. Now, at any rate, despite Juan Pardo's concern, when he received Moyano's letter, he was also concerned about a possible French attack and was under orders by Menendez to remain at Santa Elena. It wasn't until four months later, on September 1st, 1567, when Pardo handed out on a second expedition. Now, with that said, he wasn't really in that much of a hurry to get to Moyano. He was more concerned with visiting places like Cofita Checchi and other towns he'd uh, gone on to be the... And, and anyway, uh, he, 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 kept vis he was vis visiting a lot of the towns on the first expedition to make sure they were still friendly, quote-unquote, and more importantly, that they had built the grain storages for Spanish use, which he demanded. Now, Moyano aside, this was probably a good idea for Juan Pardo to check on from the Spanish perspective, considering that Governor Mendoza's plan was to build a road 
to New Spain. Now, unfortunately for Spanish conceptions about the size, fortunately, Spanish conceptions about the size of North America were seriously flawed. Now, for starters, they believed that instead of two mountain ranges in North America, the Appalachian Mountains led directly into the Rocky Mountains, and so that by following the Appalachians, Pardo thought that he would find himself near the Zacatecas silver mines at, at some point, and that didn't really work out in Western North Carolina. So Pardo did not cross into North Carolina until September 17th, and he didn't get to the fort at Jorah until September 24th. Now, Pardo was very impressed that the chief of Jorah had indeed built an elevated corn crib uh, for the Spaniards, and in return, the chief was gifted an axe, and his lesser chiefs were gifted knives, wedges, and cloth. Now, so it wasn't until September 27th, then when Pardo found where Moyano and the other 12... 20 Spaniards were hiding, and he sent word for them to meet at another friendly creek town called Olamico. Now, ultimately, Pardo and Moyano were reunited on October 7th at Olamico, and this was undoubtedly a joyous occasion for uh, Moyano and the 20 Spaniards with him, of sure. In addition, it was another opportunity for another gift-killing celebration between the chief of Olamico and Pardo. Quoting the, journal of part of, quoting the journal of one of Pardo's soldiers. Quote, Very many chiefs and Indians have come bringing the best they have, that is, deerskin loincloths. They bring corn, venison, hens, and fish, and some come whirling, others dancing, very painted up in many colors. Unquote. In return, Pardo gave the principal chiefs of Olamico, Ola, Ola quote, axes, London, London cloth, linen, red taffeta, and enameled buttons, unquote. Now, with that said, despite the friendly encounter between Muscogees and Spaniards at Olamico, the Spaniards also reported that perhaps six or 7,000 warriors were gathering and nearby to ambush the Spaniards as the, if they continued traveling through creek lands in the west. Well, Pardo sent his expedition west anyway, going southwest anyway, or at least, along the Great Smoky Mountains. They ultimately rested at another Muscogee town called Sapato, Satapo, excuse me, where they were well received, but also kept hearing disconcerting stories about how strangers like them had once come this way on foot and horseback and had been killed by Satapo warriors. When Juan Pardo heard these rumors, one of indig indigenous guides from coastal Carolina chimed in that five of his brothers had been captured and enslaved when they traveled through Creek lands. Well, Pardo's army encamped, and warriors continued gathering in the countryside outside of Satapo until one morning no food was given to the army. Most of the Indian porters subsequently fled, and as daybreak came, the Spaniards discovered only women and children remained inside the town. Juan Pardo's goal was to keep going towards Cusa in northwest Georgia, but instead he decided to heed the warning offered to him by one of the remaining few porters. He told Juan Pardo that he could have an axe if he would tell him what the Creeks were planning. So instead of some great battle on the way to Cusa, Captain Pardo and his 150 or so soldiers took that warning and hastily retreated from Zapato in the opposite direction. They returned to Olomico on October 19, 1567, where Pardo hastily explained the situation to the chief of that town and received permission to build a fort. Pardo stationed 25 soldiers at Olamico and continued to retrace his path. He built another fort at the town of Quachi and assigned Corporal 
Pedro Flores and ten soldiers to defend it. He left another thirty soldiers at the garrison of Juara on his way back with orders to make the fort of Juara a new base of operations for Spanish activity. To help out and resupply other forts when necessary, like, say, times of tribute collection specifically. Pardo also collected quartz on his way back, which, to many untrained eyes, may look like diamonds. And Spanish experts, though, persistently later declared these rocks were not to be diamonds, but regardless. In the aftermath of Juan Pardo's expedition, numerous colonists in Florida attributed their inability to, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, ball out with diamond money to the quote-unquote laziness unquote, uh, of Juan Pardo and the Adelantado Menendez. Now, incidentally, a small gold rush did occur in North Carolina in the 1800s, but Pardo and his men missed out on that one by a few centuries. Now, at any rate, Pardo started heading eastward and founded another fort. Incidentally, the fort Pardo's men constructed were built with wooden walls. They were covered in mud in a trapezoid shape. They were 60 foot long on one side, 40 feet long on two sides, and had a gate at the short side. The defensive walls were 10 feet tall, with one tower 30 feet high in the corner of the trapezoid that could serve as a storage as well for gunpowder and small cannon. Now, at any rate, the walls of this latest fort were complete on January 6, 1568, at the town of Guatari, which was along the Catawba River. Pardo then returned to Cofi de Chequi after this, founded one last fort, and then back to Santa Elena. Now, I guess that's quite an accomplishment, that second Pardo expedition. Over a period of about 18 months, from, the, from 1566 to 1568, in fact, Spanish ambitions in La Florida were very high. Spaniards trekked across the southeast with Juan Pardo and established those forts with the help of Indian allies, and it started to look like the beginnings of another viceroyalty might well be underway. Unfortunately for Spanish and, in for that matter, Pardo and uh, Menendez's ambitions, things fall apart. And in La Florida, things fell apart quickly. We don't know exactly what happened to the forts, but archaeological evidence does let us know they were burned. In late spring of 1568, Santa Elena received news that the forts were being overrun and destroyed, but little information otherwise is known. The historic and archaeological record points generally to a coordinated attack, however, against all of the forts and soldiers remaining in La Florida's frontier within a matter of weeks, if not days. And while I can assure you that I cannot give you the exact details, obviously the reasons for this attack were revenge for the theft and rape that the soldiers were probably committing. Now, with that said, not every European on the frontier was dead after the destruction of those Spanish forts. A few of the more kind and dutiful padres remained in the Spanish borderlands afterwards. And at least one Spaniard was living with his native life in the years after the rebellion of Missi with Mississippian peoples. But with that said, Pedro Menendez's grand vision was largely destroyed with these forts. Now that doesn't mean Juan Pardo didn't try again, because he did try again. He retraced his route, this time crossing the Appalachians into modern-day Tennessee. But of course, that was still nowhere near modern Spain. And once again, Juan Pardo established a string of forts. And once again, within a few months, the defenders of those forts were dead or had been absorbed into Indian populations, and the forts were burnt to the ground. 
So, too, did Menendez's other dreams begin to turn to ash. La Florida did not contain mineral wealth. On the peninsula, the native populations in much of Florida didn't engage either in the sort of large-scale agriculture which Spanish colonialism depended. After an initial fluorescence, the colony withered. Another issue was that Menendez could not find a water passage to the South Sea, or what the Spanish called the Pacific, and he looked a lot. He spent a lot of significant energy and resources looking for a trans-Florida channel as well, which, just so you know, has continued to bugger capitalists looking to further exploit Florida to the present. Menendez found that Spanish ships could not sail through Florida, no matter which of the many waterways he explored. Similarly, no magical strait obviously appeared, which cut North America and led to the Pacific. A big part of why Menendez went into the colony in the first place was that mythical strait, and a big part of why he kept, send, send, kept sending Juan Pardo out west was to find that strait. And besides paying for Juan Pardo to field an army, Menendez also paid to send his nephew, also named Pedro Menendez, because of course he was, out to explore by sea. The nephew, Menendez the Younger, reported that, quote, from 1565 to 1569, I went to reconnoiter and sound, see and discover the coast, shoals, rivers, and ports, bays, and coves, which are in the said coast of La Florida, in compliance with which I have run the length of the coast, from the Bay of St. Joseph, which is 80 leagues from the river of Panuco, on the northern Gulf of Mexico, to Tocobago once, and from Tocobago and from Tocobago to Santa Elena, and through Santa Elena to Tobago many times, and from Santa Elena to Jacan, and from there to Newfoundland. Because of these many failures, La Florida suffered from continuous problems with desertions, which was why Menendez kept having to go back to Spain to recruit more colonists. San Mateo, Menendez's second colony, founded on the St. John's River near modern-day Jacksonville, was abandoned in 1569. The colonists simply left and moved to St. Augustine and Santa Elena. Then Pedro Menendez died in 1574 in Spain, trying to recruit 50 Asturian families willing to move to his colony. And afterwards, Spanish efforts in La Florida became ever more diminished. Raids by native peoples continued over the next few years, and in 1576, the colonists of Santa Elena were forced to retreat to St. Augustine, and the capital of the colony was burned by Indians. King Philip spent a lot of money by ordering the reconstruction of Santa Elena afterwards, but the final nail in the coffin was put into Santa Elena when a raid by a British privateer in 1586 burned St. Augustine and which, frankly, would have burned Santa Elena too if the British could have found it at any rate. In response, the king ordered the consolidation of La Florida's defenses and population into St. Augustine in 1587. And so, despite all the ambitions of Pedro Menendez, Spanish La Florida was reduced to nothing more than just one little backwater, a lonely outpost, St. Augustine. By the year 1600, Spanish Empire in North America had become so expensive in both Florida and New Mexico that the crown actually considered abandoning both. Spain's imperial system 
meant that Spanish Florida existed to support Spain's European ventures. But unlike Mexico, Peru, and other Spanish colonies, La Florida and New Mexico did not make money. They cost money. A lot of money, in fact. In Florida, the crown spent four pesos for every peso Menendez spent. Frankly, had not Jamestown been founded in 1607 and Quebec in 1608, perhaps Florida would have been been abandoned wholesale and maybe even New Mexico was saved by the introduction of British and French colonies in in North America. New Mexico was much less expensive than Florida, but was still an expense. The Council of Indies and the Viceroy of New Spain literally almost shut down the operation in the early years of the 17th century, except that Franciscan monks successfully argued that it would be even more expensive and impractical to remove the Christianized Pueblo population. With that said, Spain did completely abandon all attempts at California, like we said. By 1600, Spanish imperial thought had completely shifted from the idea that a Spanish outpost in California would protect the Philippine trade and repel foreign interlopers into the idea that such an outpost would just attract English and Dutch smugglers, just like the Caribbean and the Florida coast did. Ultimately, Spain would not try again at permanent occupation of California until 1769, 150 years later. Now, so Florida and New Mexico did not grow into full-grown Spanish viceroyalties, but they did endure. So neither would be indestined for the wealth of Mexico or Peru or, frankly, even the sugar plantations of the Caribbean, but they held on. St. Augustine, if after being bolstered by the population of Santa Elena, as they abandoned the one-time capital of Florida, consisted, quote, of a muddy garrison town of flammable huts of palmetto, unquote, with a, quote, population of just over 500 in 1600, including men, women, children, and 27 slaves, known for its hurricanes, Indian pirate attacks, and sterile soil, St. Augustine repelled rather than attracted ambitious uh, Spaniards, unquote. New Mexico was larger, but similarly, the population remained under 3,000 for probably the entirety of the 17th century. And the only formal municipality remained the Villa Real de Santa Fe, founded when the population moved to that more defensible site than the original capital. Well, what does this history mean? if you're like me and you're from the United States? Well, for starters, the destruction caused by armies roaming through America and the genocide committed by the conquistadors is shameful and begins a disgusting history of European colonies and later settlers of the United States towards the indigenous tribes in North America. There is a truth about stories. And the truth about this story is it is a distasteful story to say the least. Now, on the one hand, two small outposts is, I suppose, a very small output. If you consider the fact that Spain poured a century's worth of blood and treasure into an attempted conquest in North America. On the other hand, despite this failure... The repeated forays by Spanish conquistadors in North America started a process that can only be described as apocalyptic. Disease and viruses from the Old World came alongside the Spanish. 
We have a lot of questions about how exactly those diseases spread and where exactly they first began spreading. More on that in two episodes from now when we finish the, the series on the conquest of the Americas. Now, the larger expeditions, though, like that of DeSoto, caused incalculable damage in a loss of human life. Now, beyond the tens or perhaps hundreds of thousands of people they killed directly by Spanish weapons, the conquistador stole everything. Across the American continent, as a direct consequence of dealing with Europeans, either through warfare or peace, the villages, towns, and pueblos of North America, entire societies, faced starvation as a result of that theft of corn. And as that happened, the trade routes, which connected vast parts of North America, were destroyed. The Southeast chiefdoms began a long period of decline and reorganization into new confederations, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Muscogee. Large areas of the southern Midwest, which were occupied by Cadoan peoples before the conquest, were abandoned. The trade between east and west that connected Mississippian, the Mississippian world to the Cadoan world to the Puebloan world, well, that trade was shattered. An incalculable loss of knowledge and traditional practices occurred. Law and order began to break down, and violence began to increase. Now, of course, despite all that, many of the descendants of that apocalypse are still alive, and in fact, they are still alive even though they faced another specific apocalypse in the 19th century when they were gathered in concentration camps called Indian reservations. The truth about this story, I guess, is that it's as American as apple pie, like I said. That said, there's another truth about this story. The truth is that just because the Spanish failed at conquering North America didn't mean that no successful conquest took place as a result. Now, little is known about these conquests that occurred in the 16th and 17th centuries because they were not written down on the white man's paper. They were instead drawn as winter counts on the backs of buffalo hides and on scrolls made of birch bark. But before the coming of Europeans, a powerful group called the Jumanos lived in West Texas and Eastern New Mexico. They were farming and hunting buffaloes when the Spaniards met them. The Spaniard, but the Jumanos were not powerful because of their hunting and farming skills. They were powerful because of trade. Jumano traders connected East and West by trading salt and turquoise and mica and copper and buffalo skins and all sorts of things. Contact, though, with Spaniards took its toll, of course, and the Jumanos were weakened, like many other chiefdoms in North America, by disease. The Jumanos also had enemies that predated the Spanish. Over the course of the 16th century, a group began to conquer Jumano hunting grounds and trade networks as the horse began to spread into North America. Now, the Spaniards weren't really clear who these people were exactly in the 16th century, because at that time, Spaniards did not distinguish between Navajo and Apache peoples. But in the 17th century, the Apaches emerged much more clearly in the historic record. By the 1630s, not only were they raiding the Jumanos, they were fighting up against Spanish slave raids, and in fact began raiding Spanish lands for herds of horses. 
By 1650, wealthy Apaches were regularly seen at Pueblo trading fairs. And whenever the Spaniards imposed too much tribute so that the Pueblos could not hold trading fairs, the Apaches raided the Pueblos. Within a century of acquiring horses, Apache territory spread from the Arkansas and Canadian rivers valleys and included the southern plains of Texas. They had replaced the Jumanos as the dominant power in the region and had displaced the Wichita people who lived to the east as well. There's a truth about stories, my friend. And the truth about this story is that even as the Appalachians were taking control of the southern plains of the Jumanos, other natives were getting horses to the north. And the Comanches were one such group. The Comanches in turn pressured the Apaches from the north as they conquered the lands of the Jicarillas. And this forced the Apaches into additional conflict in the south as the Comanches took Apache land and the Apaches pushed themselves against Spanish mines and ranches. The truth about this story is even though the Spanish failed at conquest, they did succeed in causing conquest all across North America. The Shoshone people of the American Northwest obtained horses, probably from their Comanche relatives, and with those horses, they carved a range from the Saskatchewan to the Platte. The neighbors of the Shoshone also obtained horses, Cayuses and Flathead and Crow, Nez Pierces and Blackfeet and Kiowas and Cheyenne. All of these people obtained horses, and all found themselves increasingly in conflict. Conflict to obtain horses. Conflict to obtain land for horses. And conflict to obtain slaves to replenish the ranks of their wartime society. One Cheyenne legend says that the people asked Mateo, all creator for horses. And the creator, Mateo, told the people they could have horses. But he also offered a warning to the Cheyenne people. Quote, if you have horses, everything will be changed for you forever. You will have to move a lot to find pasture for your horses. You will have to give up gardening and live by hunting and gathering like the Comanche. And you ought to come out of your earth-lodged houses and live in tents. I will tell your women how to make them, how to decorate them, and there will be other changes. You will have to fight other tribes if you want your pasture land or the places where you hunt. You have to have real soldiers who can protect the people. Think before you decide, unquote. On the upper Missouri, people who once relied on the power of corn also came to know the power of horse instead. Mandans, Hidatsas, and Arikaras lived on the margins of Mississippian life before the horse. Afterwards, their towns transformed into great trading rendezvous, where originally corn, beans, and squash were traded for meat and hides, became must-go-to destinations where horses and eventually guns were bought and sold frequently. These destinations served as beacons of economic opportunity to far-off people like the Lakota, 
When the Lakota got horses, they swept on to the Great Plains. They became known as the most warlike and independent nation within all of North America, feared by all. Later, they were called by Lewis and Clark, the Pirates of the Missouri. The truth about this story, my friends, is that by unleashing the forces of conquest upon North America, Spain failed but in conquering, but succeed in, succeeded in causing other conquests. Of course, those original Spanish conquistadors never imagined, as they unleashed the forces of apocalypse upon the peoples of North America that in turn, their children and grandchildren might in fact be killed by Apache conquistadors out to obtain wealth and slaves and empire for themselves. Neither, of course, could those proud warriors of the plains have imagined that in another century they would face a different rising power in the United States. In light of the cyclical nature of the destructive power that we engage when we, in, that we unleash, that we engage in conquest, I personally believe it is hopefully time to break that cycle of conquest. Fighting your enemies does not put you in a position, in, puts you in only one position, and that is where you can guarantee your descendants will be fighting enemies. And in that case, there is zero guarantee that your descendants will live prosperous lives. And so personally, I would urge you to take lessons from the words of Matteo, all creator of the Cheyenne. If you agree and want to, well, this works for anything. If you want to change your lifestyle in any way, if you feel the need to leave your metaphorical earth lodge and instead decorate your proverbial teepee, you have the power to do so. All you must do is think before you decide. Of course, there is a truth about stories. The truth about stories is that it doesn't matter what I, the storyteller, wants. What matters is what you do. So you can take this story about 100 years of failure. Do with it what you want. Maybe this story will make you revisit your perceptions about the American past. Maybe you never knew how many towns full of indigenous people were really here. Part of the reason I kept naming all those towns is because maybe you thought North America wasn't full of millions of people living in hundreds or thousands of different cultures in 1492. And even with that said, with this story being the start of a genocide, I think you can still, still think of this story as inspirational. Because this story might urge you to keep going. If you fail. See, as the conquistadors show us that when we fail, there's no option than to keep going. Poco mas allá, mis amigos, mis amigos. I guess better yet, you might also remember Mateo's advice to the Cheyenne, that 
you might need to change a few things around if you want to succeed in the future. Well, maybe the story will make you see that the cycles of violence and retribution that occur in the process of conquest and empire making, maybe you decide you don't want to take part of that anymore and you want to try and build a new, better world. So whether or not I speak to you about the United States and Iraq or Russia in Ukraine, the forces of conquest are global. And thus, we the people, globally, must collectively act to change. If we wish to change the world and make sure this sort of thing never happens again. Though with that said, that still starts with you changing yourself. But what do I know? This is actually, after all, your story. I'm merely the storyteller. And I'm an admitted failure at that. So maybe you heard this story and it reinforced your worldview instead. Maybe you hear the story and think to yourself, that's right. Survival of the fittest. Tribe against tribe. All we can do is fight and steal from others before they steal from us. Us versus them. Well, this story is yours. I've given it to you. So you can do that if you want. In fact, you can do anything with this story. You can tell somebody about it. Hell, you could make my day and share this story on, on social media somehow. You can go forward with this story with the confidence and knowledge that when you fail, you are not alone. We all face failure. In fact, we all face failure regularly. So, if you need to, you can put this story in your pocket if you want. You can leave it there for a hundred years if you need to. Just in case you need to pull it out and remember. Or, I guess you could do nothing with this story. You can throw it away. Skip it across the proverbial lake like a metaphorical stone and watch it sink to the bottom. Delete it off your playlist. Leave a comment that says, Jesse, you suck, and forget about it forever. There's actually only one thing you can't do with this story, my friends. You can't say, if only. Because maybe in a hundred years from now, your grandchildren's lives could be at risk from this cycle of conquest. They could be killed because of enemies made today. Maybe one day it's your neighborhood that's the Ukraine of tomorrow. Well, I certainly hope that never happens, my friends. But if it does, you won't be able to say, if only I had done something. If only I had known how violence was cyclical. I would have tried to stop that cycle. I would have done something. I would have done anything to make the world a better place, even if I failed at doing so. My friends, this is something neither yourselves nor myself can ever say. We have heard this story now. 
listen what I say The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand Cause it's a mutiny happening here you're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer this is now a democratic egalitarian pirate ship so enjoy your trip because it's a mutiny it's a mutiny this is a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship 